Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, the Druffin Friends show. This is being broadcast live and recorded on January 24th, 2019. The time right now, 8.48 p.m. Six days since our last show. It's nice to be regular again, though we're kind of jumping around on days. We have been a weekly show for a while now, and we will continue to be health permitting. So hopefully that stays. We have a free roll going on right now. Started three minutes ago, but you can still get in all the way until 9, 10 p.m. Pacific time. So you have a little bit of time to get in with a full stack. And it's a big free roll this week, mostly thanks to our biggest free roll contributor in 2018 and 2019. That's Eric Benzamokin. Very, very generous guy. And uh, I appreciate this very much. We have a $230 free roll. Plus 40, and usually the plus 40 means it's like some kind of fee, but since it's a free roll, I can't charge you any fee. In fact, if I charge you anything, it would be illegal, and uh, the feds could kick down my door while I'm doing the show and arrest me. So it's still going to be totally free. The plus 40 means you can win 40 extra dollars by knocking out the player known as Seabock Softy. Yes, Seabock Softy. No, it's not Joe Seabock. It's uh, someone who's inspired by Joe Seabock and uh, some certain pictures he sent a number of years ago. So Seabox Softy, if you knock him out, you get $40. That was donated by Seabox Softy himself. He put a bounty on himself. And uh, if he's not there this week, then that'll roll over until the next time he plays. But he claims he'll be there. So Seabox Softy, knock him out, you get $40. The rest of the pool, $230. It's as follows. $100 for first, 60 for second. 35 for third, 20 for fourth, and 15 for fifth. So that's 100, 60, 35, 20, and 15, plus the $40 bounty on Seabox Softy. That's $270 in total given away this week on what should again probably be a small field because the date of this show was announced pretty last minute. Once we return to a regular Wednesday show, which I'm kind of pushing to do, what I've been doing is... uh, We've been doing it on Friday lately. Now we've moved it to Thursday, so six days later. I'm going to try to do this in another six days on Wednesday and then stick on Wednesday so people can find the show live more easily. But while we're on an off day that people have to follow to find it live, then the free roll participation is pretty low because people just can't find us that easily until after we've made the show. After we've done the show, people tend to find it. They either get it pushed to them by iTunes or whatever podcast subscription they have, or they just look for it at some point and find it. But uh, finding it live, I admit, is a bit of a challenge, and I'm trying to make that better as time goes on. So the benefit for you guys who do find it live is you do get a smaller field in the free roll, and as you know, a smaller field means much better odds for you to win. We're giving away five prizes here, and there's not going to be that many people playing, so you have a very good shot at finishing in the money and maybe even winning the hundred bucks up top. So thank you to the donors. Disposition gave $10. A guy named God damn you gave $20. <clears throat> Eric Benzamokin gave 150. Seabox Softy gave the 40 bounty on himself. And I gave $50 as part of my ongoing pledge to donate money to the free roll that uh, was probably inadvertently kept by me over the years because people didn't claim their money. So this is me giving that money back. Not really a donation, because this was money that was given for the free roll in the first place. 
but uh, this is something I pledged to do back in April, and uh, then all this stuff happened with my health, and I kind of forgot about it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I, I never gave away that $400, so I've been doing it. That's why the last several free rolls have been 50 bucks for me. There you go. I can pay you in various ways. I can pay you by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, by another method you might be able to think of, maybe a payment service online that's been there almost 20 years that a lot of people know and use, especially to buy things in auctions. And the Cash App, I can now send you money. If you want to sign up for the Cash App, first of all, I can send you a code. I know someone requested one. I I haven't sent it to them yet, but I will. But if you want the Cash App, we can each get $5 if uh, you sign up through my code. But if you don't, that's fine too. But either way, you can send me money through a debit card with no fee. And I can send you money through a debit card with no fee. And we won't see each other's debit cards. I won't be getting your debit card information. So don't worry about that. It's a large company called Square. So you don't have to worry about them with that information. So I highly recommend the Cash App. And I thought it was new, but someone corrected me and said it's been around a while, which is even better. So it's uh, to send me money for the free roll or anything else. If you want to donate to the show, if you want to donate to the free roll. Don't feel obligated, by the way. If you If you just want to listen... And never donate a penny here. I'm totally fine with that. I'm I'm happy to have listeners. I'm happy to have people who want to hear this show. I, I have no expectation that anyone donates anything. However, if if you feel you want to, it's appreciated, but it's not expected. That's the best way to put it. But anyway, cash.me slash dollar sign Dan Druff. And it's capital D for both Dan and Druff, but no spaces. So it's cash.me slash dollar sign Dan Druff with a capital D for Dan and Druff. And it'll say, you know, Todd would tell us his cash ME page. And then you can enter your debit card and you can send me money, no fees. So let's say you want to send me $100. You enter that info, enter 100 enter your debit card. It'll debit you exactly $100. It'll send me exactly 100 Nobody's paying any fees, which is why I'm mentioning this. And I can pay you that way too. If you get that app, I can send it to you that way. That's the cash app. I recommend it. Uh, They're not a sponsor. I don't get anything except for the five bucks if you sign up through my code, which I have to individually do for each person. So it's a bit of a pain in the ass for me. But I'm just mentioning it because I think it's good for our purposes here. Anyway, the free roll, it's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. Make sure to go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. Everything lowercase exactly as it sounds to understand the rules to win the free money. Otherwise, guess what? I won't pay you. I'll just take your prize and roll it to the next week if you do not qualify according to those rules. So make sure you understand them. I won't keep the money. It's just going to go to somebody else in the future. If you want to call into the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. The Mount Charleston line. It's buried under snow, but it still works. 702-430-1808. It's an old rotary phone sitting in a cabin on top of Mount Charleston. Forwards to me wherever I go. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. You can text me anytime before, during, or after the show. At our main phone number, 775-372-8355, I will probably respond to you. And you never have to worry about the time you text me. Anytime, 24-7, you can text me. I will never be bothered that you're hassling me at a weird hour. I'm probably up at that weird hour anyway. I'm not up standard hours, as some of you might have noticed. Even 
the hours we do this show are not very standard. Look at what time we're starting. It's almost 9 o'clock p.m. on the West Coast, and it'll be through the middle of the night. So I've always stayed up very late, and I continue to do so. So just just text me anytime, and I'll text you back. If you want to chat in the chat room, you need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones or iPads can get in there, and you need a validated account on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. But you can talk to other people during the live show. Don't bother to go in if you're listening in the archives, as there will be nobody there to chat with. Unless you want to talk to yourself, then you're welcome to go in. We have archives in various places. You can catch the show when it's not live on iTunes, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, on Google Play. These are all apps that you can get on your phone or even uh, you can go to the sites on your PC. Radio Public, though we've had some issues with them lately, but it, I, I think you can listen to the show there still. I'm not sure how much longer we'll be carrying Radio Public, but if they get their act together, we'll stay with them. And we have an RSS feed, if you know how to use that. And you can just download or play the MP3 file of this show directly from the Poker Fraud Alert server. And that works very well on iPhones and iPads because it doesn't require any kind of software. It's built into iPhones and iPads to just play MP3. So you just click on the MP3 and it plays. It's very easy. In fact, that's what I do when I want to listen to a past show on my iPhone or iPad. I don't even bother with iTunes. You can find all these options on the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com. But there's one thing I haven't yet mentioned. That is the call to listen line. The call to listen line is a phone number you can call, which just plays the show. It's very easy. You call and you listen. When we're on live, you can hear the live show on there. And when we're not live, you can call up and listen to a randomly picked rerun, which is in progress, which runs as if it's live. And then when it's done, it picks another one and another one until we come back live. That's the call to listen line. It has a no buffer guarantee. You will never hear it buffer. It's just going to play. It's just going to work. It's not like this annoying streaming crap where it freezes and buffers when your connection isn't tip-top. Here, it just works. 605-313-0736 is the number. That's Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where it's located. 605-313-0736. I got a message from the individual I know in Carroll, Iowa, who was managing the call to listen line for me there, he says he put it back up in the shack in Carroll, Iowa. This was this was switched on me. What happened was that I had this running, the call to listen line, it was running out of a shack in Carroll, Iowa. And one night it just changed. One night uh, the person running it kind of handed it off to someone else in South Dakota. And it vanished from Carroll, Iowa. And that person didn't warn me. I wasn't very happy about it. But uh, that's why the abrupt change of the phone number. I was very surprised when I called up to hear the other day like what happened to the old call to listen line and found that it was working on the old number. So supposedly it's back up. At least it was the last time I checked. And that number is 712-775-8136. 712-775-8136 is the oh – no, that's not the number. Hold on. What is it? 712-775-8162. I think that's it. 712 – I'm going to verify this now. It's been so long since we switched. I, I, I don't want you calling up some old lady in the middle of the night that, thinking it's a call to listen line. Let me see here. I think it's 712-775-8162. I'm going to verify it, though. 
Yeah, that's what it is. 712-775-8162. So that works, too. So I guess we have two call-to-listen lines now. What do you know? They're, they're expanding. One day we will have call-to-listen lines all over the world, not just in the U.S. We will have the call-to-listen line network of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Or you can just stick to the main one in South Dakota. That's the best idea. When I first developed the call-to-listen line in November of 2015, people laughed at me. Uh, they, they even mocked me over on the, on the 2 Plus 2 poker cast about this. They, they said it's like something grandmothers would use. I think Terrence Chan said that. People, people mock the call-to-listen line because they don't understand how great it is. When I asked if people would like to have this before I developed it, people said, no, this sounds stupid. Why don't you put the show on uh, on SoundCloud? Why don't you put it? On, why don't you do uh, live streaming on Twitch? I said, no, I'm not doing that crap. I think a call to listen line sounds like a good idea because it doesn't require a smartphone or a data plan or a computer or the internet or a good connection. All it needs is a phone anywhere in the world that can dial. And people said that's stupid. That's something people would use in the '80s. And I said, well, I like the '80s, so I'm building it. So I did, and it's been a big hit. It's a big hit. We've had almost a million minutes listened to on the Call to Listen line. I'm not even exaggerating. 605-313-0736 is the Call to Listen line. Yes, I talk about it every week because I love it so much. It's just something that I love and I wanted to share with everybody. I can't contain my excitement about the Call to Listen line. Here's the agenda this week. You've got nine minutes left to get another free roll, by the way. The top story this week Elie Lezra. He has a new book. You can buy it. It's on Amazon right now. To promote the book, which is published by 2 Plus 2 Publishing, yes, the same 2 Plus 2 that you all know, in order to promote the book, Elie Lezra, who's not normally a forum guy, in fact, I think he barely understands forums, uh, attempted to do an Ask Me Anything thread on 2 Plus 2, which backfired spectacularly and ended up with scamming accusations against him, credible ones. And not only did it end up making Elie Lezra look bad, it made Mason Malmuth and 2 Plus 2 look bad. It was a fiasco, it's still ongoing, and I have a new piece of information about Elie Lezra that pretty much nobody knows that I'm going to share with the listeners tonight. I haven't even posted anywhere on my own site about this new piece of information. I saved it for radio. That'll be our first segment. Related, our second segment will be a short discussion of whether 2 plus 2 should publish books by scammers or other disgraced poker players. Uh, Should they say, no, we're not doing this, or should they pull their books from their shelves, or their virtual shelves, I guess, if the authors of these books are later shown to be bad people who have engaged in criminal behavior, or... Should they just publish any book that they think people may want to read? I can understand the argument on both sides there. So we're going to discuss that tonight. That's been a topic that's come up on 2 Plus 2 as kind of an offshoot of this whole thing. Last week, I admitted that not only was Asian Spa dead, and he passed away back in 2015, but that I engineered a cover-up of his death 
and only admitted to it last week and only informed everybody last week that Asian Spa had unfortunately passed away. Uh, I mentioned another person who was kind of involved, not in covering it up, but someone who knew at the time who didn't say anything because I told them not to. And uh, and then they brought it out again on Twitter, or they brought it out on Twitter, not again, for the first time. And then uh, I said that forced my hand. I was referring to Jean Riders, and uh, she heard that segment. She was listening, and uh, she then sent me a message that uh, she felt there were some inaccuracies in the way I described the situation with her. So I'm going to clarify everything involving her. So... Because I, I want only the truth out there, and when there's a mistake made, or when there's things that are said that are uh, could mislead people, I I just I'm going to publish some corrections, so to speak, on that one. Remember Johnny Ferrari? We had trouble reaching him. He was at he supposedly was at Casino Niagara. He wanted to tell us about uh, this scam, not at Casino Niagara, but this thing called the Diamond Spade Club. He wanted to tell us all about it, and we had a hard time reaching him. It turned out he was at some shady motel, not even at Casino Niagara. And Johnny doesn't care for me too much these days, and he's been arguing with people on the forum, and he's been sending me weird messages. The guy has a screw loose, but nevertheless, we're going to talk about him tonight because he put out some clarification about Gavin Smith's death. Remember last week, uh, Gavin Smith passed away. And uh, Johnny Ferrari was his friend. I know that. So Johnny Ferrari was trying to put out some clarifications that he felt there were some wrong assumptions about Gavin Smith and why he died. So I will relay what Johnny Ferrari has been putting out, read his statement, and then I'll tell you how much I believe. The World Series of Poker has released what appears to be their full 2019 schedule. It's, it's kind of weird. The press release said that they added 34 events. Uh, added meaning that they've just released 34 more events information. They had been releasing it in pieces. They didn't say this is the final schedule, but looking at it, it looks like the final schedule. But then on the top of the schedule, it says it's a partial schedule. I don't know, but to me, it looks like a partial schedule. So I'm going to say it's a full schedule. Maybe it's not. I think it's kind of like full but subject to change, but it's probably close to set in stone at this point. So we will talk about what's on the schedule this year that I haven't already talked about in previous weeks. And I'll tell you what I'm planning to play, and I'll give you a preview about what I'm selling this year. I've already made the decision to sell pieces. Last year I kind of held it to the last minute deciding what to do. This year I've already decided I am selling pieces I'll tell you what I'm selling this year, how you can buy it, and there's even a reduced markup on some events. I was hoping we could have a phone call with Kristen, the girl with a husband in prison, but uh, she hasn't responded to me tonight. I don't know if she's going to come on. I think she might be getting cold feet. I think after she came on and and proudly told us that she's going to stay with him and wait for him, and now that she's not with him anymore and has a boyfriend... I think she's reluctant to come on. I think she might be embarrassed about it. I, I keep trying to tell her I'm not going to act that way with her. I just want her to tell us what happened. That's all. I, I'm not going to shame her about the situation. In fact, I understand it. I'm, I was surprised that she was going to put up with it. Especially, to be honest, uh, Kristen, you know, she's an attractive girl. Especially, you know, she's like 36 years old and she still looks very good. And, and uh, I, and she seems to have her shit together. She's got her own hairdressing business. I'm like, why is she, why is she waiting for a a violent criminal to come out of prison that she 
wasn't even with before he went to prison. Like, I, I would think she could do better, so it appears she has. So I definitely wasn't going to shame her for it, but we'll see if she comes on. But I don't think it'll be tonight. That was on the agenda, but it's probably not happening. You guys remember Jeffrey Pollock, former World Series of Poker commissioner, and probably better known now as the disgraced head of Epic Poker. Yes, the Epic Poker that cheated people. He has been named president of the XFL. I don't know how this guy keeps getting work, but we'll talk about it. Sean Deeb taunted Daniel Negreanu on Twitter about Daniel's recent engagement. I'll tell you what Sean said and Daniel's reaction. Speaking of Daniel, something nice he has agreed to do. A terminally ill man, he's not even that old, a guy 33 years old who's terminally ill with a hereditary illness. He chose through the Dream Foundation to meet Daniel Negreanu and have a trip to Vegas. That was what he wanted to do as what will probably be his final trip of his life because he doesn't have much longer to live. So we'll talk about that. Ali Fazeli, who was arrested for a Super Bowl ticket scam that ensnared some poker players that invested in it and got ripped off. He was sentenced. I'll tell you how long he got. Remember we talked about last week the 2011 Department of Justice Wire Act interpretation that it only applied to sports betting? And then they reinterpreted it in late 2018, which we just found out about last week, to include everything again, which is obviously a negative for poker. Sheldon Adelson was found to have links to that being done. So we'll talk about that and the fact that Pennsylvania has already taken action based upon this and informed casinos to comply with the new Wire Act rules. So I'll tell you what that means. A Bellagio dealer actually refused a tip. Why would they refuse a tip? We'll discuss that. This was reported by a poker player named Johnny Moreno, and I believe him. Finally, provided I have the time and energy, a non-poker, non-gambling-related editorial. Why not to jump to conclusions from viral social media stories? If you see a viral story going around on social media that outrages you or pisses you off or just makes you think that someone or something or some group, if they're, they're horrible, if you want to vilify someone or something based upon something going around on social media, you might want to withhold judgment until all the facts come out. I'll talk about a recent situation where that definitely applies and in general, why that's smart to do these days. That's my editorial, which I hadn't done in a while. I said, I'll bring back an editorial. So let's try to locate Trader Ruski. Cal Watt. Someone asked, where's Cal Watt? I miss Cal Watt. Yeah, uh, I miss him too. I want him to come back. I think I'll have to start the show earlier to get him to come back because he just can't seem to make it at this time anymore. And I know we drifted later and later. That hasn't helped. But uh, I'll... I'm going to talk to him to see what he thinks the latest we could start and that he could make, and then I'll see what I can do. It's it's better for me, personally, that we start later like this. But maybe if we can get Cal Watt back, I can see about what we can do to bring him back to the show. But 
Someone who can make it is Trader Ruski. So he says. We have, to, we have to put up with these annoying Skype sounds because Skype sucks these days. What's happening, Druff? Trader Ruski, thank you for joining us. And you, know, you have fans here, Trader Ruski. There's some people that have told me they're very happy that, that you've been here so much recently and that they the show doesn't seem the same without you. Okay, well, I appreciate that and glad I can contribute. So I want to talk about the Ellie Alezra thing. Uh, have you heard anything about this, Trader Ruski? Just on the intro. That was about it. On the intro. Okay. Well, at least we'll get your genuine reaction to it uh, from hearing about it the first time, as uh, some of the listeners will, too. This story is not being covered very much on the general poker media. Outside of 2 Plus 2, where it occurred, and Poker Fraud Alert, and I think one other small site that like is basically an affiliate site trying to get clicks. Uh, it's really nowhere that I've seen, and I think it deserves a lot more discussion. It's a very interesting story. So Elia Lezra has been around for quite some time in poker. Trader Ruski, when you hear that name, Elia Lezra, what do you think of? I mean, when I thought of it earlier, I just I guess I thought of the, the uh, Chris Moneymaker beat. Yeah, but what but, do you, uh, yeah, like, yeah, what do you think? Obviously, of, much more. Like, what's your impression of him in general? Like, like, what type of player do you think he is? Like, what, what's your before all this? What was your uh, impression of just like who he is and what stakes he plays and all that? I mean, he certainly seems solid. I assumed he played higher stakes. Seemed like a good guy. You know, I know he has businesses throughout Vegas, and seems like a solid guy. Yeah, so that was the general impression of him. It was that uh, he's. A, an Israeli businessman who seems to be doing very well, plays high-stakes poker, uh, seems to be a decent guy, and that's basically it. And, and as some people know he claims to have been in the Israeli army and uh, seen some action there. So that's that's what most people thought about him. That's, I had heard some rumors about him owing money or something, but they weren't like they hadn't propagated that much. I didn't know much detail. I never bothered to look into it. I played with him for the first time ever in 2018. It was at the 10 K limit Hold'em event. So he actually sat to my right and I thought to myself, Hmm, I, I wonder what kind of player he is at limit Hold'em. And the answer was not very good. <laughs> so I, I was wondering, is he going to be tough? Is he going to be okay? But no, he was, you know, he was open limping and stuff. You never do in limit Hold'em. So, but I thought, okay, you know, he's not really a limit hold'em player. I know he's uh, uh, he's more of a no limit guy. So, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe mixed game guy. So, I, I said, okay, that doesn't mean he's a fish. It's just, this isn't really his strong game for sure. But that was it. I didn't think that much more about him. And I also thought, okay, well, doesn't surprise me. He's in a 10K though. This guy's a rich businessman. And you know, regardless of whether he wins or loses in poker, which I didn't know. I just and, and yeah, as far as his poker success, like this is one of these guys I know plays high stakes. I, I I didn't know if he was a winner or if he was just someone who had a lot of money who could afford to keep playing. So that was my impression, and I never put any effort into looking into anything about him or even asking about him because I had no reason to. Well, apparently he wrote a book, or someone either someone wrote a book about him, or he wrote it. But there was a book that has already been released in Hebrew, I think from last year. And 
Robbie Straczynski, who runs the blog Card Player Life, uh, who's uh, I guess speaks English and Hebrew. Robbie Straczynski and Ilya Lezra got together and said, "Hey, you know, a lot of people would probably want to read your story, but can't read Hebrew. So why don't we translate it?" So Ilya Lezra does not write very well, so he could not write an English language book without it just sounding like really broken English. So Robbie Straczynski said, oh, you know, why don't I translate it for you? So that's what they did, and they approached 2 Plus 2 Publishing, which is the same 2 Plus 2 as the forum. It's owned by Mason Malmuth. And they said, hey, how would you like to publish Ellie's translated book? And Mason said, well, you know, let's think about it. We'll get back to you. So I, I don't know if Mason had heard anything about Ellie Lezra that wasn't very flattering or if he just decided to look into it. But I know that – I think what happened was he talked to David Skolansky. And then David said something like, well, I heard he owes money to people, so maybe we don't want to get involved. Like, for example, I heard he owes money to Sean Deeb. So apparently Mason went and asked – people that uh, he knew about the Elie Lezra owing money situation. Uh, and I guess what Mason claims is the people he asked, I think he asked David Gray, and I think he claims he asked Doyle, I don't know, but he claims he asked some third parties who claimed that the matter with Sean Deeb was taken care of and everything's fine. So at that point, Mason agreed to publish the book. Now, it's important to understand here that he didn't approach Sean Deeb directly, which is weird. Like, why doesn't Mason just get a hold of Sean Deeb or get a hold of someone who knows Sean Deeb to contact him and ask him and say, hey, does Elia Lezra owe you money? I mean, wouldn't you ask the source directly rather than ask third parties? Hey, does he owe Sean Deeb? How would they know? So I don't even think these people necessarily lied to Mason. I think they probably had the wrong information. Anyway... Um, it turned out he does owe Sean D, but that wasn't the big scandal here. That wasn't the, the biggest problem. But it, believing that Ellie didn't owe any money, probably too easily believing that, and not doing enough due diligence, once once they were aware that you know, Ellie might owe money and they didn't want to get involved if he did, you would think they would do more than just ask around, like, hey, does he owe money? Uh, no, I don't think he does. Oh, okay, that's good enough for me. That, that's pretty much what Mason did. So they went full speed ahead with it and published the book, put it on Amazon, where it is available right now. And in order to promote it, Mason suggested to Ellie that he does an Ask Me Anything thread. Now, again, Eli Elezra is not a forum guy. I don't know if he's ever made a forum post in his life prior to that threat. But I think Mason explained to him this will get interest on the 2 plus 2 forum and that probably other places will talk about it and lead people to that thread. And that, that is what happened at first. Mason verified that it was really Eli Elezra. It wasn't a fake account and that it wasn't asking me anything. And I saw on Twitter people directing... Others to go to that thread, not even like lackeys of Mason, but actually just people who found it interesting that Elia Lezra for the first time was on a forum answering questions. So at first it was going exactly as they hoped. It was getting a lot of attention. It was probably going to drive a lot more book sales. And 
things seemed to be going well, and Ellie Lesro was answering people's questions in a pretty timely fashion. He was not giving incredibly detailed answers. It was usually like one or two sentence answers. But still, he was answering most of the questions. Interestingly, he didn't answer my question. I asked, "Are you or were you Vict B? That's V I C T B on WSOP dot com before the merger with New Jersey, because that was the rumor that Vict B was him. And Vict B had a really weird play style. Like he did do open limping and stuff that I actually seen Ellie do, so it was believable. He didn't answer that one, which makes me wonder maybe, uh, maybe I I got that right there. But here here's how the thread started. Um, let me go to the original thread here. There's two threads now, which I'll explain shortly. The whole thing was a complete mess. So it's the thread was started on January 17th, exactly a week ago. And it was posted by Elia Lezra. It says, Elia Lezra confirmed. Hello, 2 plus 2. To help promote my autobiography, Pulling the Trigger, I'm here to answer any questions that anyone may have, so ask away, Ellie. And then... Mason responded minutes later because they were in the same office when this was done. Hi, everyone. This is a rare opportunity to ask an ultra-high-stakes player who's seen it all anything you like. Ellie has promised to answer any question, and don't forget his autobiography pulling the trigger, and he put his Amazon link. So it, it was very clear this was a promotion, but fine. You know, this was an opportunity to ask Ellie Lezra anything, which you couldn't normally do on forums because he's not a forum guy. So... As I said, this was going well, and and people asked questions like, uh, "Do you like Stud High and Stud Eight better than Hold'em or Omaha? Uh, were you happy or sad when Daniel Negreanu played in the big game? Uh, how much does Gus Hansen down lifetime in cash games, business or poker? Which do you enjoy more? Where did you originally get the money to play high stakes? Did you grind your way up? Uh, <laughs> did you ever get scammed by Chino? That's funny that." Considering what came out later, uh, did did he answer that one? I forget if if he did or not. Um, then there was someone did ask, as the eighteenth post in the thread, how much money do you owe? And someone else asked, how much are you in debt? So the, you can imagine where this was already going to be going. The amazing thing here is that it's not like this completely blindsided Mason. Mason either knew it himself or was told by David Skolansky that there were rumors about Ellie being broke and owing money and that uh, maybe they want to stay away from it. So you'd think that knowing this, that they would really make sure, if this was a concern, that he didn't. Because what else was going to happen in the Ask Me Anything thread? The, these rumors had gotten around. They had to imagine with the exposure 2 plus 2 has, it's not as active as it once was, but enough people will see it, especially with the attention brought to this thread, that people are going to come forward and ask questions what they heard, or maybe even people owed money will show up and say something. So this was this was a huge misstep on their part to either not verify either verify he's not owed money as as well as they can, or just not to do something like this. So you can, you know where this is going to end up going, that eventually that's going to become the focus. So for several pages it went on pretty unspectacularly. It was just questions being asked, him answering most of them, not all of them. But then someone showed up who changed everything. Someone with a good reputation, someone who used to be very active on 2 Plus 2, but 
since they've kind of hit the big time, so to speak, they don't really post on forums anymore. But this person made a cameo and returned to 2 plus 2 because the existence of this thread bothered them, especially what they had read in the thread. So in response to do you owe money, are you in debt, he said several times, he meaning Ellie, said several times, I pay my debts. I always pay my debts. He said things like that. And whenever anyone asked him, do you owe such and such? Do you, know, do you owe these people? Do you, know, do you still owe money to anyone? I pay my debts. I pay my debts. He just kept saying that. So people weren't thrilled about this, that uh, they weren't getting that much of an answer there. But all of his answers were kind of short, so it didn't really become a big problem until two days after the thread was started on January 19th. CTS, which stands for Cole T. South. Cole South is a pretty well-known player. A guy rumored to have $100 million worth of Bitcoin at one point when it was at its peak, though he claimed later that was a false rumor and that he had actually cashed out a lot of his Bitcoin long before the meteoric rise, but he did do very well, but not anywhere near what people think. But uh, anyway, Cole South who had last posted on 2 Plus 2 in February 2018. He has 7,700 posts on there, but this is a, he joined back in 05 when he was very young. Uh, now he's in his early 30s, and he's, uh, he's not a forum guy really anymore. But Cole couldn't stand seeing Ellie claiming he pays his debts. So Ellie, on January 19th at 6.27 p.m., which is about 48 hours after the thread was started, quoted one line from Elia Lesra saying, I always pay my debts. And this is what CTS wrote back, and this shook the whole thread. I really don't like to get involved in public drama, but I can't stay on the sidelines when I see something like this. Ellie borrowed 100 k from me during a cash game in Bobby's room on July 15th, 2010, towards the end of a long summer where we played a ton against each other and generally got along very well. At the end of the long session, one of the most seasoned high-stakes Vegas regulars pulled me aside and warned me what I did wasn't a good idea and not to do it again. How do you feel when you've loaned someone 100 k and then someone goes, uh, you just made a huge mistake. You're not going to see that again? Like, that's got to be a very empty feeling in the pit of your stomach. So he goes on to write, We didn't cross paths my final few days in Vegas that summer. Again, we're talking about 2010, eight and a half years ago. Over the course of the next year, he was responsive and whittled down the debt from 100K to 40K, a few grand at a time via full tilt transfers. Now, I'm going to pause here. Remember, full tilt was still operating for U.S. players, and people like Ellie were red pros there. They were getting monthly payments from full tilt. So this was in 2010, and every so often he was sending a few thousand off to Cole and getting the debt down from 100 to 40. So he says, uh, so a few grand at a time via full tilt transfer, which he still owes me. So 40K remains. By summer 2011, he had stopped making payments, but was still responsive with plenty of reasons why he couldn't, that is, couldn't continue paying. 
Since then, he's been basically non-responsive. I've sent him messages every now and then when he's hit a big tournament score and he's ignored them. The only time I get a response was when we're both in Vegas playing the same tournament and, and he asked me not to make a public scene about it. I still have screenshots of texts and other evidence, but would like to give him a chance to respond before sharing more. Oh my goodness. So this sounds pretty convincing. Cole South is a reliable person. He's always had a good reputation. He's always been a straight shooter. It is true that he's not a big drama guy. And it's very likely that when he posts something like this, that it's either 100% true or very close to 100%. And the only reason it wouldn't be 100 is because maybe the memory wouldn't be perfect. But this has got to be either the whole truth or pretty damn close. Very simply, Ellie borrowed 100 k couldn't pay it, slowly paid 60 k down over the next year or so, stopped making payments, and then for the past... Uh, seven and a half years has refused to respond to him even when he's hit big tournament scores so Cole says I, I don't want to get involved in the drama here but I kind of have to because I'm seeing him right I always pay my debts and that's not true he owes me and is ignoring me so this shook the thread big time and this made Ellie looked bad, and then it presented Mason with a problem. What does he do now? Does he still keep promoting the book? Because uh, presumably in the book there's nothing about owing money, or maybe he even wrote that he always pays his debts. It's not – I haven't seen the book. But uh, it seems like at that point a book from a high-stakes poker player who frames himself as a big winner and uh, – a success story in business and all that, who's actually broke and can't even pay 40K over eight and a half years, uh, that pretty much makes the entire book into fiction. And Mason had to know that, and if he didn't know that, people were telling him that in the threat. People were jumping all over Ellie, jumping all over Mason about this whole situation. So everybody was also waiting to see if Ellie was going to respond. And conveniently, Ellie, for some time, did not come back. So, Mason had to respond, finally. And he claimed that he didn't know about the Cole South debt at the time of the agreement to publish the book, which is probably true. And, uh, you know, that, that he, from what he had heard at the time when they agreed to publish, that everything was satisfied. So finally, Ellie showed up after a lot of pressure and a lot of complaints, and maybe Mason even asked him to show up because a lot of people are saying, oh, isn't this convenient? Now now it's asked me anything except about my debt, and then I'm going to run away. That's c- kind of what the threat really was. It was very embarrassing. Hey, everybody, ask me anything. Hey, uh, what about the 40K you owe me? Okay, bye, everyone. Like that, That's pretty much what happened. So finally, after... A long 28 hours passed, 29 hours, between those you know, since Cole South's post, which doesn't sound very long, but keep in mind, Ellie Lesra was logging in and reading. People could see that. 
someone even took a funny screenshot of him reading another thread about, I guess there was a thread from a few years ago about him owing Sean Deeb. So it showed Ellie reading that thread, but yet not responding to the Cole South or anyone else. And that made him look bad. So finally he showed up. January 20th at 11.39 p.m., he made his one and only response to this whole thing. Thank you, Mason, for your replies. I appreciate it. What happened with Cole and I goes back to the full tilt days. He has a very different understanding than I do of what we agreed on back then. It was a private conversation and is not something I will address here or on any public forum. This is the last time I'll be addressing this issue on this thread. Cole, you are welcome to contact me and we can discuss how to resolve our differences. I'm happy to stay on the thread a little longer and keep answering any genuine questions people have about me, my life, the book, etc. That's all for now. What a crappy response. First of all, he says, this is the last time I'll be addressing this issue. You didn't address it. You just said this is a private matter. I'm not addressing it. And then you say it's a private conversation. It's not something we'll address here. Well, it's been addressed. It's, it's been brought out. Whenever someone is accused publicly of scamming and their response is, oh, this is a private matter. I, I want to talk privately with that person. This isn't for the public to know. Well, yes, it is. Well, if you've been accused of scamming, wouldn't you want to clear your name? Wouldn't you want the public to know that you're not broke and ripping people off? If you didn't do this, if, you, if, if Cole calls you out with this detailed story about how you borrowed 100K, claiming you could pay it you know, very quickly, then you don't. Then you slowly get him 60% of it and then disappear for the last 40% for the last seven and a half years and ignore communication. Wouldn't you want to put out there, no, this never happened. I never ignored him. Here's what happened. Here's what I really owe or don't owe. Here's why it is. Why are you saying this about me, Cole? It's not true. How dare you drag my name through the mud like this? Here's the real truth. That's what anyone would do who's innocent here. The guilty person would say, oh, no, 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 no. This is private. No, I'm not discussing this in public. It's a private conversation. That always means the person's guilty. Always. I can't think of one time where the person was innocent but then didn't want to clear their name after it's been brought public. The innocent person always wants to clear their name if they've been accused in public. That's natural. That's human nature. There's no reason not to. There's no downside to it. And then he says, I'm happy to stay on the thread a little longer, keep answering any genuine questions. What, so asking about a debt you owe that you've been dodging for eight and a half years is not genuine? It sounds very genuine to me. I think he genuinely wants his money back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think that was the most genuine question on the whole thread. Hey, what about my 40K that you've owed me for seven and a half years and have dodged me and will not answer my messages? That's the most gen- That's a lot more genuine than do you prefer stud eight over Hold'em? Unbelievable. So that, that's, that's the last thing he posted. So Cole South had a response. And this is the last thing Cole posted. And, and when Cole said he didn't want drama, he's serious. This is just not a guy who enjoys going back and forth like this. So he was just so enraged he had to say something. So then he was, he felt at least he had to give one response because basically Ellie was calling him a liar here. So then Cole South posted about seven hours later at 6.23 a.m. on January 21st. I've sent you plenty of messages and you have completely ignored them for the past 
the past five plus years, despite plenty of tournament scores and constantly playing high profile live cash games. How am I supposed to resolve this privately? It's been almost nine years. I've moved on. I wasn't planning on bringing this up in public. But when someone sends me a link where you're promoting a book saying you always pay your debts, that's just too much. I'd certainly be interested in hearing your understanding. And people understanding in quotes. There is very little to the situation. You borrowed 100K from me in a Bobby's Room cash game, slowly paid back 60K of it, and then stopped responding to any communication. You've never disputed any of this to me. This is one of the last times I received a response over a year after Black Friday and Full Tilt was shut down, which had zero to do with anything. And then he posted a text message that he received from Elia Lezra, October 12, 2012. This is from Ellie to Cole. Hi, Cole. Long time since I see you last. Are you done with poker? I don't see you around tournament or online. Anyway, thing in Vegas for my business got from bed to worth banks, took a lot of my properties away. So, as you see, this is a very broken English. I'm going to try to translate here. By the way, this also shows that the responses that Ellie was giving must have been going through a third party. Because when Ellie was responding in the thread, the English was fine. And yet in this thing, it's like someone who can barely write English. So I think he's probably, he was probably posting these responses through someone, maybe through Robbie Strudinsky. I don't know. On, on this. It doesn't really matter much if you had a translator, but whatever. But I'll try to translate these. He's trying to say, uh, Hi, Cole. Long time, see, long time since I saw you last. Are you done with poker? Um, I, I don't see you in tournaments, and I don't see you playing online. I should have been the translator. Um, anyway, uh, things for my business went from bad to worse. He said bed to worth. <laughs> bed to worth, not bad to worse bed to worth but anyway things for my business went from bad to worse the banks took a lot of my properties away then he this is what he writes in the broken english and the reason you steal s-t-e-e-l see me playing is because i'm i'm ben stake by an and rich israeli guy that's pretty obvious the reason you still see me playing is because a rich israeli guy is staking me but steal i will be beck b-e-c-k so he's turning into the singer beck now uh, hoping soon and would be able to start some payment THX for thanks. So he's saying, but still I'll be back soon, I hope, and I'll start being able to pay you again. Thanks. That, that's, so that was a response he got in October 2012, over two years after the money was loaned, and well over a year after the last payment. Just very simply saying, business has been terrible, the bank even took some of my properties away, I'm able to play because I'm being staked, and, and you know, I'll get back on my feet soon, and I'll pay you then. Never paid. So that's the last thing Cole said. Someone suggested, why don't you get Cole on the show? So I said, okay. I tried. I asked Cole if he would like to come on to uh, Poker Fraudulent Radio, and I explained to Cole that I was not going to um, be hostile. I was not going to be skeptical that it was going to be a very friendly interview that I'm on his side and I completely believe him. But what he wrote to me was, thanks for the message and vote of confidence. Being in the spotlight is just personally stressful for me and I'm not interested in getting more involved in the public drama. And 
Unsurprisingly, I haven't heard from Ellie privately, but thanks for the offer. It's not something I would have brought up at all until he had the nerve to do this ridiculous ask me anything about how much he's won playing poker and how his debts are always paid. That was a private message to me, but you know nothing was that private there, so I read it. I believe him. Uh, I know that's just not his personality type. Like he doesn't want to come on radio and, and trash Ellie. He just this is kind of a soft-spoken guy who doesn't like being in controversies and drama, and just couldn't keep quiet when he saw this was going on. But uh, at the same time, doesn't want to just keep doing it. So fine, I can respect that. So I would have loved to have him on here talking about it, but I, I think it's pretty self-explanatory what's happening. I, I'm pretty sure every listener here believes. Cole's story. Now, what about Ellie's excuse that he really is broke, his business has failed, and the only reason he can play high-stakes poker and high buy-in tournaments is that he's staked by a guy with a lot of money in Israel and that uh, the money he has in front of him is not representative of what he really has. He didn't say this directly, but maybe he's in makeup. Maybe Ellie's in such makeup that everything he wins has to go to the staker. So no matter how high you see him play, this is not really his money. What about that excuse? Well, first of all, uh, I don't know if that's true. There's something that's bringing him to these games, and it wouldn't surprise me if he does have some guy in Israel staking him. But he's got to be getting something out of it. I don't think Ellie would keep playing and playing and playing if he's just in such makeup that he can't ever keep a dollar of what he wins. I, I just, I've just i heard that Ellie has a lot of debts, and Sean D., by the way, since then has clarified that the debts are not fully paid, that he also was partially paid, and that it persists. I think there's a lot of debts. Usually, it's when one guy comes forward and says, this person owes me money, it's rare they're the only guy. It's rare the first person they owe money to is the one coming forward. Usually by the time someone comes forward, especially many years later like this, there's a ton of people owed money. So think if you're a guy, a degenerate gambler, who owes a lot of money to a lot of people. To where just the thought of being able to pay that all back just seems almost impossible. Uh, you kind of just tune it all out. I'm not defending it. I think it's terrible. But uh, I, you, you kind of just start tuning it all out. Because, you know, what, what if you owe 20 people and you pay one back in full? What is that going to do for your rep? You still owe 19 people who are going to be breathing down your throat and ruining your rep. So what, you think to yourself, why, why pay back that person? And you think about yourself. You don't have that much money anymore. You, you're barely getting by. And when you do play poker, it's on a stake. So... You just feel like, you know, one day, if I do really well and get a lot of money to my name to where I can pay everybody off, I'll pay everybody off. Until then, uh, everybody's going to have to wait. And that's the mindset of a lot of these guys who borrow money and never pay back. When you're one of the people who's owed, you see them with a lot of money in front of them. You see them making a tournament score. uh, You you see them living pretty well, and and you think, well... Why aren't they just paying me with this money? Well, it's because it's not just you. And again, this is not defending these guys who owe money, these scammers. I'm just telling you how they think. I'm telling you why they are not 
you know, people saying, oh, well, 40K, it's only 40K, why, why can't he just pay the 40K and be done? Because there's tons of people he owes money to, that's why. Because he won't be done. It's probably millions till he's done. So that's why these debts persist. Now, sometimes if someone is very, very persistent and makes a big headache of themselves to the person who owes them, sometimes that person will pay just to get them off their back. If someone owes you money from poker and you just sit and, de- and say and do nothing, you're never going to get that money back. They're never going to come to you and pay you the money. Maybe if they really, really, really can't come into tons of money one day and they decide to make it right with everybody. Other than that, you're never getting it. Some people said, well, now this has been made public. Why didn't Ellie save this hit to his reputation and just... You know, find 40k somewhere and pay Cole. Well, because he knows people will come out. People will come forward and say, "Hey, what about me? Well, what about me too?" Yeah, he paid Cole. He didn't pay me anything. Like he knows that's going to happen. He knows Sean D's going to say something. He knows tons of other people will say something if Cole gets paid. So it's not going to do him any good, reputation-wise. Now, the solution to this is not to let yourself get in this in the first place. You you never borrow money from someone under false pretenses. Cole would have never loaned him that 100000 if he knew he was loaning him money that he didn't have to pay back. What happens is these high-stakes players are in Bobby's room. They're playing each other. One of them isn't doing well, goes broke, doesn't have money in their box at, at the Bellagio, and says, hey, you know, I've got a lot of money in my bank account. I just don't have money here physically on me at the Bellagio, or, nor can I access it very quickly. So give me hundred k, and I'll pay you back tomorrow. Within the next few days, whatever, I'll get the money out, they'll pay. That's what Cole thought it was. He didn't think this is going to be something that's going to drag out. It's not like they had an agreement where, uh, where every few weeks he gets a few thousand dollars on full tilt. He would have never done it. He was led to believe, as is the case with most of these loans, that they're super temporary just because the person doesn't have the money on them at the card room. It's funny because I'm actually one of the guys who does have the money on me at the card room. And I've never felt comfortable asking anyone I don't know really, really well to loan me money if I bust and don't have it on me. In those cases, I'll just leave, actually. I, 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 I leave instead of trying to ask people, hey, because I know these happen so often, and I don't want to put someone in the uncomfortable position of trying to judge whether I have the money or if I'm just trying to roll them in some way. So I, I, even though I'm someone who totally can and would pay them back, in the time frame I would claim. I don't even do it because I, I would, it just feels awkward to do. Especially knowing that things like this happen all the time. But Ellie was using his reputation as a successful businessman who plays high stakes poker that where 100K seems like nothing to him. So for those of you who are kind of jealous of these high stakes poker players, and you wish you could live their lifestyle and play in the games they play. A lot of it is not real. A lot of these people in these games don't have very much money or any money or their net worth is actually negative. And they're just staked by somebody. They owe tons of money. That's, that's a fact of life. That's a fact of poker. And the problem is a lot of them hide behind a reputation of either being a big winner or being successful outside of poker. 
or something like that, where it seems like the amount of money being loaned to them is inconsequential. When T.J. Cloutier was taking all those loans from people, he would take like loans for twelve hundred bucks from people. So not even live. I heard I heard he was taking like three figure loans from people, and they go, "Oh, T.J. Cloutier, of course he could pay me back five hundred bucks." Nope, they never got the money back. T.J. would take it to the craft pit and lose it. Why? Because he, at the time he was one of the highest cashing tournament players of all time. So don't don't ever be fooled into believing that a player who's reported to be successful or rich outside of poker that just needs to borrow money from you temporarily really has it. And if you question it, they always act indignant. What? You think I don't have this money? Do you see what stakes I play? Do you know anything about me? You really think I couldn't pay that? You really think I'm asking you for a loan that I wouldn't be able to pay? Do you know anything about me? Like they, they get mad that you like you just insulted their mother. But it's false indignance. The, the truth is that they are broke and they're asking you for money in most cases because they don't have it. In a few cases, it's because they really just don't have it on them. But unless you know the person really, really, really well, you shouldn't loan it to them. So that, that's what happened here. So, okay. At this point, what happens? Let's get back to the Ellie situation. What happens now? What happens now? The book is out. What should Mason do? So a big debate started on 2 plus 2. By the way, someone's saying in chat that TJ was actually good at poker, Ellie not so much. That's probably a good characterization here. It does seem like the legend of Ellie Elezra has worn off as a result of this thread. It's kind of come out that he actually isn't that good, <laughs> that he's probably a big-time losing player over the years. But let's get back to this situation on 2 plus 2, and then what is Mason and 2 plus 2 publishing? What, what should they do at this point? So there was some back and forth about this. Now, I had to decide what was I going to do as far as my involvement in the thread. Do I get involved? Do I criticize 2 plus 2 at all or Mason? Like, what do I do here? I have kind of a strange thing going on with Mason these days. Some of you remember last year when Mason's lawyer was hassling me about copy and pasted posts from 2 plus 2 on Poker Fraud Alert, which I asserted correctly, by the way, was okay because the posts I was copying and pasting were not owned by 2 plus 2. In fact, they say that in their own terms of service, that they don't own the content that people post. And they do that to absolve themselves of liability. If someone posts something that's illegal, that is not owned by them. So they can't have it both ways. They can't absolve themselves of liability, but then say they own the posts when somebody reproduces them. The posts are the property of the post authors, and never once have I had someone come to me and say, hey, don't repost this on Poker Fraud Alert. So I was telling his lawyer that, but his lawyer, you know, when lawyers talk to someone who's not a lawyer, they, they never want to concede anything. They act like, no, you don't know. You're not the lawyer. I'm the lawyer. I know it's, you know, that's the type of conversation we had. The conversation was not like super contentious, but at the same time, we weren't 
seeing eye to eye, so to speak. We talked about this last year on the show. We ended up coming to an agreement at the end, just just to prevent the hassle. I, I didn't want the hassle of a whole lawsuit over this. It just wasn't worth it. But at the same time, I wasn't going to just back down and do everything they're demanding because uh, that I was not going to be bullied into. So I, I eventually something was proposed that uh, I thought was fair enough, and that was that, that uh, we can copy and paste uh, basically you know, the initial post or one post uh, from there. You know, per topic going on, and then put a link to it, and then go on from there talking about it. And that we're not going to reproduce you know multiple posts from the threads, and and that's pretty much it. And that the same thing applies to the other way on poker that they can't copy all the poker fraud alert posts and reproduce that they can copy one post from poker fraud alert. Basically, the same thing applies both ways. So that's what we agreed to. Also, as part of the agreement, which actually they suggested, not me, is that I would get unbanned on two plus two which I thought was weird. I thought there was no chance of that, but they, they offered to me to unban me, which was weird. But I said, okay, fine. I, yeah, fine. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, unban me. And I, I also agree to my, I'm not going to you know, criticize this tennis charity anymore. There's, there's some personal things back and forth. We just kind of agreed to off the record too. That wasn't part of the official agreement, but and it was all done by email. I didn't sign anything. It was just kind of like an email informal agreement that we made to, rectify this and that was that probably cost mason a decent sum of money because i had a lot of long conversations with this attorney which cost him a pretty penny because it's an expensive firm it's called a greenberg traurig Uh, but anyway the weird thing about mason wanting me back on there is that since i've come back uh he trashes me and like I go back and forth with him. I don't just take it. I, he, he trashes me. I respond back and trash him. And we go back and forth. And, it's so, and I say trashing like we're not doing like, like just personal insults. Like we're not insulting the way each other look or things like that. But it's basically questioning each other's character back and forth constantly. Questioning each other's credibility constantly. And I, I don't want to do it. I just When I post there, I'm, I'm posting about some kind of important topic, or some, some kind of scam going on or whatever. That's what I post about there mainly. But and then he'll like interrupt, and say hi everyone, and he'll make this like passive aggressive post, calling my credibility into question when it's not even about him. Like I'm talking about some scammer, and Mason knows I'm probably right what I'm saying. He's like, hi, you may not want to trust Todd because of this, this, and this he said once. And like so, you 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 can see if you read his post, it's very very clear that he harbors tons of resentment towards me, and and for stupid reasons, really stupid reasons that I won't go into. But he he just holds a grudge that just never ends. I don't even know why he wanted me back there. I didn't even ask to come back. They, they, his lawyer suggested it to me that I come back. It was a really weird conversation. But, but just recently, a few days before this whole Elie Lezer thing happened, Mason jumped in a thread where I was helping out some guy. Actually, the guy we talked about last week who had the money stolen from him by five dimes. I was trying to help him in that thread on 2 plus 2. And Mason jumped in basically saying not to trust me. I'm going, what the heck? So anyway, thinking of that, I said, you know what? If Mason's going to jump into threads that have nothing to do with him and question my credibility, then, you know what? I'm going to have to bring something up. So with so many people questioning him continuing to publish the Elia Lezra book after these revelations came out, the, the people who were making the point that he shouldn't publish it were saying, look, this... 
you're publishing this under the 2 plus 2 name and yet nothing in there is true. Obviously, it's a work of fiction if Ellie's going to present himself to be one way and from what we're reading here, he seems to be another. So it's, the whole book isn't credible anymore. That's what people were saying. Not me. That's what people were saying before I even got involved. So people were asking, why are you publishing a book by a known scammer? So I said, I don't see why you guys are surprised that he's posting a book by a known scammer. Because since 2010, Mason has been publishing a book by a known cheater. Nick Stocks Trader Gredzian was caught colluding and multi-accounting on PokerStars in 2010, very shortly after his book was released through 2 Plus 2 Publishing. So Nick published a book through 2 Plus 2, or 2 Plus 2 published Nick's book. And then very shortly after that, it was found that Nick was a colluder and multi-accounter, and it was proved pretty conclusively with hard numbers. And Nick was banned from PokerStars, and Nick left the poker world in shame. He disappeared forever very shortly after that from poker. This is a guy very involved in poker prior to that. So Nick knew he was caught and left in shame. That book is still published and available on Amazon to this day. So I said, you shouldn't be surprised Mason's publishing that because he's still publishing a book by a cheater. So Mason and I went back and forth and then some mods jumped on me saying, you know, how can you question this with a type of content on your site, blah, blah, blah. They always fall back on that. The mods and Mason and other Mason ass kissers there, they love to fall back on that that Poker Fraud Alert is a free speech sort of site. So there's a lot of content allowed on Poker Fraud Alert's Flying Stupidity Forum that wouldn't be allowed on other forums. Now, I, I, I don't let it be taken to an extreme, but at the same time, I don't like censoring people's views, even if they're offensive. I don't like censoring people's languages, language if it's offensive. People may write things I don't agree with. People may use language or terms or epithets I don't agree with, but I don't censor it because I want everyone to be themselves in that section of the forum. It's kind of a mostly free speech area. So that's the way the forum is run. It's not like they can point to posts that I have made that are reprehensible. No, I don't post things like that. I don't agree with a lot of things that are posted on my forum, but I give people the forum to post that. So whether you agree with that moderation tactic or not, uh, that has nothing to do with anything I was criticizing with Mason, but they love to jump on that. So that was that was being cited, and I'm being attacked by all his mods there. It, 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 that became like a little side thing back and forth. But this did provoke a debate about should they pull Ellie's book based upon what they've learned. And... That'll actually be a separate topic we're going to have on the show right after this one. But let me finish this story about Ellie first before we talk about what 2 plus 2 should have done. So here was a post by David Skolansky about what he claimed. I'm sorry, I'm skipping over something here. I'm skipping over something very big. Someone messaged me yesterday in the morning something that really surprised me. And that was 
the bombshell Elio Ezra thread that started out as Ask Me Anything and then turned into Cole South calling him out as a scammer. And then Ellie responding reluctantly and then Cole South tearing that response apart. And then everyone bashing Ellie and people questioning why the book's still being published. That entire thread was deleted. Now that's very unlike 2 plus 2. 2 plus 2 does have censorship, but they, they've prided themselves as being the place where scammers are exposed and they've done such good for the poker community and blah, blah, blah. They, they've, they've been so proud of how so many scammers have been exposed on 2 plus 2 and that when the scammers demand that the, site, that the threads get deleted, that they won't do it. So why would this be deleted? Just because he's one of their authors? By the way, there is some history with that. Uh, in 2010, when the whole Stocks Trader scandal was being brought out, they kept deleting those threads too. And they were claiming they were doing it because the people bringing forth the accusations were not well-known users. They weren't reliable. And the threads kept being deleted over and over until finally someone contacted Viffer. Yes, the same Viffer, David Pete, And he came out and said, look, I don't post much out here, but... I've heard about these accusations at Stocks Trader. Please don't delete these messages. It's true. You know, it's really happening. I know people who are very reliable who are accusing this. And you may say the people who started the previous threads aren't known and you're afraid might be fake. Well, I'm not fake. Here I am. I'm putting my name behind this. So leave it. So finally, they're kind of shamed into leaving it. And then the whole thing blew up there. And then it turned out to be the truth. So they, yes, they do protect their authors. And they, they don't like to talk about it, but they do. They did it with Stock Trader, and they, they were doing it here. They deleted a thread for uh, which they started asking me anything, then the wrong questions are asked about him owing money, then the thread gets deleted. Unbelievable. So as you can imagine, this backfired big time. This is really a case where the cover-up's worse than the crime. Up till that point, a lot of people were defending Mason, saying, look, you know, so what if he's publishing a book by a known scammer? Maybe it's interesting. Maybe it's worth reading. Even if it's all fiction, even if the guy is making up stories, so let, you know, let, let the work stand on its own. Why, why blame the publisher? So some people were of that opinion. But just about nobody agreed that the thread should be deleted. And people said that was shady. They thought 2 plus 2 was above that. This looks really bad. A lot of people got all over them for this. Now, Mason tried to spin this by starting a new thread called New Elezra Book Thread, started January 23rd at 5.17 a.m. Hi, everyone. Ellie has informed us that he won't answer any more questions. Yeah, that's a shock. And has asked to take the Ask Me Anything thread down. We have done so. If any of you want to comment on his book, Pulling the Trigger, you could do so here. And also feel free to make any other comments that are within our posting guidelines. Best wishes, Mason. So people couldn't believe this. So he starts a thread, ask me anything. People ask him things, true things, apparently, that make him look bad. He says, I'm not going to answer any more questions, delete the thread, and Mason does it. Wow. These are his own words. Ellie has informed us that he won't answer any more questions, and that he asked to take the thread, ask me anything, down. We have done so. Wow. Well... David Skolansky, after a lot of backlash on this, posted something that uh, 
contradicted that. You gonna say something, Terry Risky? Nope. Okay. <laughs> I, heard. I just actually hit the wrong button. Okay. Okay. No, I, you're welcome to say something. Here. Um, yeah. So you know, and unfortunately, that oh, I got to find. The th- I had up a David Skolansky post, but it was the wrong one. I, I never have up what I want to have up here. That is pretty insane. He deleted it. Oh, it's really insane. I mean, I, I and didn't just and just just talk about it. You know, just post. So you know, cat. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah, let's take it down. So we took it down. Yeah, we took it down. Any, any new comments that are within the posting guidelines, go ahead and ask. But yeah, it's, it's gone. It's we, we took it. He doesn't answer. Ask, he doesn't want to answer anymore. So we just deleted all the previous questions and answers too. That, that happened to be accusing him of scamming, and he happens to be one of our authors. But yeah, it's totally the way it goes. So. Uh, then, so Mason also responded further when people were. Uh, let, me, let me get to this here. I was. I should have had all this up before, but I had thought I had copied and saved this stuff. But uh, let me find uh, what I wanted to highlight because, as you can imagine, there was a lot of anger about this, and Mason tried to talk his way out of it. And uh, let me. There's some things that he said and David Skolansky then said, which totally contradicted each other. Totally. Which I even pointed out and said that these things can't be true. They they can't both be true. So let me get to this here. Um, this is the problem with a live show. If this is a non-live show, I could just pause it. And then make it seem like I had it already. Okay, so here's here's what Skolansky posted. And by, by the way, by later that day, they restored it after the huge backlash. So it wasn't permanently deleted. It was just taken away from view, from public view. So they restored the thread. So it is back. You can go read the thread now. But there was still the question, why did they delete it? And why is this so different than any other thread where scamming accusations take place? Why are they not deleted, but Ellie's thread was? Why does the scammer have the right to ask for that? So this is what Skolansky posted. 12.39 p.m. January 23rd. I am to blame for the Ask Me Anything thread being deleted. Hmm. Now that's not what Mason said. Mason said that Ellie Lezra asked it to be deleted. He said, Mason had no intention of doing it, he was only going to lock it after getting Ellie's request, and even that was only because it made no sense to say, ask me anything if it wasn't going to be answered. Come on. You still shouldn't lock it. Why? Yes, if it was just a, a mundane ask me anything, and then the guy said, okay, I'm done, thank you, everyone, then it makes sense to close it. Not when reliable scamming accusations come to light. Then people should have a right to discuss it, even if the guy's not going to answer anymore. You lock an Ask Me Anything thread if it's just kind of a regular old Ask Me Anything thread where nothing really controversial happens and the guy's leaving. But not here. Anyway, going on. Not being familiar with the ins and outs and norms of forums, I thought there was mainly only a technical difference between the actions, that is, locking and deleting it, since any criticisms could simply be reposted here. (laughs) Why the laughter? Listen to this again. This is David talking about himself. Not being familiar with the ins and outs and norms of forums. What? 
David Skolansky, it says, join date, August 2002. Number of posts, 14,744, and he's unfamiliar with forums? <laughs> That's his excuse? Oh, I don't really know forums too well. I, I thought locking and deleting it, like most of you would see, is the same thing. So if I only knew forums better, you know, I, I've only been on here for 16 and a half years. I've only made 15,000 posts. You know, I bet... After I've been on here for 33 years and have made 30,000 posts, I bet by then I will know forums well. How can that be the excuse? How can that possibly be the excuse you don't know forums well? You, you're not familiar with the ins and outs of forums when you run a forum, when you are someone who's posted almost 15,000 times on the forum, when you've been on the forum for 16 and a half years? You're not familiar with the ins and outs and norms of forums? <laughs> what? So he says, and thinking that, I thought deleting the thread was the right thing to do simply for the personal reason that Ellie started the thread at Mason's suggestion. In other words, I was thinking along the lines of, here's a guy unfamiliar with 2 plus 2 that's being told it's a good idea to put in an ask me, anything, ask me Anything thread. Don't forget that Mason didn't know about the Cole Sal thing at the time. And when the thread does not deliver the results to Ellie that Mason implied it would, we all of a sudden say essentially, too bad, guess you shouldn't have taken our advice. Once it's up, it stays up. Yes, you should say that. <laughs> you, you, he agrees to do an Ask Me Anything. It comes out that he's a scammer. He implied otherwise to you and stated otherwise to you when asked about it. Then you guys do the thread. Then it comes out that he is a scammer and he wasn't truthful with you. Now he wants it whitewashed? Say no. Say, look, Ellie, if you rip people off and didn't want to admit it to us and then we do Ask Me Anything and someone asks you about it, and you don't like it, tough luck. We're not removing it. That's what they should have said. So as I said, it was for a personal rather than a business reason that the thread originally came down, along with my ignorance of the ramifications of that. Come on, David. David Skolansky is ignorant that you delete a controversial thread about one of their authors that there's going to be ramifications? What do you think people are going to say? Oh, okay, you deleted it? Well, I guess since he's not answering questions anymore, we might as well wipe the whole thing that made him look bad. We're all okay with that. What is that what he thought would happen? It's amazing he's trying to sell this story to people. If that was Ellie himself who had suggested the thread, deleting it would have never been considered. Mason reluctantly went along with this argument, an argument that even I would not have made had I known that there was that much difference between the two actions. <laughs> So, I, that's just insane. That, that's the dumbest explanation. Now, now, where this contradicts Mason is, is as follows. Let me, uh, I actually brought this up there. I'll read directly what I wrote there on 2 plus 2, where I talked about the complete contradiction, because there was one. Because they're giving you two different, completely, completely different stories. So Mason said, we felt that since it was Ellie's thread, he had the right to have it deleted. And Davis Golansky said, if it was Ellie himself who had suggested the thread, deleting it would have never been considered. What? So Mason saying that since it's his thread... 
if he wants it deleted, fine, we'll, we'll delete it. David's saying, oh, we wouldn't even consider deleting if it was his threat. What? <laughs> it's impossible for both of them to be telling the truth. So here's what I really think happened. You know, people were accusing them of, of covering this up for uh, book sales to be better. I think it's along the lines of this. And I'll never know for sure. I'm not in Mason's head. I'm not in David's head. I didn't hear the conversations between them and Ellie. But this is my guess. And again, it's just a guess. I don't have inside information about this. I'm just guessing it from observing everything. I think that Mason and David truly and naively believed that Ellie had taken care of whatever debts there were. I thought they. I think they believed this when they started to ask me anything. Kind of naively, they didn't do their due diligence, but uh, they thought they did, but they didn't. But that's what they thought, and I, I believe they were totally not aware of the Cole South thing. And they think I think they believed the the Sean Deeb thing was solved, and they didn't think there were other incidents like this. So I think that's the way they felt when the threat started. When the Cole South accusation came, I think they both believed it, and then they thought, "Oh crap, what do we do?" And then they probably said to Ellie, look, you know, you've, you've got to come out here and say something. That just silence isn't good. It makes it look like you're guilty. And Ellie's probably saying, look, I don't want to do it. I don't want to get involved. It's a personal matter. And then look, look Ellie, you know, we got in this, in this project with you together. Please come out and say something. Please don't just make it look like you're avoiding it. Otherwise, you look guilty. So Ellie came out, posted that terrible response saying it's a private matter. Obviously, that didn't satisfy anybody. Ellie saw it was getting worse and worse. He's, he's reading the thread, seeing it's going terribly. People are going on Amazon and trashing the book and the reviews there without even having ordered it just to piss off Ellie. So I think at that point, Ellie said, can't you just delete it? Can you just get rid of it? it it's bothering me. I wouldn't have done this in the first place if I knew this is the way the, the forum would treat me. I didn't know it was going to go this way. I thought it was just going to be a fun thing. And I think out of a combination of, number one, not wanting book sales to be hurt, and number two, wanting Ellie off their backs, they deleted it. And they rationalized to themselves that they're not covering for a scammer, but rather they're just removing an ill-advised promotional thread. That this this whole thread was to promote the book, the promotion turned into uh, a big... uh, Anger fest at Ellie over past debts, and that since they started this for the purpose of promotion, they're just going to remove it, and all they're doing is really removing a promotional piece of material. I think that's the way they saw it. And they, they may have felt like, hey, we, we convinced Ellie this is a good idea, and then it backfired, and now we're not helping him out afterwards. So they may have felt like it was their obligation to help him, and he probably kept saying that. He probably kept saying, I didn't want to do this. This is you telling me to do it. you telling me this is what we should do, that you, you know forums well. How could you have screwed up? And I think they also felt stupid that they suggested this threat. I think they realized afterwards this threat was a huge mistake and that they kind of wanted to correct it. Not that they felt bad for Ellie, but that they did suggest doing it, and now they look like fools for suggesting that to him. So I think they reasoned to themselves, hey, we'll remove the promotional thread and then we'll, we'll give the opportunity to everyone on the forum to continue commenting if they want. But at least the real bad stuff is gone. And we've satisfied Ellie. This way we can say to Ellie, Ellie, okay, we removed your thread promoting your book. Now any thread about you is a separate thread brought up by our users. We can't do anything about that. And I think that's what they thought was going to go over okay. 
not realizing that deleting something like that pisses people off worse than any of this stuff. So they reversed it. They removed it. Uh, they undeleted it. Now, Mason has actually gotten back the faith of a lot of his posters. Not all, a lot of people still are angry about this, but a number of people have since turned around because Mason put together a well-orchestrated post that was uh, half an excuse and half a mea culpa. That's the closest you're going to ever get from Mason. This is what he wrote. Hi, everyone. The purpose of this point of this post is to address the issues that surround our recently published book, Pulling the Trigger, the Autobiography of Poker Pro Elia Lezra. Needless to say, this has been a highly negative experience for us, and it has damaged not only my personal reputation, but that of 2 plus 2 as well, which is interesting because he was denying to me this, this was hurting his reputation but uh, when we went back and forth, but whatever. Now he's acknowledging it has. Early in this project, in May of 2018, I sat down with Ellie and Robbie Straczynski, the translator of the book, to discuss a, pu- a possible publication. One of the questions I asked was about owing money relative to Sean Deeb. The answer I got was that everything's now in proper order, and if needed, Ellie could get a statement from Sean saying this. Well, th- why didn't they then? Uh, we now know that uh, while Ellie has paid some of the money back to Sean, he still has more to go. Also, with hindsight, it's clear I was too trusting in this area. Since this is an entertainment book, it meant that we would have to do more promotion than we usually do. Thus, the Ask Me Anything thread. And for the Ask Me Anything thread, it was explained to Ellie on several occasions that there would be questions he probably wouldn't like, particularly about owing money. But he said there would be no problem if he was enthusiastic about starting the thread. This included coming to our office and meeting with Matt Skolansky and myself, where we again told him the above to launch the thread. Everything was going well, and, well, and the sales rank on Amazon improved dramatically. Then came the first Cole South post, which told about money-owing issue we knew nothing about. And Cole had every right to post this. We tried to get Ellie to answer, but he wouldn't and became angry with all the negative posts. As for whether Ellie owes others, his actual debt situation other than Sean Deeb and Cole South is not clear to us, but no one else, as far as we know, is complaining. As far as book sales, they are, in my opinion, now ruined, and my estimate is that 2 plus 2 will lose at least $18,000 on the project, plus several hundred hours that I spent on it that are now also wasted. In addition, there are also other authors, who, plus a translator, who work diligently on this project. Their time and effort should now be ruined as well. Well, whose fault is that? It's partially Ellie's fault, of course, and partially your fault for not doing better due diligence on the person who's uh, authoring this book. This wasn't that hard to find, especially since you heard about Sean Deeb beforehand. You never even asked Sean Deeb directly. Here, Ellie offered to get a statement from Sean Deeb, and he said, oh, no, no, that's okay, I believe you. Whose fault is that, Mason? Anyway, going on, he wrote, As for the idea of sending Ellie's royalties to Cole, first, we expect his royalties now to be tiny. Second, it would be a breach of our contract. And third, as far as sending royalties to Cole, obviously that would be Ellie's decision, and his stance is that he doesn't owe that money. Crazy. So this would have to be worked out between Ellie and CT and Cole. As far as, as 2 plus 2 not selling the book... This would also be a breach of our contract, and we would expect to be sued immediately. But, but again, for those of you who, who want to see no book sales, they've already been ruined. See, he's hidden behind that it's in our contract thing before. That's what he said to me when I questioned about the stock trader thing. He says, oh, we, we have a contract. We can't just breach it and stop selling the book. And my response was, if you have a contract that does not allow you an out for some kind of misbehavior on the part of the author – such as scamming, then 
you need to get a better attorney. You should have a contract that definitely has something in there, definitely some kind of behavior clause. They don't have to be perfect angels. You know, if, if, if Ellie's in a bar fight or something and gets arrested for it, you, you shouldn't be able to pull his book. But there should be certain things like scamming. Or if it's a book about uh, a person's life and it turns out that large portions of the book are proven to be false, that you then have a right to pull the book. If you don't have it in there, again, your attorney sucks. And I don't think your attorney sucks. I've spoken to your attorney. He seems pretty good. He works for a very respected law firm. So I don't think your attorneys suck. I think that you do have this clause in there somewhere, and I think you're just hiding behind this. I haven't seen the contract, but it it should be in there if it's not. Anyway, going on here. Uh, We still have a small amount of hope that Ellie will eventually come back and address these issues. Yeah, a small amount. Come on, he's never coming back. But if this happens, I would expect it to be later than sooner. The bottom line, however, is that the only real issues that matter are the veracity of the book and the fact that two of Ellie's replies in the other thread that were contradicted by, by Cole. Also, n- no one that we know of, including Sean D. and Cole, are opposed to the book. To finish, I think this covers most everything important related to the mess. Was 2 plus 2 played for a sucker? I don't think so. I think so. <laughs> Our relations with our relationship with Ellie and Robbie during this process was top notch. I honestly don't think that Ellie understood that certain problems that were out there would be important, and that his reputation, even more than ours, has suffered because of this. Oh, I feel so bad for him. Best wishes, Mason. Hmm. Well, people mostly like this post. People wrote things like, "Lots of respect for this post. Sorry it works out so poorly for you." I, this seems like a bunch of excuses to me. The one thing I agree is that he can't just take royalties that he's agreed to give to Ellie and then just give them to someone Ellie owes. That that would be a breach of contract. I agree with that, that Ellie would have to agree to that for that to be done. I I agree that Mason can't do that by himself. Okay? The rest of it, I think, is crap. I believe the whole thing that he didn't know about this when they started the thread— but he knew about Sean Deeb. He never decided to look too much into that. He asked a few questions and dropped it. Did 2 plus 2 do something horrible here? No, but they were just stupid. They were stupid, and then they, they paid for it. So that's, that's pretty much where it stands there. But let me tell you one other thing about Ellie Lesra that nobody knows. I shouldn't, know, I shouldn't say nobody, but not many people in poker know. This will give you a little bit of insight into the way he is. Some stuff he was involved in. There is a lawsuit. I mean, I could go through a lot of stories about his business dealings. I I don't want to take any more time. I've already taken a lot of time on this topic. But there was a lawsuit that he was named in that had to do with a lawsuit between two other individuals that at first had nothing to do with him. But it looks like he may have done a favor for a friend to really screw someone. In, uh, I think, 2006, sometime around then, a guy named Moshe Elazar, another Israeli, 
got into a bad car accident with a man named John Barry. John Barry sued Moshe Elazar. And I, I don't know the details about the accident, but it must have been a pretty bad accident. Because when the whole thing was over, John Barry won... $1 million. Not more. He won $2.8 million. That's a pretty big accident to get $2.8 million. So obviously uh, Moshe was at fault and John must have really suffered some tremendous injuries. $2.8 million. No matter how poor you are, if you suffered an accident bad enough to win $2.8 million, you should not be happy with the whole thing because... That's pretty much like a a life-ruining accident To be getting that much money It's much better to be healthy and poor Than uh, incapacitated and rich Anyway uh, Moshe Elazar happened to be Very collectible This wasn't a a working stiff Making uh, 35k a year With his tremendous judgment against him No, this is a guy with a lot of money It was alleged That Moshe Elazar was worth $11 million. What does this have to do with Elie Lezra? Well, Elie Lezra, before this accident, was in several business partnerships with Moshe Elazar and another Israeli named Pini Labuz. They had several businesses together. Moshe Elazar had a one-third stake in all of these businesses. Trader Ruski, if you want to get out of paying a $2.8 million personal injury judgment and you have $11 million worth of interest in uh, various businesses and the other two people in the businesses are close personal friends of yours, if you're looking to get out of it, what, what do you think you can do? I might look to put it in somebody else's name. Yeah. Well, somehow, I don't know when this happened. I don't know if this is before and after the judgment. Maybe maybe Elazar saw that this was uh, not looking good and he was going to lose the lawsuit. But Moshe Elazar went and uh, transferred all of his interests in the businesses to the other two partners, including Eli Elijah. And all of a sudden... Moshe Elazar went from $11 million net worth to zero point zero. Couldn't really explain why he transferred this away. He didn't get anything in return. It's not like he, it's not like he sold it or traded it for something of value. They, it, the whole thing was very, 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 very suspicious. Now, there is a term for this. This is called a fraudulent transfer. Meaning it's not a real transfer, it's just a transfer to avoid some kind of debt. So there were there were lawsuits then against Elie Lezra by John Barry to attempt to recover this money from Elie Lezra and Pini Labuz. This was sent to me, by the way, by a third party who I will not identify, but someone who's been reading Poker Fraud Alert that listens to this show. 
and uh, found this stuff and sent it to me. They sent me a document, which I'll post later on Poker Fraud Alert. It's kind of hard to follow, but it's a, it's a bunch of legal papers about this whole matter. Some of it dated as recently as 2016. So it's, it's an ongoing legal matter. That's, uh, as you can imagine, been happening for many, many years. So did the guy try to go BK to get out of it? To, to, to go what? Oh, bankrupt. So like yeah. go bankrupt? Yeah, I think it's something like that. I, I, I just got this shortly before the show, so I didn't have time to read everything. But uh, I believe it's something like that where he's uh, yeah, claiming to, he's, yeah, he doesn't have the money to pay it. And so now they're trying to come after the people he transferred these business assets to. And, and I believe there, there was a judgment um, for the person's telling me $5 million against uh, Elia Lezra for this. But uh, I, the person wasn't able to find the document confirming the $5 million judgment, but they were able to find the document about $140,000 judgment. But it's got to be over the same thing. I'm not sure how this person found this, who sent it to me. But anyway, that's just a, it has nothing to do with the situation with Cole South or Sean Deeb or Mason Malmuth. But it, it's just a, a, a little look into Elio Lezra's life. And that's that's pretty crappy. That's pretty crappy to I mean, as someone who must have gotten just really, really, really hurt in that car accident, probably had their life ruined. And they try to collect money and uh, from from Ellie's friend, and and Ellie helps him hide the money. That's what it appears to me from these court documents. So that's something that hasn't been discussed anywhere publicly yet. So, pretty sure Cole South won't be getting his money. Sean D won't be getting his money. And I think Ellie is annoyed because this was this wasn't a secret about Ellie Alesra owing people money, but it was something that wasn't widely discussed in poker. And now a lot of people have seen this. The only plus in this whole thing is that Ellie Alesra hasn't had this story picked up by the mainstream poker media. Googling it right now, if you Google Ellie Alesra Cole South. The top result is actually Poker Fraud Alert. Then there's this affiliate site VIP Grinders. Then there's 2 plus 2. And that's it. Nobody else is covering this. I won't be surprised if I get a message from Elio Ezra one day demanding I take this thread down. I've had this before. I, I get messages from people asking me to take down unflattering threads about them. Sometimes they'll even include laughable legal threats in there. Most of the time I just ignore them, or sometimes if it's someone who owes money, I'll say, okay, I'll make an agreement. If, you, if I can get proof you've paid back everyone, I will take it down. And I only do this because I want to encourage people to pay back. Not that I want to cover up anything, but that uh, if someone has actually, if they've done wrong and then they've really busted their ass to make everyone whole they screwed... Okay, I'll give them the small reward of removing the threat. 
of course, if they scam again, then that's then I'm never removing it, and, I'll, and I never remove it completely. I just take it out of view. But I've only done that a few times, and I've only after I've really carefully verified that everyone's been paid back. But uh, but I've had a lot of people say, oh, these are false rumors. The, you know, the, this is against the law. They post things like this about me. I said, no, it's not. No, it's not. This if it's the truth, I can it can be posted here. So. If you would like to demonstrate to me that this is false, then I will be glad to take it down. And then I usually don't hear from them again. They'll argue a little bit, then they'll just give up because they'll see it won't work. What I have done for people is, like, if they post something themselves, it's just embarrassing. And then they're trying to go get a job, and then someone could Google them and find them or whatever. Um, I'll take things down. That someone voluntarily posts themselves that's just like an embarrassing thing that could hurt their future. But as far as scammers are concerned, I, 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 I do get messages, people trying to get me to get it down and threatening me with legal consequences. And, you know, I know my rights and I know these scammers, they're always guilty. I know, I know if I ever was sued and most of these guys don't even have the money to sue me at that point anyway, but even if I was sued, I know that I could easily go to the victims and get them to testify that this is all correct. In fact, I could compel the victims to testify even if they didn't want to get involved. So I'm pretty convinced that all these stories posted up on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum are true. And these scammers know it's true. And they, they, they either know or they find out when they call an attorney that if they are true, then I've committed no wrongs by either allowing my forum to carry these accusations or... Uh, me posting them myself. And, th- and that's why Mason has them up on 2 plus 2. That's why there's accusations against scammers all over 2 plus 2, because Mason knows that, uh, number one, as a forum owner, if he's not the one posting it himself, then he doesn't have much liability. And number two, in most cases, these are true, and then they can prove it's true, and then the people suing them would lose. So that's... The story with Ellie Lazaro. And now I want to get into, and I'd like your input on this also, Trader Ruski. Now I'd like to get into the general question of 2 plus 2 and what they should publish and what they shouldn't. Now I've, I've kind of gone back and forth on this myself, but it's a very simple question. If you're 2 plus 2 publishing, should you post, should you publish books that are written by scammers or cheaters in poker. Should you do it? Not can you do it. I know you can. I know they have a right to. I'm saying should they? Is it ethically right for them to do, number one? And number two, even if it is ethically right to publish or ethically okay, should they for their own reputation? And what if they've already published a book and then information comes out later, which appears to be the case both with uh, Stocks Trader and with Ellie Lesra now, where at the time the book was written, there was no uh, – Ellie, they should have found it out. Stocks Trader, that one they had no way to know until after they published it. But should they continue carrying these books at that point? Well, my opinion is it depends upon what type of publishing company you want to run. 
if you want to just sell books and it, your goal is just to get book sales and that's it, and you'll carry books from anyone saying anything, you don't care, as long as it's legal, you'll publish it. Because at the end, the almighty dollar is all that's important. Or maybe you're a publisher that actually specializes in publishing controversial material. And you're hoping that by publishing some of these controversial books, that other controversial authors will want to come to you and you'll make even more money. Again, it goes back to money, but if that's your specialty, then fine. I'm not a big believer in censorship. I don't believe you should just not allow people to get out the message they want to get out. So I can't hold anything against publishers that want to carry, that want to publish books from authors with previous reprehensible behavior. However, you also have to decide what kind of publisher are you. If you want to be respected for putting out true and correct material from respected people, then maybe it's a good idea to stay away from such books. From what I have seen, 2 plus 2 attempts some quality control and author control with what they publish. That I had believed that there is some process that they're not going to just let anyone publish a book. They're not going to just print any trash that someone wants to publish there, even if the trash will make money, but that they want to at least believe somewhat in the material of the book. They want to believe the book is providing useful strategy information if it's a strategy book and is providing true information if it's a book that's something other than strategy. And that the author has at least an okay history, personally. Doesn't have to be a perfect individual, but that there isn't some real major gotcha with them, such as a scammer or cheater in poker. I, I had thought that, that those were kind of their standards. I didn't think they were kind of the tabloid of poker publications. I really thought that they had those standards. Despite my problems I'd had with them, I thought those were their standards. And that's why I was surprised when I brought up to Mason about Stocks Trader and said, hey, I see you're still carrying this book. And I'm sure it's barely getting any sales. In fact, Mason himself said the Stocks Trader book sells a few copies a year. He's probably right. Who's going to buy a Limit Hold'em book in 2019? especially one written nine years ago by someone almost nobody remembers anymore. But I think once you get information, not just now, but back then when he got the information, a few months after it was published, that the author was caught cheating in multi-accounting, that you stop carrying the book. Say, we didn't know it at the time, we know it now, we don't want to carry a book by such an individual because we want our publication company to be respected as, as carrying books by decent people in poker providing decent information. So even if the book is okay, if the author isn't, even if you, did, if, even if you didn't know it originally, remove the book. And with Ellie here, this is not a strategy book, but given that the portrayal of his life is probably greatly fiction at this point, given what we know. 
if the book is mainly about what a successful businessman and poker player you are, and it comes out that you couldn't even pay back a 40K debt over nine and a half years, at that point, the book's not true. There may be tidbits in there that are true, but the book as a whole, it's, it's not a true story anymore. It's not a true biography anymore. So why carry it? Yeah, you'll get a few people buying it out of curiosity or people who hadn't heard of the scandal, but why carry it at that point? So they should take those off the shelves. And this is very easily accomplished by having a clause in the contract that allows them to do so. Which I bet they have anyway. So why don't they do it? I really believe that Mason... You know, you, you kind of got an idea from that post he made about all the money that they're going to lose and the hundreds of hours they put in and it's all going to be ruined and wasted. Mason doesn't like the idea of wasted effort and wasted time and wasted money. Mason doesn't like the idea of pulling a book that people might still want to buy, that his company and himself personally put a lot of hours into getting produced and that he put a lot of money or not a lot, but he put some money into getting produced. He doesn't like the idea of having to take it down and have all that be for naught. And you could tell that in his response. So if he can twist and turn and find any moral reason that he can keep it up there, then that's what he does. It's not that he necessarily thinks it's right. It's that he tries to twist and turn to find a reason to continue carrying it, which is his legal right to do. But I just think it's stupid. Is it a horrible thing if Elliot Lesser's book is out there? No. But I had thought that they had standards there, which they apparently don't. That's, that's how I feel. If they want to publish it, go ahead. Again, I'm not trying to censor anything here. I'm just saying that I thought that they were presenting themselves as a publisher differently than apparently they want to present themselves. But the thing is, Mason still thinks they are highly respected and they prevent you know, that they have a vetting process for their authors and the, for the material. He still thinks that. But then in practice, that's not always true, especially after they put the effort into putting out the book. If it turns out that the material in the book is, is uh, not true or the author was a piece of shit, uh, they don't want to go as far as removing it. Trader Risky, how, does you, how do you feel about this? You know, I think with the Elio Lesra book, since it's all clearly made up story, that one they should pull because it's, uh, or call it fiction. You know, I think with the Stocks Trader one, I just think it's different because if the book is quality about skills of poker and they didn't take down any of the forum stuff about him being uh, multi-accounting and everything else, then I guess I have less of a problem with that one. Well, they did take it down at first, and then Viffer shamed them into keeping it up. So, (laughs) it was Viffer did it, and then at the time, you know, on Donkdown, Mikeon and I were pressing this very hard, too. And kind of between the two things, they they, they couldn't avoid it anymore. But uh, okay, I mean, that's your opinion. I, I I agree that the Ellie thing 
there's more of a justification to take that down than the Sox Trader thing because yeah, the whole book becomes uh, fake at that point, basically, where, where Sox Trader is more the character of the, of the player. I just think it's kind of weird to be buying a book from a multi-accounter and cheater, like from someone who, you know, look how successful I was playing poker. Well, then now, now you question everything. Like, well, okay, why was this guy so successful? How, how much has he been colluding and soft playing at Limit Hold'em, too? Like, yeah, that's right. But that wasn't what that book was about, right? Wasn't it more of a strategy book? It, it was, but the, but the the thing was the author. The reason you're buying is because the author claims to be a a, a a big winning player at Limit Hold'em, which he was. But once the guy's caught cheating already, you go, you know, I, I don't really want to touch this anymore, even if he yeah, is a no, good player. That's true. But but I agree that that if it's not like there was information in the book that was found to be bad after the fact. So if the information's still good, fine. But yeah. Uh, I haven't read the book, but I haven't heard. I, I, I've heard it's kind of mediocre. I've heard that there's nothing like really wrong in there with the advice, but like blatantly wrong. But but that it's kind of like just filled a lot of graphs that are kind of useless and not not as much actual advice as people were hoping. But uh, I agree that's less important, especially at this point. It's already been out for nine years, and it's a book that people aren't likely to buy at this point. Where uh, the Elliot one just came out. So, but it's not going down. One other weird thing here before I, I move on to a completely different topic. I think there's still something being covered up that we're never going to find out. There was something Matt Skolansky posted. Matt Skolansky is David's son. And he posted this quick update. We've been hit with some surprises here and still trying to process information. Mason will certainly have more to say on the subject later today. So we've been hit with some surprises here, still trying to process. It sounds like they've been hit with new surprises, but then they never clarified. So I asked, okay, so what's going on? I said, this is getting good. What's going on? And Matt said, oh, no, we addressed everything. I'm like, what? So I think maybe he was trying to say we were hit with the surprises, meaning like Cole South was the surprise. But I, I, it sounded like he was saying, here's an update. We just got some more surprises. I, he didn't write the word more, so maybe he just worded it badly. But I thought he was trying to say, like, something big just happened and we don't know about it yet. Who knows? All right. So I, I found that interesting. You can find both threads, the new thread and the original Ask Me Anything thread on 2 Plus 2 now that it's been undeleted. And you can watch it all unfold if you wish to do so. And it's time to move on to our next topic. I want to clarify a little bit about the Asian Spa thing. Last week, I announced that Asian Spa passed away in 2015, which is true. And that I talked about why I didn't announce it at the time, even though I knew. And without going into the whole story again, you can listen to last week's episode if you want to hear. But very briefly, I didn't tell anyone because, uh, number one, I felt that was not my business to reveal because he took a lot of effort to hide his identity. And Asian Spa was like really a separate character from the real man behind Asian Spa. They were very different in real life. And I didn't want to sully this man's name by associating with Asian Spa, if he may not have wanted that. You know, he's not alive to make that decision. 
And second, I thought it would be cool if I took over the account, which his wife said was a good idea. She was very computer illiterate, so it was going to be hard for her to do, but uh, she was all for that. And I, I, from my interactions with Asian Spa and someone I, you know, I've met and I've, uh, I knew in person, I believe that he would have wanted that. I, I believe that that would have been something he would have really enjoyed, that after a premature death that uh, his character still is able to live on without anyone ever knowing. Unfortunately, his wife wasn't able to get access to it, and she finally gave up, so that can't happen, and that's why... I, well, I finally, so I finally admitted to this whole thing on last week's show, three and a half years after Asian Spot died, because a woman named Jeannie, who lives in Las Vegas, and she's a, a poker player, and very good friend of Brandon's, and, and I got to know her over the years as well. Um, I'm nowhere near as close to her as Brandon is, but I, I, I consider her a friend, and I, I like Jeannie, and I spent a little time with her at the, uh, the last World Series. Uh, but uh, she heard the show last week and was unhappy with some things I said. Uh, first of all, she believed that I said that she called me out on Twitter for uh, not revealing Asian Spa's death, and that's that's not true. So she didn't call me out on Twitter initially. What happened was that uh, someone asked publicly on Twitter what happened to Asian Spa. Then she said, I'll tell you when I see you next to that person. And then a guy named Jeff Blau said, yeah, I want to know too. So she realized that there's going to be too many questions publicly. So finally she just said, you know, Todd Wittellis knows about this. You know, why, why don't you ask him? He, you know, he died three and a half years ago. Um, why don't you ask Todd? He's known the whole time. Now, it did seem like she was annoyed, and I said that she was kind of annoyed, and she was. The reason she was annoyed was that she believed that the reason I wanted to keep the Asian spa thing private was just so I could take over the account. So she had thought that I was making her, I couldn't making her, but I was asking her to keep the Asian spa death private so I could take over the account. That that was the only reason and that my desire to do this trumped everything else and everyone had to stay silent for that reason. And she did it, but she was like, kind of like, this is so stupid. Why can't I tell anyone that the guy passed away? It's not fair to him just because Todd feels like taking over his account. So she kind of was a little pissed about that over the years. Not, not enough to you know, create a confrontation with me about it, but she was, she was kind of a little frustrated about that. What I had remembered was telling her the, that the main reason that I didn't want to divulge it was, you know, out of respect to him, that I didn't think he wanted it divulged. And there's no way for me to know for sure with him no longer alive, but that, that's what I thought. And that uh, I thought I told her that, and then I also told her that I wanted to take over the account. Well, apparently she sent me some screenshots of text conversations we had and from private Twitter conversations we had. And apparently I didn't tell her the first part. I just told her I wanted to take over the account and that it's, we shouldn't say anything. So um, I, I, I guess I didn't tell her that part. 
So I understand why she thought this was all about just keeping it quiet for this reason. And, and I can understand why that might bother her. Like, I can understand why she thinks it's a stupid reason to keep it quiet. It's just my own private desire to take over the account. But it wasn't. It, really, I, I really wanted to come on Poker Fraud Alert right when this happened. And I wanted, I wanted to tell her, not tell her, I wanted to tell everybody about how sad I was that Asian Spot was dead and that uh, he was a good guy and that, um, you know, I, I really wanted to announce this, especially because he listened to the show and all that, but like, he was a regular listener here and we interacted a lot uh, privately and publicly. But I I really had to think about, like, what would he want? Would he want, would he want me to put it out there and I, th- I thought no but I, I thought I told Jeannie that but I guess I didn't and I looked at the text she sent me from from 2015 and yeah it looked like that uh, I didn't tell her that part I only mentioned about wanting to take over the account so anyway so I guess I mischaracterized her role in it to some degree and I wanted people to know that for anyone who knows Jeannie now the one thing I will call her out for is that in this screenshot from her text messages on her phone she has me listed as Todd Witt Ellis. That's W-H-I-T-E-L-I-S. <laughs> now, I agree my name's a bit difficult to spell, but uh, that's, that's about the worst mangling I've seen of it in a long time. W-H-I-T-E-L-I-S. It's actually W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S. There, there's several mistakes here. The H is the most common misspelling, by the way. People love to put an H in my name. It's W-H they like to put. And I always tell them, there's no H in my name at all. Not my first, not my middle, not my last. Like, if you're writing an H associated with my name, you're wrong. W-H-I-T-E-L-I-S. <laughs> that I'll call her out for. But, but as far as the, the Asian spa stuff, I understand where the whole misunderstanding occurred. And I, I thought I had told her some things that I didn't actually tell her. I definitely had that conversation with someone, but I think, I think maybe I had the conversation with Benjamin's mom about it. I think that's maybe who I talked to. I talked to her about it too, for sure. But I think maybe it was Benjamin's mom I talked to about whether or not I should say anything. So, that's all to say there. And I'm sure I will see Jeannie at this World Series, or maybe beforehand. She said she's going to the LAPC, too, but I don't don't think I'll be at the LAPC when she's there. But I I figured, when when I say something like the stuff I said last week, and then I realized it wasn't all accurate, I wanted to fix that, especially since uh, some of this was my inaccurate memory of what I had told her three and a half years ago. Still sad Asian spot is gone. I just like, I don't know, every World Series I kind of expect I'm going to get tweets from him when I win a big pot and announce it on my Twitter. Like I expect to get these encouraging tweets from him and they just never come. There's an Asian spot junior on Twitter. I don't know who that is. <laughs> I think it's just a fan of his. That, that guy tweeted recently. All right, I want to talk about Johnny Ferrari 
and his statement about Gavin Smith. Johnny Ferrari appeared on this show last year about the Diamond Spade Club situation. We had him on in March of 2018. And the Diamond Spade Club was allegedly a high-end Miami-based VIP club for rich poker players, but it seemed kind of scammy in some ways. And Johnny Ferrari was really, really, really into proving this to be a scam. Then some information came out about Johnny Ferrari that the guy uh, wasn't what he claimed to be. And there's a lot of stuff that was being questioned about him, and there were some unflattering Reports about him on other sites that I I won't bother repeating. And he's been very upset about this information being revealed on Poker Fraud Alert, which, you know, the truth is you get involved publicly with calling out someone for scamming, and then some information comes out about you that is unflattering. And then if you feel that this information is not true, you can rebut it. But you you can't get mad at the guy running the forum or the users on the forum for discovering this stuff and putting it out there. I mean, that's what Johnny Ferrari did in the first place about these guys at the Diamond Spade Club. He he wasn't 100% certain the Diamond Spade Club was a scam. He, He looked at what information he could find involving the people who were running it and some people who he had dealt with personally in the past and decided that he drew a common-sense conclusion that it was a scam and put it out there. And I think that was the right thing for him to do. But he can't complain when people do the same thing involving him. And so basically he was trying to tell me privately that because I can't prove 100% the information that's been posted up there that I have to not only take it down but post a retraction that I was wrong. And I said, if you can disprove it, I will post a retraction. And I said, look, I'll, I'll even... Uh, anything that is kind of can go either way, even if I, if I personally believe it's true, but if it's something that can go either way, and that I, there's not enough proof of for me to confidently say really happened, and it's nothing that's really of relevance for anyone here to have to worry about you, then fine, I'll remove that part. But he didn't accept it. He said, no, I want a retraction. I said, forget it. So he's actually been posting on Poker Fraud Alert in that same Diamond Spade Club thread, fighting with people on the forum. You can go see it in the Diamond Spade Club thread on the scam, scandals, and shadiness. He's claiming it's defamation, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't understand. It's, it's just... I get people all the time who don't understand defamation, who try to scare me with, these, with legal threats about, uh, oh, this is defamation, blah, blah, blah. And I uh, No, anything that's true is not defamation. And... Like, like, I did do some things for him. Like, like originally he said, hey, someone posted a copy of my passport. I don't know how they got it, but someone posted a copy of my passport to show my name wasn't originally Johnny Ferrari. Which my, We asked him about it on radio. Go, oh, that's my real name. Well, it is, but he, he changed his name. His real name was Mark McClay, and he changed it to Johnny Ferrari. He, bothered, he, he didn't bother to mention that on radio. But fine, I removed his passport because I agreed, okay, a copy of his passport shouldn't be on the site. Fine. 
I removed it. I agreed to do that, and I did. But uh, yeah, he claims that I published that he committed a crime. I published he was arrested. I published that he threw his girlfriend from a tuk-tuk motor vehicle. I published that he has a sordid history in, in, in insinuating uh, related to his professor profession. Like these were accusations that have been made on other forums. And people posting links that seem to me, in my opinion, credible. Maybe someone did a great job framing you. I agree I don't have 100% proof this is all true. But uh, if someone put a gun to my head and said, you have to guess whether this is true or untrue, and if you're wrong, I'm going to shoot you, I would 100% go with true. Without even thinking. I'd snap say it's true. If I was forced to decide. And that's kind of the standard I use before, po- uh, before posting something that, that is told to me. Or that I find. Or is sent to me. But if somebody objects and says, you know what, this is totally false, you were tricked. They go, okay, you know, prove it to me as much as you can. And I'll make a common sense judgment. He didn't want to prove it to me. He just wanted to say, no, it's not true. You can't prove it. Now take it down and, and apologize and retract. I go, that's not how it works. Show me why this is not true. And then I will take it down. And then I'll retract it. In fact, I offered to take some of it down anyway. He didn't want it unless I had a retraction. So why am I saying all this now? I, was gonna, I wasn't even going to talk about this on radio, even though he's been ranting about it on the forum. It's not a secret. But... I wasn't going to even bring this up on radio, but he has thrust himself into the news on Poker News. There's an article now about Johnny Ferrari clarifying something regarding Gavin Smith's death. Now, it is true that Johnny Ferrari knew Gavin Smith. He claimed that he's a good friend of his. I don't know if he was or wasn't. I know that they knew each other and talked sometimes. Uh, how close of friends they were, I don't know. But this is what Johnny Ferrari said on his Facebook, which then was picked up by Poker News. He probably brought this to Poker News' attention. And I, I think that Johnny partially wanted to just be part of the story here, and, and Maybe, you know, if he really was friends with them, maybe he really did want to clear the air. So I won't say that he didn't want to clear the air, but I also think that he also wanted to be part of the story, knowing him. He's a very strange guy, this Johnny Ferrari. I don't even know what to think of him fully. But he, he, I can tell you from personal experience, the guy acts unreasonably sometimes. So this is what he wrote. January 15th, a great man, devoted father, and true brother, poker pro Gavin Smith passed away, as most know. It was not, quote, partying or due to drinking. He was at home as I watched his kids until that evening. Around midnight, there was a pounding knock regarding an emergency in his home. He's claiming that he lives uh, next door to Gavin Smith. But I... Does Johnny Ferrari live in Texas now? I I had heard that Gavin Smith died in Houston. I thought Johnny Ferrari lived uh, sometimes in Toronto or that area and sometimes in... uh, in Thailand. I, I knew nothing about Houston. I know that Gavin was originally from the Toronto area. But, okay, anyway, going on. 
He claimed that there was a, a neighbor was pounding on his door about an emergency in Gavin's home. He said, I called 911. He was already gone. Gavin hated fake news, especially in poker. By fake news, I mean made up unsubstantiated claims by bottom feeding media sites, etc., to generate clicks and traffic with uns- untrue libel postings. <laughs> you misspelled libel, by the way. I wonder if he's referring to Poker Fraud Alert. Because there weren't that many sites that were covering kind of the, the bad sides of Gavin Smith, the vices he had. Like, that was discussed on Poker Fraud Alert a lot. A little bit on 2 Plus 2, but I, I bet he's referring to uh, Poker Fraud Alert. Especially since he already has an axe to grind with us. He wrote, Gavin and I had that in common. Single fathers with full custody with opu- opposite reputations based on incorrect perceptions. And now I have a question right there. When we talked to Johnny Ferrari, he was in some kind of sleazy motel near Casino Niagara. Where were his kids then if he had full custody? I guess it's possible he could have left them with a babysitter or with his parents or something. But I, I didn't know he had full custody. Where were the kids then? They were like, was, was he living with the kids in Thailand? I have a lot of questions. This is the last photo taken in his home. He posted a picture of Gavin Smith with like his arms crossed. Happy and proudly sporting his new Leafs hat, always representing Canada. The kids are in good hands with family. Gavin had an illness unrelated to any behavior, hereditary. I will personally fight any fake news to the contrary. Remember old G for the great man, personality, and father he was. I do not drink myself, yet find myself having a greyhound in his honor, revisiting the funny on-camera moments we had in poker and wrestling. Wrestling. Bird Guts was his name while doing challenges, prop bets, and TV, and TV with pro wrestlers. That was also his name on Poker Stars, by the way. I miss him being a dick, ra- randomly calling me a fucking nerd for playing video games too much, and his favorite go-to insult, Johnny Skateboard. Every task was an event. Per his last Facebook post, simple furniture shopping turned into a hilarious prop bet with the owner. He just turned on the excitement everywhere he went for anything. His contributions to poker paled in comparison to humanity by simply being the most real person I've ever known. Miss you, brother. Love always. R.I.P. I don't know. He wasn't very real with me going on Chantel McNulty's account to insult me. That's, that's what I know. So th- this is actually getting a lot of play. I've seen this published on Poker News. I see this being... Uh, Posted on other sites, on other Facebook groups. So if he wanted attention here, he got it. This is on January 19th, Johnny Ferrari posted this. Now, I don't know. Maybe this this stuff is true. Maybe Gavin did have some kind of hereditary health issue. And that maybe he died completely independent of his drinking and past drug use. Maybe it's just two totally separate things. And, all right. For the record, I never said that the drinking is what killed him. I said that it couldn't have been helping. I said if he does have some kind of other issue, I, I, I can't see how that would help. I can see how, with most things you would have, that this would be a worsening factor. So there you go. There's, there's Johnny Ferrari's statement. Maybe I'll ask him these questions in that thread he's in on Poker Fraud. I've just been kind of avoiding it recently because he's, he's just irrational. The, the users have been going back and forth with him, but like 
it, it just felt futile to do. It just felt like I was dealing with a crazy person. So I thought, okay, I, he, he's clearly – I, I answered him a few times and then it just wasn't going anywhere. So I gave up. Maybe I'll post there and uh, ask him these questions. This is one of the people I kind of regretted having on this show. Kind of wish I didn't get involved in any of that stuff. Because, uh, you know, it sucks. Like, someone brings something that it seems like their information is credible. And it's even possible. It kind of looked like his information about the Diamond Spade Club was good. I'm not even questioning that. But then that person themselves has their own issues. Like, I'll give you an example. Michael Borowitz, the airport scammer, he brought a very credible story to 2 Plus 2 about a floor man at the World Series of Poker demanding bribes to start sit-and-goes. That was totally really happening. And Michael Borowitz saw it and reported it on 2 Plus 2, and that floor man was fired, and rightfully so. So he totally brought a real scandal out. But then it turned out, separate from all that, Michael Borowitz was a scammer working at airports. <laughs> so... Sometimes the person bringing out these stories, they're totally telling you the truth, but then they've got their own demons. And then it's hard to deal with them sometimes. Now, at least Michael Borovitz faced the music and admitted what he did. But uh, Johnny Ferrari, he uh, he's insisting every story that's been spread about him is false. And I didn't make these things up, and he knows I didn't make these things up. He knows, he knows where the information came from, and it had nothing to do with me. That's what I that's what I get on uh sites like these. That's what I get. I'm always the the lightning rod for these things because I'm the one running the site. And I I take a very active involvement in the site. All right. Let's talk about the World Series of Poker. They've released what I think is a full schedule. They they've been very strange about it this year. They've been releasing it in pieces. Like, okay, here's a few events. Well, here's a few more events. Here's a few more. Okay, now here's like 34 more events, but it's still a partial schedule even though I can't see any room for any other events. That's, that's kind of what they're saying right now. So I'm calling it a full schedule. I couldn't find any events not there that I think will be there. So I think the schedule is... As is. I think they, they haven't released the structure sheets. They haven't finalized everything. But I, I think the events they listed are pretty much going to be the events. I think they just don't want to finalize it yet because they may want to change some things and they want to reserve the right to do that. So last week I had given an update that they had put out the schedule of 10K and higher events. And prior to that, they had also released various high-profile events that were lower buy-in. But now pretty much everything's there. So we've been talking about the starting chip stacks. And I was theorizing that certain chip stacks would be the standard for certain buy-ins. It would be kind of tied to the buy-in of what the chip stack is. It's not just a blanket thing of you know, buy-in this and you get this many times the chips. And I was right. So this is this is how it is. The Colossus event, four hundred dollar buy-in, forty thousand starting chip stack. 
the big 50 event, $500 buy-in, 25,000 chip stack. The $600 events have a $30,000 chip stack, not 30,000 chip stack. The $800 and $888 events get a 40,000 chip stack. The $1,000 events, for the most part, will get a 20,000 chip stack, except the double stack will get 40,000 chips, the mini main event will get 60,000 chips, and the little one-for-one drop will get 40,000 chips, provided that you uh, pay that $111 add-on for the charity. The $1,500 events will, for the most part, get 25,000 chips, except the monster stack, the double stack... And the bracelet winners only event, which I'll explain shortly, will get 50,000 chips. By the way, the monster stack and double stack, I guess, are the same thing now at the 1500 level. The $2,500 buy in events get 15,000 chips. So oddly, the 2500 events, they have the fewest chips given to you. Even though there's price points all the way down to 4,000, the fewest chips you'll start with will be a $2,500 buy in events. But there's only one of them that's a no limit hold'em. The 2620 event, that's the marathon, 2620, they get 26,200 in chips, so 10 to 1. The six $3,000 events all start with 20,000 in chips, the second least you'll start with in the World Series. I will be playing one of those, the Limit Hold'em. The $5,000 events, of which I'll be playing none, there's only three events, they're all no limit, they start with 30,000. The $10,000 events start with $60,000. The $25,000 high limit uh, PLO event starts with $150,000 in chips. The 50 k high roller no limit hold'em starts with $300,000 in chips. And the 100 k high roller no limit hold'em starts with $600,000 in chips. So if you notice, the... events and higher all start with exactly six times the chips of the amount you pay to buy in. Lower than 5,000, it's all over the place. Now, what is this bracelets-only event I talked about? Well, on July 10th, there is a new event which is only open to bracelet winners. So Trader Ruski, I'm sorry to tell you, you won't be able to play. I will. I am eligible to play the bracelet-only event. It's a $1,500 buy-in, no-limit hold'em event. Trader Ruski, do you think I'm going to play that event? 100% no. You're right. You are right. I'm not going to play. At first, it sounds cool. Oh, wow, only for bracelet winners? Wow, so I get to be in this exclusive club to play that event. And then I think about it. I go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Here. What is this event? This is actually an extra hard 1,500 no-limit event that's just about all devoid of fish. And I'm paying the regular rake to play it? And I'm getting nothing special for playing it? So they promote this as being the ultimate event to win because you're beating all bracelet winners, so you're the ultimate bracelet winner. You're the bracelet winner against bracelet winners. I already have an event like that I play. That's the 10K Limit Hold'em. Sometimes I have like seven bracelet winners at the table with me. 
So I, I don't need to play that event to have that sort of thing going on. Remember the final table I was at of day one of that event last year? I had uh, Nick Shulman, Brock Parker, Matt Glantz, uh, I had uh, Jamison Painter. I think these guys all have bracelets. So uh, that was just last year. I, I had one year where like seven of the eight opponents had bracelets. But yeah, that's that's a bad event. I'm not so arrogant where I think I'm going to stomp on the other bracelet winners. Like, if you put me at a $1,500 No Limit Hold'em event, like a regular one, I, I, I think I'm still better than the average player in that event. That's why I play them. But that's because there's still a lot of recreational players in the field. I do not think I'm better than some of these No Limit Hold'em tournament all-stars who play them all the time. I just hope to get lucky against those guys. So, uh, now what if they did it for no rake drop as like an appreciation for people that obviously play a lot of tournaments? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Right, that's a good question. I, I might then. I might do it just kind of for the gimmick of if it was no rake. I'm not saying I'd still be a favorite in the field, but I'm just saying at least there's no rake. At least I don't have to beat the rake there too. But but to actually have to play this with rake against with normal rake against all these really tough players, it's not worth it. I mean, I I guess if I was like if I thought I was like a no limit hold'em tournament all star, and that I really thought I could still crush everybody, and I really want to win this for bragging rights, fine. But I think you know that this is would be a very hard event to win. There's really no upside to play it. I was even thinking of emailing. Uh, Seth Polanski and telling him that, but I'm like, no, they've already decided it. They've already announced it. Like, uh, they're not going to change it, even if they agree with me. So let someone else say it. I, th- I don't want to bitch about too many things. It just seems like kind of pointless to complain about. I'm just going to vote with my feet and not play. Once they see six people registered, then maybe they'll uh, look at it. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how. That's. I'm really wondering what kind of participation they're going to get because they have to have those bracelet winners, not just at the World Series, but at the World Series when it takes place on July 10th, which is not the by any means the prime period of the World Series. This is after the main. This is after most people are out of the main and have probably left. And there's, yeah, there's some events after the main they could stay for, but for the most part, people are gone by then. So who's going to be there to play that? I think it's going to be an epic failure, but I, I'd rather just see it fail and have them either just do away with it or, or, or modify it in some way. And if it were to fail, I think maybe that's when I would contact them and say, hey, here's my suggestion for the future. I would think if they were smarter here about this, they usually do things like as far as events they come up with, they're very good at keeping things fresh and coming up with new events that people want to play and coming up with neat gimmicks. And I give them credit for all that. They've done a bang up job marketing the World Series. They, it, it's incredibly successful. So I'm not going to take that away from them or say I could do better with that. But I think with this event, they made a mistake. I think what they should do is, in order to entice people to win bracelets, I think not only should it be rake-free, it should even be like rake-free with added money or something where they lose money on it, but that it's not, they're losing 
little compared to what the World Series brings in, and this becomes like an extra perk. Like, win a bracelet and get this. So then it becomes more than just you're a bracelet winner. Maybe even just have a free roll for bracelet winners. Not $1,500 free roll, but some kind of free roll. Either free roll or something with added money. Something where you really feel like you're getting value and wish you could play. I don't think many people wish they could play that. Like, Trader Risk, if you could enter, if you had a bracelet, would you enter this? No, why would I want to play that tournament? Yeah, that's what I was asking. Why that's like I never understood, like, the whole full tilt marketing campaign. Play with the pros. Yeah. I want to play with the morons. Uh-huh. You know? But it's like, you know, and I think, too, it's like if you think about how many tournaments. So say just over the last 10 years, call it 60 bracelet events a year. I'm sure there's more. So 600 bracelets. <clears throat> and what's the average number of tournaments that those 600 bracelet winners played well, during that time? I know where you're going with this. I'll, t- I'll tell you how many bracelet events, how many bracelet winners they claim there are. Uh, let me find this here. This is in the press release that got emailed to me. Yeah. They have given out a total of 1,078 bracelet winners or bracelets since 1970. There's been a few that have been multiple bracelets that were were to people who already had them. But 1,078 – oh, no. They said 1,078 bracelet winners. So I guess they actually mean individual winners. That's lifetime since 1970, since they started it. And they claim there will be more than 60 that they give out prior to this event's start. So that's who will be eligible. But let's think about it. Now, a lot of those bracelets have been given away since the beginning of the poker boom about 15 years ago. So even we don't have to worry about the fact that a lot of the bracelet winners in the 70s and 80s are either dead or too old to play. But... Let's even go back to the mid-2000s. A lot of those people are totally gone from poker by now. So I think, I think it's a good question. How many bracelet winners play at least one event of the World Series of Poker in a given year nowadays? Like in 2018, how many bracelet winners played out of those 1,078? I'd love to know that answer. I couldn't even guess. I don't think it's that high, though. Well, and where I was going, too, is, you know, just how much, you know, those players have paid so much rake to the World Series. Because probably for each bracelet winner, they've probably played 100 tournaments. Yeah, uh, yeah a lot of 50 them have. or something, I'm, you know, whatever it is, so throw them a bone or something. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And not only that, you're giving people an incentive. You don't have to make money on everything you do there. You can take a loss on this one. And this will encourage all the people, including those who have almost no shot at winning a bracelet, recreational players who don't realize how unlikely it is they'll ever win, that this will give them all an incentive of, look, you don't just get to brag you have a bracelet. You don't just get the money from the win. Going forward, you get such and such perks. And this is something they can do that's not going to cost them a lot of money. And they know that a lot of it won't show up, even if they're giving something a little bit extra. It's not like they're giving out something so wonderful they're all going to make sure to show up and collect it. So let, let's say not only was it rake-free, but they also put 
10% added on the prize pool to where it was like a, a 10% overlay. It wouldn't cost them that much money. And no one's going to travel all the way to Vegas just for that. And they still have to buy in. So I think the number of people, it wouldn't cost them that much in raw dollars to put this on. Yes, they have to pay the dealers. But they already have the whole tournament area set up. It just sounds like something they came up with that they think is cool and actually isn't. (laughs) This is the second time they're doing some kind of gimmick involving bracelet winners. The first time, I forget what year it was. It was probably five years ago or so. They had the bracelet bounty event. And that one, bracelet winners also got nothing for participating. But... The gimmick was that if you knocked out a bracelet winner, you would get the bounty, only for knocking them out. I actually did play that one because I thought it would be cool to be one of the few with bounties on me and that maybe I could use that to my advantage because I I would know people are calling off light against me. And that's different than when everybody's calling against – everyone's calling off light against everyone else because of bounties. Here I know it's just me and a few other bracelet winners there. So I played it, but the structure was horrible. It was a cheap event, and the structure was horrendously bad. So it actually didn't matter that much because everyone was calling off light anyway because the structure was so bad. And I didn't run well, so that whole thing was a waste of time. And they never had it again. See, I'm not playing that. Other than that, I don't see that much on the schedule of interest that I haven't already talked about. Yeah, we have the Big 50. We've talked about that already. But, uh, yeah, they have the $10,000 buy-in short deck poker. I was wondering if there would be a $1,500 or $1,000 short deck poker. I would think that would do pretty well. I think people are curious about short deck and want to play it. And that's another mistake they made. There is no lower buy-in short deck. Why not? I think that would do well. I think that was a big mistake. I haven't played it before. I'd have to learn this before I play there, but I was all ready to see that on the schedule and then play it. Schedule permitting. But no, it's not there. I'm not going to play the 10K version too much. But as far as the 34 events that they just added to the schedule that weren't there before, that I think complete the schedule or come very close to completing it, I didn't really notice very much that it changed that we hadn't already talked about. So I made up a preliminary schedule for myself based upon the events that I'd have an interest in playing and then kind of figuring out which fall in the right spots to where I can make it. You guys have to understand that I can't just disappear for seven straight weeks for the World Series because I've, I've got a, a son and uh, I can't just vanish from the family like that for so long. So I tried to minimize it, but at the same time, the World Series is important to me and I enjoy playing in it. And so I wouldn't want to miss it or just play one or two events. So I try to balance that. I try to play what I want to play 
but also be reasonable about it and then also spend the least amount of time there as possible to get it, these events done. So sometimes if there's like a, an event in between a bunch of other stuff that I don't want to play, then I, I don't bother because it's there's not enough for me to do there. It's not worth going and leaving the family. So here's the list of events I'm going to play. May 30th, the 1500 Limit 08 event. That is the first event I also played last year. The very, very first hand I was dealt at the 2018 World Series was at the Limit 08, and the opponent I had in that hand by the time we got to the river is one person, a, a very nondescript, unknown guy by the name of James Woods. That's who my first hand was against, and I won. I cashed in that event. In fact, I more than cashed. I got all the way down to 59th out of like 1,100-something players. So I'm playing that again, 1,500 limit 08. I've played it now twice. This will be the third time. I cashed once, did not cash the other time. I do plan to play the big 50, but only one bullet. Remember, only the first bullet is rake-free. I will play it, even if it's going to be a clusterfuck and... I mean, I, I prob- I'll probably play it and say never again, but I'm, I'm nevertheless I'm going to play it. I'm going to be there anyway, so I will play the big fifty the day after I'm out of the limit 08, whatever that is. So if I bust day one limit 08, then I'm going to play May 31st the big fifty. If I bust day two limit 08, I'll play June 1st the big fifty. There's four starting days: May 31st through uh, three starting days: May 31st through June 2nd. So one of those three days, actually there are four. There's four, but the first one I won't do for sure because it conflicts with the limit 08. So I'll play either day two, three, or four starting day of the Big 50, depending on the Limit 08 results. But I will play it for sure. Even if I win the Limit 08, I'll have time to play the Big 50. Then after the Big 50, if I finish early enough, early meaning, let's say I play the day one on May 31st, the earliest I could, and bust that day, then I won't have anything to play for six more days. So in that case, I'll just leave and come back. If I end up making day two of the Big 50, which is on June 3rd, or if I make it very deep in the limit 08 and can't play till uh, June 2nd for day one, then I'll just hang around in Vegas. Because my next event is on June 6th, the 10K limit 08, which I'm going to play again. Only time I ever played it was last year. Did not come close to cashing. But uh, boy, was that first table I had surprisingly easy. I mean, the players there were horrible. I'm not one of these guys who says everyone's horrible. I mean, they really were horrible. And it was very surprising given it was a 10K event how bad the play was. And then, like, the bad players would bust, and I'd say, uh-oh, we're going to have a pro here now. No, nope. <laughs> an even worse player would sit down. I couldn't believe this table. So I definitely want to play that again, the 10K limit 08. I don't know where these people came from, but <laughs> I want to play that again. I will play the Millionaire Maker, which I've missed for the last few years, on either June 7th or 8th. The only way I won't play that is if I make day three of the 10K08, which I hope happens. I hope I miss the Millionaire Maker for that reason. But they, it's June 7th or 8th you can start it, so even if I make day two of the 10K Limit 08, I can uh, still make the Millionaire Maker. June 9th, the $1,000 No Limit Double Stack, I'll only play that if I fail to make day two of the Millionaire Maker. And then, that's going to be it for some time. Then, I'm going to take a break and go back home and spend some time with my family. Watch the World Series from afar. Live vicariously through the other players. 
until I come back on June 25th to play the $1,500 PLO8, which I cashed in last year. My first time ever playing it. I ended up sitting next to one Phil Helmuth and talking trash to him, if you remember. June 27th, I will play the 1500 Mixed Omaha. That one, we had some confusion last year. I thought there's only one bullet allowed to play. No, you can actually rebuy once to this. So that will be incorporated in my package this year that I'll expect to play two bullets. And if I only play one, you're going to pay for two bullets. I'm going to expect to play two bullets. And if I only need one bullet, then you'll just get a refund for the second bullet. The problem was last year, I didn't know that until I was actually there. And then I had to decide what I'm going to do. I can't just charge people for something that they haven't agreed to pay for. So this year, we're taking care of that beforehand, that uh, I'll charge for two bullets up front and refund the money if I don't play uh, bullet number two. Last year, I did use two bullets, and it was very frustrating because I took two bad beats in huge pots to knock me out with a lot of chips. So I took a four-outer on the river on the second bullet that had I won that hand, and all the money got on the turn, by the way. Had I won that hand, I very, very likely would have cashed that too. So it would have had a lot of chips. June 29th, $1,500 limit hold'em. Finished third in that in 2005, then slumped for a while and couldn't cash in it. Then in recent years, I've been either min-cashing or I was the stone bubble boy one year, I think in 2017. Last year, I, I didn't do well in it. Last year, I got spanked out pretty fast. Uh, Eric Benzamokin was in the event. Uh, Brandon was in the event. None of us did well, except one person, one person I know associated with this show cashed in that event. Who, who was that trader? I believe that was me. It was you. Yes. Trader Ruski cashing in the 1500 uh, limit hold'em, not the limit, 1500 limit hold'em last year. June 30th, the crazy eights event. I've only played that once. I did cash in it. The $888 eight handed, no limit hold'em. I will play that only if I fail to make it on day two of the one I skipped to tell you about. The June 29th, I'm going to play... The, oh, I, I did tell you about the, the Limit Hold'em. If I, if I don't make day two of Limit Hold'em like I did last year, then I'll play the 888 event. Otherwise, I will not. Uh, actually, you know what? I screwed up. Hold on, i got to see something here. I, I may not play that event. It may conflict with something. I, I'm just like reading the schedule here. Now I'm saying it may be a conflict. Let me zoom down here. Let me go here. Um, oh, no, I can play it. I see. Okay, I did it right. I was worried it would be a conflict with the 10K limit hold'em, but it's not. Because this day two would be July 1st, so I'd have to make day three to miss the limit hold'em. So that's fine. So, yeah, I'll play that if I don't make day two of the, lim- of the 1500 limit hold'em. And then provided I don't make day three of the 888 event, then I will play the 10K limit hold'em on July 2nd which is before the, the day before the main event starts. First time that's ever been that way. Usually it's in June. This time it's July 2nd, 10K Limit Hold'em. I'm actually happy about that because that may encourage people in town who have enough money to enter the main to enter this. I actually like the fact that it's near the main event, but not after. July 3rd through 5th is the 10K main event. I will play whatever day is... Uh, well, I won't play. I, I don't play the A. I'll play either July fourth or fifth, depending on how far I get in the limit hold'em. 
Probably play July 4th. That's the main event. And then July 8th, I will play the 3K Limit Hold'em 6-Max, <clears throat> provided that I'm not still in the main. To be in the main on July 8th, I believe that would be day 4. Because day 2... No, it would be day 3. So it's, I guess it's possible I could miss it. Because day 2 will probably be on... July 6th and 7th, yeah, and July 8th is day 3. Okay, so I guess there's a chance I missed that if I make day 3. A chance meaning like a reasonable chance. So I will be selling packages this year, as I have since 2012, and actually uh, even before that. And last year I took the 10Ks out. I didn't sell any 10Ks last year through the site. Uh, C-Money wanted to buy... All 40% of me last year So I sold it to him At the exact same markup I sell it to you guys um, When the scandal involving C-Money came down Some people accused me of uh, Being complicit in it Because he, you know, he had bought me into those 10k events And I said no I could have sold these I sell out every year So I could have sold these at the exact same markup And that's true Was it a little more convenient? That just one guy did it and didn't have to hassle with the paperwork Yeah, it, it was more convenient But it wasn't so much more convenient that, uh, that that's why I did it The reason I did it is just because uh, He wanted to buy pieces of these And he doesn't like buying micro pieces Because he's a high stakes player And after all he'd done for the site I thought this would be Something I'd offer to him first And if he wanted to do it I would do it Otherwise I'd put it out In the general market But uh, anyway We're back to selling it On the general market So there's two packages Because I, I What I learned here Is that The 10Ks If I include them In the first package in, in the, if, if I have them all In one package Then They disproportionately Affect my overall results So I can do fairly well In the in the lower buy-in events Like not kill it But like be profitable in them And then if I brick the 10Ks I'm a guaranteed loser so this way, you can choose if you want only the smaller events, if you want only the 10K events, or if you want both. Now, I realized something. I had always just done a 1.2, meaning 20% markup, period, for all this time, for everything. That was it. Either 20% markup or nothing, or you just don't sell it at all. And I, I didn't – a lot of people, what they like to do is pick and choose events, and they, if they pick the events that they think they're the best at, they pick – Markups which are just crazy 40%, 50% Like I I wouldn't feel right doing that There are certain events Where I think I have The highest chance in caching Like the 1500 limit hold'em Is one of them I, I think the 1500 Mixed Omaha Not mixed The mixed Omaha too But especially the limit Omaha I think that one I have a very good shot At caching Compared to The average person So there's certain events I think I have a much better shot At caching than others But Still I, I, that's why it's a package. Some some events are going to be better than others for me, and I think it all averages out to where the 1.2 markup is still fair. But I will admit that the 10k events can be tougher. The 10k limit hold'em definitely is tougher. The 10k 08 uh, certainly my starting table was not tough, but I, I think I happen to. Luck into an easy table I don't think every table was like that And there are some very tough players in the field And you you can't just beat the fish 
these 10K events don't get a ton of people, so you've got to make the final two tables basically to be paid here. And to get there, you've got to get past a lot of good players after all the fish fall out. So for that reason, I said, you know, even though I am taking on some real expenses here, like I'm not getting the rooms free anymore. I, I, I just spent a lot of money booking rooms to stay here during this time. And it, it was uh, depressing to have to do that because Seven Stars, they don't get the free rooms anymore. In fact, I'm not even going to be Seven Star anymore after uh, July th- uh, January 31st of this year. End of an era for me. Even if I was, I wouldn't get the free rooms. That's why I'm not going to be anymore. So I'm, I'm spending real money, especially on the rooms. And of course, I'm spending my time doing it. But I thought about the 10Ks and I said, you know... The 10Ks, I'm playing those more just because I enjoy playing them, and I'd like to win a bracelet in one of them. Not because I think I've got such a wonderful edge in these that I'm so much better than the other players which are in them. I'm, I'm better than the fish, for sure. I'm way better than the fish. But, you know, there's a lot of very good players in these events, and I'm not going to be so arrogant to say that you know I'm on another level than they are. I'm not. So I don't want to charge too much for the markup for those. Those I'm more happy to just take down the variance to enter these. I don't want to charge no markup because, as I said, I have expenses to do it. You know, you're, I, I have to pay real money out of my pocket to stay in these hotels. I've got, I've got to pay real money for the food. I've got to, uh, I, I spend real time playing these. So I don't want to charge no markup, but I, I, I didn't want to charge 1.2 anymore. I wanted to do something a little more fair to people. So... Here's the way it's going to be. Package number one will have all events I'm playing between $1,000 and $3,000 buy-ins. Anything as low as 1000 or anything as high as 3000 will be in package number one. The market will be the usual 1.2. Package number two will have only the 10K events, which will be the two, but not the main. The two it will have will be the 10K limit hold'em and the 10K 08. But the markup will be 1.1. It'll be 10%. The markup will be half as much. So it's a 10% markup for those, 20% markup for the 3K and below. Except the big 50 I'm not selling because the buy-in so little I don't want to make it even smaller. So the big 50... I, I'm not, not selling the big 50 because I think I have such a huge edge in it. I actually think I have a bigger edge in other events than the big 50. But I'm not selling the big 50 because it's already kind of feels like a waste of my time to enter a $500 event. And I don't want to make it any lower. So that's, uh, that one's not being sold. And the main's not being sold for the opposite reason that I don't want to, if I do strike a miracle and make the final table in that, I want to keep the money. No offense to the rest of you, but I want to keep the money if I accomplish that. I'll, I'll take the 10K risk on that one. And uh, so that one I don't sell pieces of. Everything else I'm selling. So there'll be further announcements about this. Don't bother asking me right now how much it's going to be, how much you're going to pay. I haven't even finalized the schedule. This is what I think I'm going to play. It's possible they'll even change things around. and I'll have to change things around myself. So I have to wait till they finalize the schedule, and then I have to wait till I finalize what I'm going to do. But I've already booked my rooms. Spent a long time today doing it. It was a big clusterfuck with Caesar that I won't even get into. But I got it done. 
And those are my packages, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. One final word about this before I move on. What about my health issues? How am I going to play this year if I have these health problems, which I did not have in 2018 or beforehand? Well, I can do it, is the answer. I, I have done things that can prove that I can do it now. Number one, I can stay in hotels just fine. I've stayed in hotels in Vegas several times since this all started. I couldn't at first, but starting from late October, I tried it. I've stayed in hotels a few times already since then with no incident, no issue. And I've played poker live a number of times since then. Not, I've played a tournament live at 08, uh, the bike, the bike uh, circuit event that I told you guys about and bubbled it. You can even ask Alan Kessler. You can ask Alan Kessler, who sat next to me, if I, if I played that well and if I looked like I was having any issues. So I can totally do it. If, for whatever reason, conditions worsen for me or new health problems pop up, then I will cancel it and I will give you your money back in full. But if things stay the same as they are now, even if they don't improve at all any further, I should be able to play with no issue just as well as I have other years. I was wondering about this when I was first having my problems. I will admit that if I was in the condition as I was in August and the first half of September, if like the August 15th to September 15th period, if that's how I felt, I could not play. Even even through the end of September, even in, until like mid-October, if any of it were that, that first two months, I would not have been able to do this. And I was wondering if maybe this was going to be the end for me for the World Series. But fortunately, mainly because of the psychological improvements I've had since then, I can do it. And if you have doubts, then you don't have to buy a piece of me. It's that easy. As usual, I will give very frequent updates on the Dandruff Poker Twitter account. You'll feel like you're there. I guarantee I probably give more updates than just about anyone in the whole entire World Series. You really get to feel like you're at the table with me when I do these events. I know that's part of the appeal of why people buy pieces of me. So let's move on here. I'll give more information about this as it comes. We're still only in January, and this doesn't take place till the very end of May. Next on our agenda, Jeffrey Pollock. Haven't talked about him in some time. Jeffrey Pollock was the World Series of Poker commissioner, which they don't have anymore, by the way. That's uh, a position that I don't even believe officially exists. Um, let's see what Ty Stewart's official position is. I don't think he's commissioner. Yeah, he's executive director. Yeah, I didn't think there was a commissioner anymore. It's kind of a stupid position that you think of it. But the way the hierarchy used to be at the World Series of Poker was, I'm talking about the staff there, the, the management. They had at the top Jeffrey Pollock 
and he was the commissioner. Under him was Jack Effel, the tournament director. And I'm not sure where Seth Polanski was there. I know he was the marketing guy and still is. I don't know if he was lower at the time or if he was the same as Jack Effel. Uh, nowadays, Ty Stewart is the head of the World Series. He's called the executive director. But you don't really see much of him. The two you do see around the World Series are Jack Effel, who's the tournament director, and Seth Polanski, the director of marketing. And they're both on the same level as far as I know. And they're both, like, other than Ty Stewart, considered the top managers of the World Series. But uh, anyway, Jeffrey Pollock was not a poker guy prior to getting hired to work for the World Series. So in 2005... He was hired as vice president of marketing for marketing for Harris, which which was not about the World Series. He was the vice president of marketing. He was responsible for various uh, sports ventures at Harris, such as boxing and motorsports. But the World Series was uh, under his umbrella. He said at the time, my top priority is to grow the popularity of the World Series of Poker. It's already the number one brand in poker, but we're going to make it even stronger through world-class media partnerships, strategic marketing alliances, and superior customer service. Well, I, I, the last part's laughable, but they did do a good job with the media partnerships and the marketing. I'll give them that. Jeffrey Pollock is a marketer. That was his background. He was not a poker guy. He was a marketer. And... He brought marketing expertise to the World Series. Uh, Prior to that, he worked at NASCAR as a marketer. And he was good at marketing. I will give Jeffrey Pollock credit for being the first one to really market the World Series well. The World Series grew exponentially, partially because of the huge growth in poker in the mid-2000s due to the televising of poker and that had nothing to do with Jeffrey Pollock but he did take advantage of it to really make the World Series grow as a brand so I'll give him that but the problem was he also he he became the executive director of the World Series and he became basically the head of it He was promoted to be the commissioner of the World Series in January 2006. So he was just a marketer in 2005. In January 2006, he was the commissioner, the head. And there he didn't do a very good job. There he made a lot of missteps. I'll tell you what some of the missteps were. First of all, he did an incredibly poor job of anticipating the fields. So they'd have a big field in 2006 for some event. They'd barely be able to accommodate people. They'd have to put people on waiting lists and alternates. It was embarrassing. So you'd say, okay, maybe they didn't expect this much. So what happens? They hold the exact same event the following year, and they start off with the same capacity. (laughs) So... No attempt to mitigate the problem they know is coming. 
It's one thing if you're blindsided. It's another thing to know what happened last year and then still run into the same problem again. And that's, that's what he did. In 2007, they put in what was known as the poker tent, which was a disaster. They, he put in a tent that was a literal tent outside the Amazon room of the World Series. How do you think a tent would work out in a place that gets as much as 117 degrees in the summer and gets very windy? Is that a good place for a tent? No, it is not. When I first played in that tent, I couldn't believe it. It was boiling hot in there. Oh, there were air conditioners running, but they weren't strong enough. It was boiling hot in there. It had to be uh, close to 100 degrees in there. It was so hot I couldn't concentrate. And I'm not kidding. I actually didn't play well because I was so hot and uncomfortable. And I got off to a good start and then I, I chunked off all my chips. I really did chunk them all off. Not, not intentionally, but I really didn't play that well and chunked off all my chips. And after I was out, I said, you know, I'm mad at two people. One, myself for chunking off my chips because I was uncomfortable. And two... At the World Series for putting me in here. So then I went over to find out who was responsible. And they said, well, you can talk to the tournament director. I said, well, who's that now? They said, it's Jack Effel. I said, okay, never heard of him. Where is he? He was new at that point. So I went over to Jack Effel and uh, we had an argument about it. But it wasn't Jack's decision to actually put that poker tent there. Maybe a part of his decision, but Jeffrey Pollock... Uh, this was, uh, you know, he was the commissioner. And they eventually ended the tent that year when it blew down during an event. It actually blew down with people in there. How, how people weren't injured, I don't know. There was a day with howling winds and they still put people in that damn tent. But here's the worst part. They could have avoided it. Because... While they had that tent running, they also were running low-limit cash games in the Amazon room. (laughs) And I asked them, I said, why are you running $4, $8 limit hold'em in here and putting people in that tent? Why not just close those low-limit cash games and run the bracelet events? Well, not everybody comes to play bracelet events. You have to understand we try to accommodate everyone. I said, this isn't the World Series of low-limit poker. This is the World Series of Poker. It's supposed to be for the, about the tournament. That should be priority number one. So I was treated like I was crazy. I was treated like, you know, how dare I say that they should close the cash games. Uh, what do they do the following year? They close the cash games. <laughs> and they bragged about it. They go, oh, we're, we're, from now on, we're closing the cash games uh, so we have room for the tournament. I go, hmm, where'd you get that idea? There was also... The controversy with the Poker Peak cards. The Poker Peak cards were special playing cards that were meant to make it easier to see what the cards are without lifting them. You could just lift up the corner and the number would be printed on the side of the card, in the very corner of the card. They thought, how innovative. Isn't this cool? They even had this 
poker advisory board of certain pros. I remember Negreanu was on it, but they had like certain pros on this poker advisory board, and they ran it by them. Hey, guys, what do you think of these poker beat cards? Uh, yeah, it seems cool. Like they didn't even, these idiot pros didn't even bother to think about it. Somehow they all signed off on this. So I play the very first event of the year, the very first open event of the year, and I hear Mike Mattisal yell, Floor! Floor, I object! Floor! And I go, what, what could it be objecting about on the very first hand dealt? Well, Mattisal immediately noticed how awful these cards were, and he was right. Mattisal was objecting to the Poker Peak cards, and boy, did everybody hate them. I don't know how these pros on the Poker Advisory Board said it was okay, because they were awful. And first of all, the the corner the the rank and suit of the card was printed so small that the corner thing really wasn't worth anything. You, you, it would be so hard to see; it wasn't worth looking at that. That was number one. Number two was that they didn't bother to make it clear which side the numbers were supposed to be on, so nobody knew which one was a six and which one was a nine. It's like, well, do I have pocket sixes? Do I have pocket nines? Who knows? What, did I flop a set or do I just have an under pair? I don't know. I'll just, I'll just have to guess. So everyone hated that. And in a display of supreme arrogance, Jeffrey Pollock actually had his signature printed on the back of every card. <laughs> so not only were the cards awful, but they had a signature on the back. It's a combination of incompetence and arrogance. Great combo. After a lot of objection, they quickly ordered some regular cards and replaced them. There were some other areas of controversy. During the 2006 main event, the tournament finished with more chips than it was supposed to, even with the color-ups, that there was no way they could explain how these extra chips got on there. And it was believed that chips were smuggled in in some way, either from other events or possibly stolen. So they actually introduced a new chip set only for the main event, so this can't happen anymore. But in 2006, that wasn't done yet. In 2007, they had a laughably bad rebuy uh, procedure for the rebuy events or for add-ons where the floor man would just take your cash, give you no receipt, and then just hand you chips. So what ended up happening is that floor men were stealing from the prize pool. They were adding chips for these rebuys and add-ons and just pocketing the money. And then not acknowledging these add-ons happened. Supposedly, a number of people were dismissed from the World Series of Poker who were suspected of doing this. Though no one was arrested, but they suspected certain people and dismissed them after this. But the fact that this could have... Can you imagine as recently as 2007, you could actually just rebuy or add on at the World Series of Poker at all places without going through the cage? Crazy. When I noticed that, I'm like, wow, 
How do I even prove this for tax purposes? That was my first thought. When Jeffrey Pollack left the World Series of Poker, there were mixed opinions of him. He left on November 13, 2009. He said he's resigning as a commissioner. He said, everything I set out to accomplish in 2005, I think I've accomplished. The World Series of Poker is bigger than ever before. The brand is in strong position, and the player experience is better than it's ever been. I'm going to take a moment to pause and reflect and then think things will work, uh, then think things through and make some decisions. But uh, there are mixed feelings about Jeffrey Pollock. Some felt that he was inexperienced and didn't know what he was doing, just a career marketer put in charge of an important event that he didn't really have the experience to run. Others praised him for growing the World Series brand and making it as popular and large as it was. And, uh, uh-oh. That's saying a reconnect, reconnecting poor connection. With, uh, we lost the Trader Ruski. Trying to get him back. Sounds like I'm on a submarine. Looking for Trader Ruski's sub here. going to torpedo him in a second if he doesn't come back. All right. We'll try to find him later. So, some felt that a lot of these missteps and fails were definitely avoidable and he didn't know what he was doing. Others gave him praise for all the marketing he did that brought a lot of recreational players into these events. But he's better known for what he did after the World Series. In January 2011, Jeffrey Pollock and Annie Duke announced the launch of Federated Sports Plus Gaming, which is kind of a weird company name, FS Plus G, the parent company for the Epic Poker League. The Epic Poker League was originally designed to showcase the best players in the world and kind of turn them into top figures in sports. They were going to be 200 players admitted to the league and they were going to be ranked by a system that was, quote, driven by mathematics and proven historic achievement. At the time, Jeffrey Pollock stated, I've long believed the top professional poker players create enormous value for the industry and are skilled in a way that is worthy of star treatment. Our new league will celebrate poker professionals like never before and provide a tournament experience of the Palms that is first class for, at every turn. The only problem is they never quite explained how they were going to make money on this. It didn't have a very good business plan. It was taking on a lot of expenses, and they weren't collecting very much money from the tournaments they were running. So wh- where was all the money going to come from? Especially because the first season was going to have four rake-free main events of 20K buy-in and a $1 million free roll for those who finished in the top 27 in points. Well, given the million-dollar free roll, 27-handed, that people could compete for, there was value 
to play in this if you were a good player. So a number of people got involved in this. And those who had uh, the top 27 points were very excited that they thought they'd be getting this million-dollar free roll with just 27 people in it. The problem, as I said, was that the Epic Fail Poker League, which is what it really was, didn't have any kind of real revenue stream, nor did they even consider this issue. Like they, they just kind of figured they'll lose money the first year and it'll become so big, it'll become epic, that they'll, then they'll just make all kinds of money. But they, they couldn't even explain how. It was like the worst business plan I've seen in a long time, where they, even in the best-case scenario, couldn't really explain how they were going to make money. They had some television presence, but they bought that presence. They they actually bought television time. Some on CBS and some on this uh, network called the Velocity Network. However, after just three events, they had already filed for bankruptcy. They generated a whopping $38,000 in revenue... And they accumulated about $7 million worth of debt. (laughs) Sounds like an Elia Lezra business. The worst thing was, it wasn't even clear how they were ever going to make money. Like, this wasn't a surprise. I wish I could have bet against this thing. $38,000 in revenue, $7 million in debt. Wow. So what happened to that million-dollar free roll that everyone was promised? It never took place. People played these events believing there would be a million-dollar free roll. Never was it said, only if we survive to the end of the year. I mean, they should have sued Jeffrey Pollock. They should have sued Annie Duke. They should have sued the Palms. The players really got screwed here badly. They got ripped off out of a million-dollar free roll. They played believing it was to earn a spot in a million-dollar free roll, and it never took place. By the way, you know who didn't lose money? Jeffrey Pollock and Annie Duke both collected salaries of over $300,000, and they didn't give that money back. Wouldn't it be nice if they could at least give back their salaries and say, okay, sorry, it didn't work out. Here's our salaries back. How about a free roll for that? That would have still been like a $700,000 free roll. Nope, of course they wouldn't do that. Somehow, despite this epic failure... Jeffrey Pollock continued to get work. In early 2015, the San Diego Chargers, now the LA Chargers, hired Jeffrey Pollock as a special advisor to the team's chair and president, Dean Spanos. And he was the consultant for the future revenue growth and development of a new stadium. So how that worked out. Where, where is that stadium in San Diego? However... He did assist Chargers special counsel Mark Fabiani in the hiring of the company that would design the stadium in Carson, California, where they moved to L.A. But Jeffrey Pollack has a new job now, as of 2019. That's why I'm telling you guys all this. That's why 
we're doing this topic, not to go over Jeffrey Pollack's fails and follies of the past, but to talk about the present. This has not been discussed in very many places online, but it is true, and you can even Google it and find it, that Jeffrey Pollack has been hired as the new president of the XFL. (laughs) The XFL is a football league that has been revived. It started and finished in 2001. It was an epic failure. And now it it has been revived. It's coming back. The XFL is coming back in 2020. So they are going to change it a little bit. It's going to be faster and simpler. And they're going to try to create a league that has fewer controversies off of the field, like the original XFL in 2001 had. The original XFL was uh, started by Vince McMahon of uh, wrestling fame. And it was supposed to be kind of a combination of professional wrestling and, uh, and football. It was very strange. It was a joint venture between the World Wrestling Federation and NBC. And it would start after the NFL was over, so it wasn't going to be competing with the NFL, which is much bigger and more popular and more established. And they were hoping what they would do is they'd, they'd get fans who were waiting for the NFL to come back, and this is what they'd watch in the meantime. And they're encouraging rougher play than the NFL and having fewer rules. Started with eight teams. Anyway, the whole thing was a gigantic failure. But it's it's been revived. I thought they'd never I thought that would never come back, but somehow it's coming back. And Jeffrey Pollock has been hired as the president. They just announced this on January twenty second that Jeffrey Pollock is the president and chief operating officer of The XFL. For the Chargers, he was the chief marketing and strategy officer and special advisor. Given how he epically failed at the Epic Poker League, I don't think this is the right guy at all to hire for the XFL. If they want to hire him just as a marketer, fine. I mean, at least he's shown he can market well. But to put this guy in charge of anything is a huge mistake. I've seen personally from my time at the World Series when he was running it that he had no clue what he was doing. He's good at marketing and nothing else. This is someone who's when he's put in charge of something operationally or as president of something, he screws it up. If you go look at the picture of him, it's kind of funny. If you go look at the picture. It, I, I 
posted this on the Scam Scandals and Shadiness forum. There's a thread there about this. Go look at the picture I posted of Jeffrey Pollock. He looks like he's bewildered. He has a look on his face like, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm just happy to have this job. That's, that's what it looks like he's saying in this picture. Go, go take a look. I'm not kidding. He looks like they said, hey, Jeffrey, let's take a picture of you. What? There you go, Jeffrey. That, that, that'll work. That, that captures you perfectly. Unbelievable, this guy keeps getting work. You, you'd think after the well-publicized failure of the Epic Poker League that the, he wouldn't get any jobs again doing anything sig- significant, definitely not running anything. I would understand if they said, okay, yes, he failed badly at the Epic Poker League. We're just not going to let him run anything anymore. But as far as being a marketer, he was good, so he'll be a marketer in the future. I would understand that. But how could he be president of anything after the Epic Poker League? The problem is, in all industries, is that they always want to hire people who appear to just have experience. And they don't focus so much on what type of job they did. They don't look so critically often at how successful was the person at what they did in the past that was similar. They just look at, was this person in the industry? Do they currently have some kind of similar job in the industry? Yes, okay, Hire them. So here he was the marketing and strategy officer for the Chargers, which is an NFL team. And they figure, okay, he's been with the Chargers for a few years. He worked at the World Series of Poker in NASCAR. Yeah, seems like a good guy to hire as president. Don't they do any due diligence to see about this epic poker thing and say the one thing he's ever actually run in his life was a total failure? The other thing he ran, the World Series of Poker, I mean, this is kind of harder to find, but that operationally it was a disaster and that the only reason it did well was because the marketing was so good? You look at the World Series of Poker today versus back when Pollock was in charge, it's like day and night. It's run so much better today than it was back then. Some of it was from learning from experience, but but some of it has to do with who's in charge. Yes, there's plenty of fail still to talk about, but nothing compared to when Pollock was there. 2007 was the absolute, by far, worst year of the World Series the way it was run. It was a disaster. So that's a guy I... Wasn't happy to see getting a job, especially how he screwed the poker community. That's the worst part. It's one thing to be kind of incompetent with running something. It's another thing to just screw everyone, which he did, and kept his salary. All right, if anybody wants to call in, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. I'm going to try to reach uh, Trader Ruski one more time before we go on to the next topic. What's happening, Drop? Got you back. We had some issues with the connections. <clears throat> yeah, and I was listening too. You know, I think too, it's like, I mean, he must have just great corporate relationships to bring in sponsorships, probably through NASCAR. Yeah. And I'm sure that was a sale to the NFL. Look, I went to the World Series of Poker. I brought it from this to this. 
a lot of the relationships I had with companies wouldn't get involved in a gambling thing. So, so after I left that and tried to start my own thing, you know, it didn't work out. Yeah, that's and that's a good point. And because he can point to the World Series of Poker growing so much in the years he was there, that's a very strong thing he can raise. And the fact that all these corporate sponsors got involved, as you said, so he brings this to them, and it looks like a great hire. And 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 they may not even look at what happened with Epic Poker, or he can just explain it away. Oh, you know, it just didn't. Uh, it it was something we tried that was innovative. It didn't work as planned, but uh, it probably make some other excuses, and that's that. But look at the World Series. Look at the World Series. Look what I did with that, and that's on a much bigger stage. Obviously, I know what I'm doing. So, yeah, you have to look more closely to really see what what the guy's really about. And as I said, I'll give him credit for being a great marketer. I will. I'm not going to say everything about the guy is bad or incompetent. I'm just saying he 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 just isn't good at running things. I mean, to to have the Epic Poker League, it's one thing to run a business, a new business, and fail. That happens all the time. But to run something that nobody can even understand the business plan of how it can work, even in the best case scenario, it just it was mind-boggling. I said that at the time. Am I missing something? How am I to understand this? Like, How can they expect to make money here? And I think the answer was, we're going to become so huge that the companies that we're paying to air our show right now are going to go, wow, this is so huge, we're going to pay you to air it now. That was his plan, from what I remember, which is crazy. That's really a huge leap. It's not like he saw the Epic Poker thing was was doing so well and he could see this down the line. They're trying something totally new and expecting it to be so popular that the paying from airtime goes to being paid for airtime. There was no way that was going to happen. And they were starting it when poker was already slowly on the decline. All right, let's let's move on to the two Daniel Negreanu topics we have. We, we seem to have Daniel Negreanu topics a lot these days. I want to talk about a, a tweet that Sean Deeb sent to Negreanu that got him quite angry. But it shows there, there is some skepticism out there regarding Negreanu and his recent uh, engagement to Amanda Leatherman. So, Negreanu likes to pontificate on his Twitter about just things in general from life. He, he wants you to look at him as almost like a guru, someone that's wise and that can give you life advice. Now, this may be in reference to Elia Lezra. I don't know. But he just wrote this general tweet. I've loaned money and I've been stiffed. It's unfortunate, but I don't hate those people. I don't whine about how, quote, unfair it is because I know who made the decision to loan the money. Me. No one put a gun to my head. I'm not at, quote, fault, but I am responsible. Uh, Now, first of all, I don't like that logic. He's right that you have to be responsible about who you loan money to. That I agree with. But yes, it's unfair if you loan money to someone and they stiff you. And yes, you should be angry at them. Just say, oh, I don't hate those people. It's my fault for loaning you the money. No, it's not. It's their fault for taking a loan that they couldn't pay back off and under false pretenses, and then screwing you. So I, I don't even like... That's almost like victim-blaming what he's doing. It's almost like saying, well, you know, I've, I've, I've walked into these unfortunate things where people have screwed me, but 
It's my fault. I should have known better. Don't hate the people who screwed me. Hate me for letting myself get screwed. I gotta hate myself for that. No. You you try to prevent it. You can feel badly. You can feel stupid for letting yourself get screwed. But it is the fault of the person who screwed you. Always. He says, I'm not at fault, but I am responsible. Yeah, but it sounds like you're really not holding the person who did it to you as enough fault. So, because this was written during the whole Elia Lezra thing, and who knows, maybe Negreanu is friends with him. He didn't mention Elia Lezra, but this is very interestingly timed. Now, let's think about what was being said about the Elia Lezra thing. That Cole South was complaining. Sean Deeb wasn't complaining loudly, but confirmed that he got screwed by Elia Lezra. So Negranu said, I don't whine about how unfair it is. So it looks like this was a jab at anyone who was complaining about how Ellie screwed them, which I think is terrible. Of course you should whine about how unfair it is. Of course you should complain about it. It's not whining. It's, it's, it's calling out someone for doing some crappy, something crappy to you. So Sean Deeb saw this and probably was pissed because he probably felt this was partially aimed at him because he's one of the people who got screwed by Elia Lezra and recently confirmed it. So Sean came back with a zinger of his own by quoting the Elia Lezra post and then saying, can't wait until two years when this tweet is about divorce. <laughs> so Sean feels in two years Negreanu is going to be saying Well, I've I've gotten married and been stiffed It's unfortunate, but I don't hate Amanda I don't whine about how unfair it is Because I know who made the decision to marry her Me No one put a gun to my head I'm not at fault, but I'm responsible <laughs> Well, Sean may be right I hate to say it, but Sean may be right I'll say this, if you've seen Sean Deeb's wife, uh, you know, he, he didn't marry just some hot blonde chick who gave him attention. He he clearly didn't marry for looks. He married someone that, you know, and Sean isn't a good-looking guy himself. I'm sure he'll admit that, too. Sean married someone that that he really felt a connection with, apparently. He married someone that he loved and not because she was beautiful. And, you know, he's still married to her. So, uh... Good for him. He seems happy. I've, I've criticized him for other things, rightfully so. But it uh, seems like his marriage is good, from what I can tell. And he must be looking at Negreanu going, okay, you know, Negreanu thinks he's on top of the world with this whole thing, but, you know, wait till it crumbles down. But he probably wasn't going to say anything until he felt like Negreanu was lecturing him and others for publicly calling out Elia Lezra. He didn't directly say that, but I think the fact that Sean Deeb was the one to jab him like that is, is pretty telling. So, Negranu wrote back, that's a pretty shitty tweet, even for you, Sean. Like, what in the world? So this is the exchange that went back and forth. Sean wrote, marriage and poker is a lot harder than anyone thinks it is. I would say the tweet is about almost anyone. And Daniel said, it's still an incredibly shitty thing to tweet. Like, what compels you to write that you're one strange dude? 
Well, I think I know what compels him to write. I just explained it. I think he was mad about that this was probably about Ellie, and he felt there was like a passive-aggressive jab at, jab at him, so that <laughs> then, then he did a jab back, and now Sean also won't admit that he was talking directly about Daniel. Just saying, oh, you know, marriage is just hard when you have, you're a poker player. No, come on, Sean. It's because you think Daniel married a gold digger who's left him once before and is going to leave him again. That, that's what you think. Just admit it. And just admit that you thought this was a jab at you and others complaining about Ellie. Go ahead, Sean. Come on. Just be honest. So then when Daniel said, what compels you to write that you're one strange dude, Sean wrote back, because it's the truth. Everyone should read it. There's no way to pull off the proper balance while playing full time. You're lucky you don't have to. And most wives need a lot more attention than people realize, especially if you end up having kids. I mean, that's true, but... Uh, Sean, you're married. Like, what are you saying here, Sean? Are you saying that your marriage is not going to work? I mean, the first, the very first comment Sean made was, was the best one. That in this particular case, he's skeptical of the, of the impending marriage. Whereas Sean's marriage seems to be you know, on more solid ground. It was for more solid reasons. Uh, it's true that being married and being a poker player is tough. It's even tougher if you're a tournament player, by the way. At least cash players don't have to leave home. They have to leave to go to the casino. But they, for the most part, cash players spend a lot of time at home. Whereas tournament players are traveling all over the world. That's where I find it very difficult. I, think, I can imagine it would be incredibly difficult to maintain a marriage if you're a tournament player traveling everywhere. Unless your wife's coming with you everywhere. But she can only do that if there's no kids. But I see these tournament guys that travel everywhere and their wife is back home with the kids. And I go, this seems kind of crappy to me. Unless you just hate being with your wife. But I wouldn't like that situation. To be honest, I, I miss Benjamin and his mom. I, I miss them a lot when I'm at the World Series. I think I couldn't do this all year. Anyway, let's go on with the exchange here. So, Negreanu says back, doesn't make you any less of a dick to actually think it was worthwhile to craft this tweet. Tasteless and classless. Like, what is the point? Going for laughs? You wrote, can't wait like you're excited for it. Like you're rooting for a divorce? How fucked up are you? Ha ha, funny guy. Jeez, man, what a dick. So that was the last thing I saw from Sean Deeb. Looks like he just kind of dropped out of that. However, someone posted something that uh, Negreanu wrote on December 31st, 2018 that makes him look like a, a bit like a hypocrite. This is what Negreanu wrote on December 31st. One wish for 2019 and beyond. Comedians feel free to be vulgar, offensive, and obnoxious as they choose to be without being labeled as awful human beings. Jokes are offensive by nature. A sense of humor for all in 2019. Well, you know, that's that's a good point. If Daniel's wishing for comedians to be as offensive as they want to be to get a laugh, and everyone's got to just roll with the punches there. If the joke's about you and your marriage, Daniel, and you're definitely a public figure, there's no question, then you can't be mad about this. If that's your wish. That's a good point. Very good point. So that's it. Nothing really more to say about this. 
Daniel was obviously very unhappy about it. But Daniel also has to know you you know his tweet in the first place was kind of an asshole tweet. That's what I would have said back as Sean. I would have turned it back around on him. I would have instead of defending no 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 I'm just saying marriage and poker is hard. No, you're not saying that, Sean. Come on, just you should say back I thought it was an asshole thing to do for you to mock people who are unhappy about being stiffed by scammers. Let them complain in peace without you pulling your I'm better than you because I don't complain act. That's what you should have said back, Sean. And then if Daniel says, well, why were you rude to me? Well, because I thought it was a rude tweet. I decided to be rude to you, too. He could even say it. I I think you may be referring to me and the Ellie Lezer thing, and I don't appreciate it. And if you're not, it, I still don't appreciate what you're writing, because it's, it's shaming people for calling out scammers. It's not whining. That's what he should have said. Sean, I know we don't get along that well, but if you want to hire me as your PR guy, I'm, I'm available. And on a more positive note for Daniel Negreanu, He is doing something nice for a recreational poker player who's in very bad health. And I think Daniel's honestly doing this out of the goodness of his heart. I don't think he's doing this with any kind of motive for personal gain. Where is the article here? Every time I, I lose something I've saved... Every single time. Ah. Here it is. I found the article. A man named Zachary Butler is 33 years old, a recreational poker player, and a big poker fan. But Zachary Butler is not like other 33-year-old men. He has a very bad hereditary health issue, which has him in a wheelchair and is going to kill him very soon. He has what's known as Friedrich's ataxia. I've never heard of it before. Friedrich's ataxia, A-T-A-X-I-A. It's a rare genetic neural disease that causes impaired muscle movement, and it gets worse and worse over time. The person's mind stays normal, so they don't deteriorate mentally, but physically they deteriorate terribly, and eventually they die. And when I say die, like an early death, I'm saying. So he has had this most of his life. He's currently in a wheelchair. And... Apparently it's worsened so much recently that it's been determined that he's not going to live very much longer. There is a nonprofit organization called the Dream Foundation, similar to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, except I think this one is uh, for adults rather than kids. So the Dream Foundation is for adults with terminal illnesses. And Zachary's wish was to go to Las Vegas, 
play a little bit of poker and meet Daniel Negreanu, who is his favorite poker player. He's been a big fan of Negreanu's. He's tried to watch every hand Negreanu's ever played that's been televised. And a company named uh, Genentech that partnered with the Dream Foundation to fund Zach Butler's wish sent him t-shirts, cards, and a travel kit as well as $200 gambling money and a flight to come out to Las Vegas. And he's going to fly to Las Vegas, play a little bit of poker, meet Daniel Negreanu, and uh, even play a few hands with him. I'm not sure what setting they're going to play, but I don't know if it's going to be in a real card room or a home game, but uh, uh, he's always wanted to play poker with Daniel Negreanu and meet him, and he's going to get to do that. And from what I can tell, Negreanu's just agreeing to do this to be a nice guy. Not He's not getting anything out of it. And his mom said, this this man, referring to Zachary, can tell you anything about Dan- Daniel Negreanu, anything and everything. When he meets him, that's going to be the big moment. I'll probably cry. I wonder what Zach Buckler thinks of his marriage to, or his engagement to Amanda Leatherman. That should have been his wish. He said, Daniel... Please, just as my final wish, don't marry her. You're making a mistake. Uh, Apparently, Zach has been losing body mass and his heart has had palpitations due to the thickening of the walls of his heart. And that's eventually what's going to kill him when that even worsens further. So it's very sad at age 33 through no fault of his own, that this guy has that situation going on. First, it's been holding him down physically since age 12, and and uh, also his life's about to end at age 33. So, at least he is going to have a nice moment there, and, and I, I give Negreanu props for doing this. And Negreanu tweeted that he's done this before, and that he's always flattered when meeting him is something that these people want to do. I can understand this because Negreanu, he takes a lot of heat from other pros that, that see something he does that are either weird or, or player unfriendly, especially since he's joined poker stars. As, but to the average fan, he's very nice. I've seen that myself. I've played with him at the table where he, even puts on a little performance there and constantly talks. It's actually kind of annoying to me as another player, but I understood it. Uh, he'll sign autographs. He'll take pictures of people. He's very, very friendly and nice. He doesn't come off as aloof at all. He seems very accessible and very happy to interact with the fans. Whereas a lot of these other poker pros, like Ivy's the opposite. Ivy just wants to talk to nobody. Ivy has a look on his face like, get the hell away from me. You can watch me for a distance, but do not talk to me. That's, that's the way Ivy looks. Uh, Negron is the opposite. And that's what's is part of what has made him so popular in poker. It's not just his accomplishments in poker, but because he is very friendly to the average fan. 
and and just seems like the type of guy they want to get to know. Seems like a a regular guy who's just very good at poker, not some arrogant, untouchable asshole. So that's that's why people like this this Zachary Butler are huge fans of his. So it's it's good that he's doing that, and making the time, and not making up excuses not to do it, or you know, only doing things if they make money from him. He's actually you know, someone says, "Hey, I, my dream has always been to meet Negranu and play some poker hands with him." Okay, you know, I'll do it. And you could say, "Well, who wouldn't do that?" Well, when you're as well known as Negranu is, there's a lot of people out there who want to spend time with you. There's a lot of people out there who have out there who have dreams to play poker with you. And if you, if you granted the, all these people their dreams, you'd be doing nothing but granting these dreams. That's all you'd be doing. So, at that point, it's not as flattering that all these people want to meet you or hang out with you or play poker with you because you're you're, you're such a big figure in the game. It's like, I'm sure a lot of people have uh, dreams of hanging out with or playing you know, a little basketball with LeBron James. That doesn't mean LeBron James has to uh, play basketball with everybody who wants to play with him. It's kind of the same thing. So, here in the ground, I says, okay, you know, these guys, they've been dealt something very bad in life. And uh, so he's doing something to make it a little bit nicer for them. So I give him credit for that, despite any other criticism that I may have given to him. And see, on this show, I mentioned the good and the bad. I could just sit here bashing Negranu and making fun of his relationship. I could just do that. But uh, And there are, there are people who listen to this show who, who, who really don't like him. I won't name any names, but there's certain people who really don't like him that probably won't like this segment that I'm saying something positive. But I, I will say the positive and the negative about anybody. Try to make this show uh, real and sincere. As unbiased as I can make it. Trader, are you still with us? I'm here. Good, okay, well. But I'm starting to fade. Starting to fade. Are you drinking the tea yet? The tea, yeah, I'm, I'm drinking the tea. Okay. Ali Fazeli is a former poker player that uh, we found out how he was funding his poker play, and that was through scams. He, he ran a ticket scam where he convinced several prominent poker pros to invest in and then just stole the money and used it to gamble with. People did wonder where he was coming up with the money. He'd play these high-stakes games, high-end tournaments, and it just people just didn't think he was that good. And said, you know, he couldn't be a winning player, could he? Well, the answer is no. Ali raised $6.2 million in 2015-2016 from two groups of people in the gambling world and convinced them to invest in his ticket reselling company called Summit Entertainment. The business plan was to buy large quantities of tickets for high-demand sporting events like the Super Bowl and the World Cup and then resell them at a big profit. He had a good sales pitch. Look how much these tickets are scalped for every year. It's a guarantee. You know, We can get them earlier, get them cheaper, just buy large sums of them and then sell them and we're going to make a profit. And you know, Who's not going to pay a huge premium to see the Super Bowl? Who's not going to pay a huge premium to see the World Cup? The poker poker pros are like, okay, sounds good to me. How much money do you need? And they invested. Eric Seidel and John Juwanda were among 
poker pros who were ripped off by this. Another poker pro, Zachary Clark, was another victim. Seidel and Clark put $500,000 into this Summit Entertainment. And I'm not sure what Juwanda put in. It's not clear how much they looked into Fazelli or this Summit Entertainment company. But probably not very much. These poker players tend to be gullible. They just hear something that sounds good and they believe it and they invest. So he said that uh, the reason the, the company failed, this is what he told the investors, was that uh, the ticket sales didn't go well because the NFL prohibited their resale. And he was working on a settlement with the NFL about it. Um, now, of course, tickets get resold anyway, but he's saying that through you know, official channels or that uh, that they have in, in some jurisdictions have a way to prevent it. Uh, in uh, in California, I know that scalping is legal. Though I, I think they can put something on the tickets that they're not transferable and they can confiscate them if they're transferred, but sometimes it's very hard to police. In the Super Bowl, I'm sure they could never police it. But they might be able to shut down companies that are selling them in states where scalping is not legal. I don't know enough about the laws in the other states to comment on that. But anyway, that wasn't even true. The, the truth was he just took the money and gambled with it and lost it. Fazelli pled guilty in July 2018 regarding the whole thing. He was charged with two counts originally, but uh, pled guilty to a single count. And he uh, could have been sentenced to a maximum of 20 years and a fine of $250,000 plus the Amount of fraud that would have been over twelve million, but it's very rare someone gets twenty years. And because of the plea deal, and because the sentencing rarely is anywhere near the twenty years, he got eighteen months. Uh, another man who was a victim was a Californian named uh, Stephen Moreshi. I don't know who that is in poker. Uh, the Aria actually filed an action against him because of unpaid casino markers from 2017. And that uh, he was completely broke in the middle of 2017. Upon the acceptance of the sentence, he said, It makes me sick to my stomach to think of how much I've violated the law and disgraced my family. That's what Ali Fazeli said. So people will, uh, we've talked about this guy before, but people will do a lot to stay in action. A lot of times these players at high roller events and high limit cash games, which seem to be on top of the world and seem to enjoy gambling so much, there's some darkness behind the whole thing. Often they're lying, cheating, and stealing to get the funds to gamble with and that they're still losing and still desperate. And eventually the whole thing comes crashing down. That was one of those cases. Interesting the 
image people like to project about their poker results and the reality. Often two very different things. Sheldon Adelson likes to present the image of someone who does not want to see online poker get legalized. And that's true. That is a true image. When the Department of Justice reinterpreted the 1961 Wire Act as the second reinterpretation, the first reinterpretation was 2011, 50 years after it was written, that it was only applying to sports betting. The next reinterpretation just occurred in November 2018, which we just found out about last week, that it applies to all gambling. So what caused this change almost eight years later? Well, it was suspected that Sheldon Adelson, who's known to have a lot of political influence and throws a lot of money around, that he may have done this behind the scenes. But while there was suspicion, no one had anything yet to tie him to this. But it it has since been found that uh, there was some uh, communication uh, between his people and uh, and th- those responsible for this uh, reinterpretation. Let me find where I, the article I had up here. I thought mentioned that, but it doesn't. So let me try to find the right article. Again, producing the show during the show, as you might notice. Where is this here? So, this is what was found. In April 2017, one of Sheldon Adelson's lobbyists sent a memo to one of the top DOJ officials arguing that their reinterpretation was wrong. Wrote the legal reasoning behind the Justice Department's unusual reversal this week of an opinion that paved the way for online gambling hewed closely to the arguments made by lobbyists for casino magnets and top Republican donor... I'm uh, oh, sorry, I was, I was reading from an article. That wasn't, that wasn't what it was. That's, I read the wrong thing. It was in April 2017 that one of the lobbyists sent the memo... And then the, the lobbyists, or said that, that the officials in the criminal division of the DOJ then forwarded it to the Office of Legal Counsel of the DOJ, which had been the ones who reinterpreted it back in 2011, and actually asked them to re-examine it. And then they did that, and then they came back in what was an unusual move, honestly, uh, reversing their position. So the lobbyist was successful. Now, a question one might have is, how did this lobbyist influence that top official enough at the DOJ to forward it over to the legal counsel with a recommendation that they check it out and and reissue the opinion? And I don't know. But a lot of times some shady stuff goes on behind the scenes. 
There's a lot of uh, back scratching and back re scratching in government involving lobbyists. So the Justice Department did say that Sheldon Adelson and no outside parties were consulted on its decision. But they did admit that they were in possession of a legal analysis from Mr. Adelson's team. They also claimed that they were not under outside pressure to produce this particular conclusion. However, it was admitted that the that Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who was the Attorney General at the time, promised Congress during his confirmation hearing that he would re-examine the online gambling laws and that they did this as part of that promise. So it is possible that this was something that Jeff Sessions had promised to do and that this official was reminded of that. And that's what spurred the whole thing to happen. Jeff Sessions was fired on November 7th, 2018. This opinion from the DOJ was around the same time. I think like November 3rd, something very close to that date. Let me see if I could find the exact date. The November 2nd, wow. Well, that's too bad. That's really too bad. You know what that means? I haven't seen, I just discovered this right now. What this means is that had this all happened like a few days later, this probably would not have occurred. Jeff Sessions was the Attorney General on November 2nd, 2018. On November 7th, he was fired. So if he were no longer the Attorney General, they probably would not have done this to help him keep his promise. If this is just just a few, and it's not like they knew he was going to be fired specifically on November seventh. It's not like they were trying to squeeze this in. Can't say for sure this wouldn't have happened, but there's a good chance it wouldn't have happened if Sessions wasn't in there anymore. Wow, boy, that was close. They did this for November second, and November seventh, he's gone. Huh. Now, in relation to this. I guess that's technically our next topic. In relation to this, Pennsylvania is already taking action since all the states were told and all the businesses were told that they have 90 days to comply. So Pennsylvania has already put the businesses in that state on notice. The Gaming Control Board in Pennsylvania has already told operators of online gaming that they are expected to follow this new interpretation. Specifically, they were told if you have servers... Make sure they are located in Pennsylvania. 
do not have any servers located outside the state. For example, Poker Fraud Alert, despite being a West Coast site run by a West Coast person, the physical computer of Poker Fraud Alert is not located on the West Coast. The physical computer is quite far from here. But that's fine. But if you're running an online gambling site in Pennsylvania, the server must be located in Pennsylvania because of this Wire Act change, which basically makes it illegal to have any kind of interstate gambling. And the Gaming Control Board in Pennsylvania has already told them they better make sure. They wrote, as a result of the opinion, at this time, we no longer believe it is consistent with law as articulated in the opinion to locate the interactive gaming devices and associate equipment in any jurisdiction other than in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is already taking action. And you can probably forget Pennsylvania having any agreements with Nevada or New Jersey. I have a feeling that's all going away. We will see at the end of 90 days, but you know what? 90 days will be before the World Series starts. I have a feeling by the time we come to the World Series that there will no longer be cooperation between Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware. I have a feeling it will only be a Nevada site. And I think the online event, I think they were planning to... You know what? Where is the, I don't know if I saw the online event on the schedule. I just thought of that. Is there an online? Let me see if there's an online bracelet. There may not be. I wonder if they did away with that for that reason. Let me see. Oh, I don't see an online? I don't see an online event. Wow. I just realized that there's no online event this year. I thought it was stupid anyway. I'm not crying that it's gone, but wow. I have a feeling they killed the online event because they don't know the future of WSUP.com with this whole thing. Interesting. Very interesting. I was wondering how WSB.com is expecting to deal with this. We have mentioned before that perhaps they could be in violation still, even if the servers are located in the state, if somehow the bets get routed out of state temporarily before coming back in the state. But we're not sure if there will be that level of enforcement. But at the very least, Pennsylvania wants the servers in the state. Here is a weird story. This is our last gambling and casino topic. Here is a weird story from the Bellagio. I don't completely understand it, but I believe it happened. Trader Ruski, have you ever had a poker dealer refuse a tip from you? Or have you even seen it happen where someone refuses a tip? I think Trader Ruski might be refusing to answer. Not refusing, but unable. I think we've lost him. He's here in spirit, but uh, he's on the phone line. But he may not be. Uh, he may not be here 
in mental presence. I don't think he is. Okay, Trader is. I'm going to drop him if he wants to come back. He can. I think he fell asleep. Well, I can answer. I never saw a dealer refuse a tip, either my tip or anybody else's tip. But listen to this report from Johnny Moreno, January 10th, 2019. A dealer at Bellagio just refused a $1 tip from me. I said, no, that's a tip twice. She said, I don't want it. I'm absolutely just blown away. You've correctly assumed that I've been a positive influence on the game, so I'm at a loss. It hurts my soul, but I'm refusing to tip now when I win a pot. Feels so bad, I don't want to give her the opportunity to refuse a tip again. Not sure how else to handle such poor cu- customer service. Well, you can you can report her to the floor man. Now that she's gone, the table's telling me that they don't understand it. The only thing we can come up with is that she is from Israel, and she assumes that I'm Middle Eastern. It's a horrible feeling in my stomach. For further clarification, I asked her why she didn't want it, and she ignored me. Then I asked her if she was upset with me, and she continued to ignore me. I left it alone, one hand after one one hand after that, and didn't tip. Someone asked her. Someone asked him, "Is refusing a tip racist?" He said, "I asked her why, and she ignored me. She's harboring some crazy animosity towards me, and for the life of me, I can't understand why." Now he didn't say this directly, but I believe that other people probably tipped her, and she accepted. It was just him. Now it's possible this isn't about. Race. It's possible that there was something about him that pissed her off. Maybe he did it, said something that pissed her off, and there's some misunderstanding. I, it's, it's clear to me that he doesn't know why he did it, and it's clear that he he seems to. I don't know much about him, but I believe he has a good enough reputation where he's not one who causes trouble or is rude to dealers or anything. So, I think he was legitimately surprised by her refusal to take his tip, but. This brings up two questions. First of all, does a dealer have a right to refuse a tip? After all, they're refusing to take your money. So can they just say, no, I I don't want a tip from you? And number two, even if they can, uh, should they? And and what should you do? I guess number three, what should you do if that happens? I don't think it's likely to happen to any of you. It's never happened to me. But first of all, you have to understand, above anything... These are employees of a company that you are giving business to. And people forget this sometimes. When they're when people are at a business, especially a large business, I'm not talking about a little mom and pop place where they're pretty much in charge and if you don't like it, get out. In a large business, which the Bellagio definitely is, the employees do not ever have the right, except for management, the regular employees do not have a right to mistreat you They don't have a right to be rude to you. They do not have a right to deviate from policy in a negative fashion to punish you in any way. Nothing like that. They don't have a right to tell you not to come back. These workers have to do what their bosses tell them to do, period. And if you don't like that as an employee there, then you should not be working for a company. You should start your own company and then mistreat customers and see how far it gets you. I don't ever let any kind of low-level employee mistreat me at a customer as a customer, not because I look down on them, but because I know they should not be doing it and don't have authorization from the management or ownership to do it. So if the management or ownership would not want them mistreating me, 
and they are mistreating me, and I haven't done anything to warrant this mistreatment, then I want the ownership and management to know. Why shouldn't they know? They're the ones paying the bills. It's their business. These people don't have a right to destroy the business, nor do they have a right to mistreat me, the customer. They're screwing two sets of people here. They're screwing the customer and they're screwing their bosses. I don't like reporting people for honest mistakes, but but when an employee is knowingly rude to me, I will usually report it. I will give a true and accurate and correct report on what happened, but I will report it. I'm not going to exaggerate or lie, but I will report it. Why not? Why should it be a secret? Why should it be a secret from the person paying their salaries? Why is it a secret from the business owner what's happening in his own business? You tell me that. You say, oh, you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't make people lose their jobs. Well, why not? There's, there's people who are unemployed who need these jobs. Let, the, let someone else have this job who deserves it more. The job doesn't just go away. They, they hire someone else who treats people better, who will appreciate the job more, who will follow the rules more, who will treat customers better. That's a win for everyone. I don't actively look to get people fired, but at the same time, uh, if, if someone knowingly mistreats me or is knowingly rude, and I'm not one of these guys. I don't care if people smile at me at the business. I don't care if they uh, are, are overtly friendly. I don't need that crap. I just don't want to be treated rudely or mistreated or someone won't do their job as they're supposed to and refuses to when I ask them to. That's all. So going back to this, I know it sounds like a rant on my part, and it kind of is, but going back to this, the dealer's job is as follows. The dealer needs to deal cards and do so competently, and the dealer needs to, I wouldn't say be friendly, but at least be cordial and businesslike with the players. That's their responsibility. Some would even say that if players abuse the dealer, that the dealer should not talk back and re-abuse the player. Believe it or not, I don't even care about that. If I, if I see a guy being an asshole to a dealer and a dealer's an asshole back, I think, good, the guy deserves it. Maybe it's inappropriate and they shouldn't be doing it because then they have to make judgment calls on who deserves it and who doesn't. And sometimes the dealers will think someone's being a jerk to them when they aren't and then be nasty to them for no reason. So... I agree it shouldn't happen, but like if I see a guy is like legitimately an asshole to the dealer and the dealer is legitimately an asshole back, I do not think, oh, wow, that dealer's out of line. I think, good, it's, it's, it's about time some of these assholes at the table you know, get something back for the way they're treating dealers. There, there are players who treat dealers horribly, and I hate them, and I feel terrible for the dealers when I see this. I'll sometimes speak up and even say that I don't think you should be talking to the dealer this way, or I don't think the dealer did anything wrong, whatever. So I definitely don't like when players mistreat dealers, but I also don't like when dealers mistreat players, and I've seen both. Honestly, I've seen more players mistreat dealers than the other way around, but I've seen the other way around too. So in this case, you had a dealer refusing a tip, and you may ask, well, she might have the right to do that, right? It's money that he's trying to give her, and she's saying, no, I don't want it. But I don't feel that the card room would want her doing that. It's very off-putting. It's very weird. And not only that, it affects the other employees. Because you know, forget that this guy is a, a pro there who is not going to be affected by this and is going to tip other dealers. This is not going to stop him. But let's take a recreational player 
who's used to tipping the dealer a dollar every hand, and then one dealer starts pushing it back, won't accept it, and won't tell him why. Well, he may say, screw it, this is very uncomfortable and embarrassing, I'm not going to ever tip dealers again. And then this screws the other dealers. So the dealer should not be doing this. This is not the dealer's choice to refuse tips. I don't know this for sure, but I'm just about sure. Just about sure that it's not the dealer's choice to refuse tips. In fact, why should I be guessing at this? Why should I be guessing at this? I think that we should find out directly. I just had an idea. I think we need to call up Bellagio and ask this question. Why, why should we just speculate when we have the power of the telephone? That's what we're going to do here. Let's call the Bellagio. We're going to find this out. Come on, guys. Pick up the phone. I know it's 1 a.m., but... Your phone is ringing. Jeez. Who's in charge these days? What's going on? I know it's off hours, but I know it's a weeknight. Still, you know, we're, we're coming into the weekend here. It's Friday morning now. It's 1 a.m. It couldn't be totally dead. I'm going to look up on the Bravo app how active they are right over there. I bet there's plenty of tables running right now. Though it's not as active as it used to be. By any means. Wow, what is this, like 10 rings already? Hello? Uh, Hello? What is this? They answered and put me on hold and something hung up. All right, well, let's, just, let's try to call it right back. I'll give them credit for that being a mistake, but I mean, still. Watch me like another 20 rings now. I just wrote... Bellagio Poker Room High Limit Section. This is Jesse. Uh, hello, Ken and Nigel Fabersham here. Um, I, I was um, I was at this poker room uh, a number of days ago. I don't quite remember which day, but I was playing a twenty forty limit hold'em, and um, the, the most peculiar thing happened. Um, a dealer refused to take a dollar tip from me. Every time I tried to give the tip to them, they would push it back and say, "No, no, no, I, I don't wish to accept this." And I said, uh, "I said, have you gone mad? I'm trying to give you a dollar of my money to your pocket." And how how on earth could you refuse this? And and so they they just wouldn't say. They just pushed it back to me. And and I, I tried to ask several times, and they said, uh, uh, and they just um, wouldn't respond further. And I said, well, don't get your niggers in a knot. Just please tell me if there's something I did wrong here, and I'll, I'll apologize most sincerely, and we'll, we'll get on with it, and you know, I'll give you the, the dollar each time I went apart. They wouldn't say a thing, and um, so so. I don't remember the, the dealer's name, and um, I don't know. Uh, I, I can't even describe them. It's been quite. It's been some time, and I, it, it's, it's all become a blur to me. But I was just sitting here thinking, 
Is this even allowed by Bellagio rules? Do, do they have to accept tips, or, or do they have a right to refusal? Um, I, I just wanted to apologize, first of all. I'm sorry about your experience, and um, oh, of yeah. course we thank you for, <clears throat> you know, taking care of us, and uh, I don't know why a dealer would refuse a tip. Uh, again, I do apologize about that, and we thank you for uh, coming here and playing at the casino. And I, again, I don't know why I don't know why a dealer would do that. And I'm sorry that you had uh, that experience here with us. Yeah, 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 and and that's most appreciated. And I'm glad I'm glad that you've um, ex- expressed these uh, pleasantries to me. And it's, it's as I said, it's um, something that uh, I'm glad to hear. But uh, I'm just wondering, the, do you know the official rules if they, they are actually are allowed to do so. At first I thought, okay, well, it's, it's their money. They can refuse it if they want. And then I said, you know, this, this seems like a bunch of bollocks to me. If it's, if it's, if it's something that it caused me a bit of embarrassment, I said, you know, I can't imagine that uh, this is something that their bosses would want them to do. And I wish I had said something at the time, and now I, I, it's way too late, and I can't even... Yeah, but, um, I'm not really sure, and I know that, yeah, I don't think I... I mean, I wouldn't really approve of something like that, but I mean, I don't know the specifics. I can ask the shift manager real quick if you'd like. Yeah, if you could just That's find out. And again, I'm not trying to, I don't want to try to report anyone because I don't remember much enough details about the person. I don't want to get the wrong one in trouble. So I, I just want to know for the future, if it ever happens again, yeah. then, then if I can... Yeah, I'm, give me one second. I'll right. be right back, okay? All right. all right, thank you. I guess I, I guess they haven't heard of this <laughs> before. We shall see what the answer is. That sounds rather busy there. Let's see. According to the Bravo app, they have 15 tables running right now. Hmm. Let's see. They have um, two t- tables of 2040 and um, 613 no limits, 3510 no limits, and 425 no limits. That's it at the moment. It should be. Much busier tomorrow night, which is Friday night. But um, the forty eighty limit holdem is nowhere to be seen. I'm rather curious, though, if this is actually forbidden by their rules. That's, uh, that's what I want to know. Hey, yeah, sorry about that. Yes. Yeah, so um again again I apologize. I'm I'm really sorry about that experience and uh yeah the the dealer shouldn't uh have did that. If that if you ever have that experience again, please uh let us know right away so we could come over and correct that behavior and take care of that cuz right. that yeah, that should not happen. All right. So that's what I assumed like you know later on upon thinking about it. I said, you know, I have a feeling that um if um, if if a deal were to con- continue to do this to other patrons, that uh, you'd say, "All right, off you go, off you go. We don't uh, we don't uh, tolerate such behavior here." I'm glad to hear that's the policy of the Bellagio. And um, if it does ever happen, it's never happened to me before in my life, and probably never will again. But if it does occur here again, I shall uh, bring it to your attention. Uh, lickety split. Yes, thank you. And again, thank you for thanking you for making that phone call and talking with us. And I, I do sure hope that you come back and see us again right. soon. I, I most definitely will. Uh, tally ho, uh, pip pip, and let's go with it. All right. Thank you so much. You have a great night. All right, goodbye. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, 
I, I, I mean, I guess, I guess the guy didn't report. I, I, I'll give, I'll give credit to this guy who was on the phone here. Uh, someone said good customer service. I agree. Some of the people that, some of the people at Bellagio, some of the staff members there are not very friendly. I, I had a little bit of an incident a few months ago with someone who was rude to me for no reason. I won't get into it, but it was just totally no reason someone was rude to me there. A staff member, that is. But this guy, this guy seemed nice. Well, that's all they can do there. You know, I they can't control what every employee does until it gets reported. That's what this guy should have done. That's what I would have done. I, I would have reported. I, I can understand, though, that this guy was kind of so shocked by it that he didn't know what to do. It's one of these things like, in the moment, what do you do? And I can understand where that would have happened, how that would have happened. And it doesn't matter if it's because of racism or if it's because of just some incorrect belief that you did something to them or just they don't like your attitude. I don't care what it is. They, that's part of the job, to take the tip. And at least if you're not going to take it, then say why. I do think it's a bit of a stretch to say, oh, you know, she's Israeli and she thinks I'm Arab even though I'm not. So it, it could it could have been so many things. It could have been one of so many things. It, it could even be that maybe he looks like some guy that was nasty to her in the past and she's mistaking him for someone else. There's so many different ways this could have happened, but it shouldn't happen. I did think it was lame when he wrote, it hurts my soul, but I'm refusing to tip now when I win a pot. Feels so bad, but I, I didn't want to give her the opportunity to refuse a tipping. It shouldn't feel bad. You shouldn't want to tip her after she treats you that way. It's not like you stop tipping all dealers after this. You stop tipping that particular dealer who didn't treat you well. And you know what? Dealers who don't treat you well don't deserve a tip. I will tell you, when a dealer has treated me poorly, and I don't mean because they screw up dealing a card or something. I don't mean that. I mean actually being rude to me, noticeably rude, intentionally rude. They never get another dollar from me. They don't deserve it. I don't have a high level of required friendly treatment. I really don't. I have a very low level. It's just don't be an asshole to me. That is my level. If you if you're not an asshole to me, then I'm and you you're competent in your job. I'm I'm fine with you as an employee. But there are some people that just are they're so brainwashed by the American tipping culture that even when they get mistreated by an employee, they will still want to tip them. <laughs> no, don't. If someone's mistreating you, you don't tip them. Nothing wrong with that. Even in professions where tipping is customary they still have to earn it by doing their job in a satisfactory fashion and not being rude to you i do understand why he kept asking why 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 i'd want to know too but what i would have also done is said okay floor (laughs) and asked about it well good for the bellagio for doing the right thing See, guys, you know, this This wasn't really a prank call. This was like an informational call by the colonel. And uh, see, so you guys passed with flying colors. See, now, now you guys look good. It was like an ad for the Bellagio here that you didn't have to pay for. So now you know.
disposition wrote in chat if he was Arab. Now he's not Arab. He says he thinks he was mistaken as Arab. But if he was Arab and there is no other reasonable reason, I would point to that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's worth mentioning when you complain. Like I can't figure out what I did wrong, and I'm wondering if it's because I'm Arab and she's Israeli. I can understand that. You you always have to be careful though before you just claim this has to do with race because. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't. It just happens to be that two people in conflict are of different races. So you got to be careful. But sometimes it is actually by race. So, yeah, you can mention it, but you can't always lean on that. Uh, that story that I posted to Poker Fraud Alert actually spawned a little bit of casino tipping discussion. Instead of K's, talked about that uh, at Blackjack once at Bellagio. After his last hand, he tipped $40 after he had done very well. He said, that made the dealer angry enough that he shoved my chips towards me uh, to splash them. When I asked for a color-up, the piss boss said in an angry manner, just get out of here. I was wasted and happy and didn't care at all. The people I was with told me they were pissed that I didn't tip more. I was tipping as I was playing, too, but I guess they felt entitled to more of my money. Dealers of Bellagio definitely act rude and entitled occasionally. This guy's story is bizarre, though. It just sounds like she really didn't like him for some reason. Set of case, I hate to say it, but your story's kind of uh, questionable, even though I'm going to tell a kind of a similar one, because if you tipped $40 and were tipping while you were playing, and the pit boss just said, just get out of here, knowing that set of K's... Uh, well, let's just say he's uh, been known to drink a lot and uh, sometimes abuse drugs, and he's not secretive about this. He's been open with the forums about it, so I'm not gonna, I'm not giving away his secrets here. It's possible he was in a state that he said he was wasted. I mean, <laughs> that's right in this post. It's possible that's what was pissing them off, not the tip. Maybe he was inadvertently mistreating the dealer, and they were getting tired of him. So I won't give a lot of credence to that story, but I'll tell you about my story. This was a lot of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, 11 years ago, something like around that time, late 2000s. And I was playing pretty much the highest I ever play at Blackjack. I don't even play this high anymore. Back then, even that was the highest I played, which was uh, 600 per hand on two spots. Way more than I usually play, by the way. Back Even back then, I was usually doing like 100 a hand in two spots. This is 600 per hand. I don't remember why I was playing that high, but I was. So, of course, what happens to me? Well, I, I end up having to split and double a bunch of times. Like, oh, no, this is going to hurt if it loses. So the hand ended up being seven ways between the two spots, between the splits and the doubles. I had $4,200 on the line in one hand. Or I guess two hands at once against one dealer hand. Well... I was dealt, uh, you know, hands that split a lot, and by the end, by the time they all were done, nothing had busted. Nothing could bust because the dealer was showing a five. I wasn't going to bust, but uh, most of my hands were crap. I think I had like 120 and 118, but the rest were all 17 or lower. So I wasn't very optimistic. I was really, really rooting for a bust. The dealer turned over an eight, and I go, oh boy, 13, well... So we see a 10 under there. Now I've got to hope they draw a bust card and they didn't draw the 10. 
They drew a nine, and they still busted. Yay, 22. So I won. I won all seven sp- all, all seven bets there. $4,200 coming to me, my biggest single-hand blackjack win ever by a wide margin. So I was actually going to leave a decent tip here. I hadn't decided how much yet, but I thought, okay, i got to leave something decent for this. I can't throw a dollar or even $5. I've got to give something different. Decent. And then the guy next to me, before I could even think of what to do, the guy next to me, another player, piped up. Whoa, that's amazing. Dude, you've you got to really leave a nice tip for that one. Now, that's fine. You know, other players, the, I, I don't like other players commenting on, on you know, fellow players' tips. They shouldn't. But, you know, Bellagio can't control what other players say. I don't blame them for that. But then before I could say anything or act or leave any kind of tip, before, like right away, the snotty, feel, the snotty female dealer said back to me, or said back to him, oh, yeah, he should, but I don't know if he's going to. I go, what a bunch of BS. Can you imagine saying that out loud? He should, but I don't know if he's going to. First of all, a dealer should never say that they should get a tip. That's, that's totally a violation of the etiquette of tipping. And then to say, I don't know if he's going to. So, she got her wish. She didn't get one. She spoke up. She doesn't know if I'm going to. Okay, I'm not going to. I didn't leave one. And I finished the end of the shoe, and I left. Didn't tip a dollar. Because of that obnoxious comment. If she didn't say that, I would have tipped. Something decent. That was some entitled bullshit there. He should, but I don't know if he's going to. And I've heard from others that have played there. And maybe it's changed. I'm talking about 10 years ago. But back then, a lot of the dealers there had a really bad attitude at the blackjack games. Poker, not so much. But the blackjack games, boy, a lot of them had a bad attitude. But this is that poker this guy was talking about. So... Anyone who asks for tips at these casinos should not be tipped at all, is my opinion. Anyone who's rude to players should not be tipped. But if you do tip them, they should accept it. That's part of the job. Hopefully next time uh, Johnny Moreno will speak up. All right, so I'm going to finish off the show with an editorial. And I haven't done one of these in a while. Some of you may be new to the show and don't know what I'm talking about with an editorial. But it's exactly as it sounds. An editorial is just me talking about some topic, obviously, or not obviously, but often not a poker topic, but just something that's on my mind recently that I would like to discuss on the air. And this week, it has to do with Viral social media outrage. Some have said that we currently live in an outrage culture. I saw a joke that outrage has replaced baseball as our national pastime, and it's not even too far from the truth. Because of how easy it is to for average people to spread things on social media, all they have to do is have enough people get interested in the topic that's being presented and preferably someone who has a good reach on their social media following and quickly it's shared everywhere 
and things go viral and are seen by millions of people that couldn't have been seen before this social media existed. This is a new phenomenon for the 2010s. Yes, the web was there in the 90s and the 2000s, but it wasn't the same. Now, a lot of times, average people end up sharing something to social media that everyone sees, if it's interesting enough. So when you combine that with the fact that the country is now more politically divided than ever, people feel so passionate about politics nowadays that you now have people who hate each other or come to hate each other or friendships are destroyed or family relationships are destroyed based upon the candidate someone supports or doesn't support. And I've spoken before on this show how I think that's wrong. You shouldn't judge people for their politics. But unfortunately, this entire culture has also given rise to the outrage culture where something is shared which is meant to bring out some kind of emotional response from you. And sometimes the emotional response, they are attempting to bring it out through some sort of political point that they're trying to make. There was the photo that went around of those refugees that were trying to make that trek through Central America and then through uh, Mexico to come to the U.S., And then when they got to the U.S. border, there was that viral photo of the woman running away with her her child as tear gas was being fired at them. And that was shared in a lot of places and used to make people outraged. But then it turned out that the picture was misleading in some ways. It was a real picture, but the circumstances of the picture were misleading. Most notably, it was left out that there were people right against that fence who were throwing rocks over the fence at Border Patrol agents. So after being pelted with rocks, Border Patrol agents shot tear gas over the wall, over the fence, to push these people farther away to where it's harder for them to throw rocks. Basically, you throw rocks at us, we're going to throw tear gas back at you. The woman running away with her kids got too close to all of that So when the tear gas came over, she was running away. This was not them just firing tear gas at children. It was more a mother stupidly taking her children up to where this was happening, to where when a response occurred, they were in danger of of being tear gassed. Unfortunate, but not the way it was presented of Trump's people are tear gassing these poor refugees. But I've seen so many of these over the last few years these viral videos or photos that are shared that seem to be demonstrating one thing occurring when it turns out that we're not getting the whole story, we're seeing a partial video, we're not getting the correct background, and then when it all comes out, the context very much changes. The problem is that nobody wants to be seen as a fool, especially nobody wants to be seen as a fool for sharing something that demonstrates their political point only to find out that what they've been sharing is either a hoax or incredibly misleading, and then that ruins the point that they thought they had made. So rather than saying, hey, here's an update, the thing I shared there, it kind of wasn't true, so sorry about that, I was fooled, just disregard that, but I, I still maintain the same point. Nobody wants to say that. 
So what people do when these things happen is they either just stop talking about it or they continue defending it. They continue with the same line of reasoning that they shared in the first place, even though they probably wouldn't have if they had known the truth originally. They just get married to the conclusion and married to the fact that they use this to make a point and don't want to look like fools and keep fighting. So what's the way to avoid this from happening? Well, it's not to immediately judge when you receive something, where you see something on social media, or even on the mainstream news, wherever you see it, before you know the full story, before you know what really happened. Now, I bet you might have a guess as to what I'm talking about in recent times. I'm talking about the picture and video of a white male teenager wearing a Make America Great Again hat, grinning and staring down an older Native American man who is chanting and beating on his drum. Then if you saw the video, you got even more outraged when you would see these teenagers in the background mocking, or seemingly mocking, what the guy was doing. The guy meaning the Native American guy doing the Atlanta Braves like tomahawk chop and dancing in a way that looked like they were kind of mocking him. And at first glance, didn't this look like the worst case of white privilege? Didn't this look like an awful thing that these privileged white Trump-supporting teenagers were doing to Native Americans, these marginalized and abused people for hundreds of years in our land that the guy's just trying to chant and beat his drum and has these asshole racist kids making fun of him. Isn't it easy to watch that and get angry? Isn't that easy to watch this and just hate the average Trump supporter, even ones who are in their teens, maybe even hate their parents for probably making them think this way and act this way? Doesn't it just prove the points about what Trump's America has become? Maybe it did until you found out the rest of the story. See, the problem with this video is that it did not have any context. It just started with this happening. And people didn't bother to ask, wait a minute, what happened before this? Why is this older Native American guy beating a drum and chanting in this kid's face? What's going on? What what led to this? What was the before to this? This isn't your standard scene. This wasn't like they videoed these kids just approaching some Native American guy minding his own business and they start making fun of him and his culture. That's pretty self-explanatory usually. Even then you want to see the context. But, but at least if you saw that, you could say, okay, it's pretty easy to conclude these are just asshole kids who are racist, who are taunting this poor older Native American man. But, but here he's chanting and beating a drum very close to this kid's face. Don't you want to know why? Don't you want some background? No, it, it didn't matter. You know, people just, the outrage train left the station and everyone was so mad. This was so easy to label as racism and white privilege and, and racist Trump supporters. It, it was just so easy and they ran with it. Even the mainstream media was showing this video. And then the main kid depicted there, the one who was just doing nothing but grinning. That's all he was doing is standing there and grinning. Yeah, he did have a smug look to him, I'll give him that, but for that, he and his family received death threats. 
Other kids who were identified in this video received death threats. The ones that were just dancing and doing the tomahawk chop. Well, you may say, well, act like a racist, have it on camera, then you deserve what you get. Well, it turned out there was racism going on, but it wasn't from the kids. A weird fringe religious group known as the Black Hebrew Israelites, and they're not even really from Israel. It's, it's just a weird name. It's a weird group. They were taunting these kids. This was in D.C. at the Lincoln Memorial, by the way, I think in the parking lot or something. But uh, the black Hebrew Israelites were there to cause trouble. They weren't just there to see the Lincoln Memorial. They were there to cause trouble. The black Hebrew Israelites hate white people. They hate homosexuals. They hate almost everyone. So they were taunting these kids with a lot of racial slurs. They were taunting them, calling them sodomites, trying to make uh, various... uh, Nasty anti-gay comments about these kids When as far as I know I don't know if any of them were even gay They just Using that as an insult It's it's one of these weird Crazy Religious groups That's actually existed for a long time It's very small and very fringe But it's uh, you know they were there to, to cause this trouble Okay And they were doing it through, through Racism and, and anti-gay rhetoric Aimed for some reason at these kids, maybe because they were white and wearing Trump hats. So the kids, they were with some chaperones there, adult chaperones. They asked, what should we do? And someone came up with the idea, let's drown them out and sing the school's fight song. So they started singing the school's fight song to kind of drown out the nasty things being shouted at them by the black Hebrew Israelites. Who, by the way, were not kids. These were adults. So they're they're trying to drown it out. So believe it or not, the ones being more mature so far are the kids here, not the adults. The the adults are are hurling these uh, racist and homophobic insults, and the kids are, are are trying to sing a school fight song to drown them out. And that and that is when this weird group of older Native Americans approached, and for some reason they just they they approached together, and they came up to the kids and started. Chanting and, and, and beating drums Right up to these kids In their faces Now They did not explain why they're there They didn't explain what they're doing They didn't explain why they approached And walked over to these kids and did this They just started doing it Now you may ask why were they there Maybe they were there to Cause trouble to protest or whatever I don't know But they had no business in this it's not like they went up to the adults harassing the kids and said, hey, leave these teenagers alone and stop. Or, or even if they went up to the adults, the, uh, the black Hebrew Israelites, and caused problems for them and chanted in their faces to stop what they're doing. That would be fine. But they went up to the kids who were the victims of the harassment and chanted in their faces and beat drums in their faces without any kind of context, without any kind of reason. They wouldn't explain themselves. they just do this. So think if you're standing there in public and first you have this weird religious group Shouting nasty insults at you for no reason About your race and accusing you of being gay And using all kinds of anti-gay slurs So you have that going on And while you're trying to process that Another group approaches you and beats drums in your face And and chants Wouldn't you find it weird? Wouldn't you have a hard time even knowing what to do? So 
these kids, uh, most of them just kind of made the best of it. Some of them were, were dancing. Some of them were just uh, pre- you know, pretending like they're going along with it by doing the tomahawk chop. Uh, th- that one kid was just standing his ground and smirking like, like, what is this? You know, if you're good, I'm just going to stand here. You can do what you want. I'm just going to smile at you. I, I admit the kid was probably doing it to be defiant, but he was defying someone that was being inappropriate with him, you know, beating a drum and chanting in his face for no reason. Basically saying, whatever you think you're doing here, it's not working on me. I'm going to stand here and smile. Now, what about the kids in the background with a tomahawk chop and all that? It gets a little bit racist to do that. I agree. But but they're doing this in response to something weird and inappropriate that's happening to them. And this is being done to kids. This isn't adults versus adults. This is adults versus children. These, these grown men were coming over to hassle these teenagers who are already being hassled by this awful group. So then they expect the kids to be polite? So you go up to hassle the victims of other people's hassling, and then you're surprised when they're not polite to you? And when they dance in a mocking way? It's not like the boys started hitting them or something. There was no violence, no threat of violence. Now, people say, oh, well, there's never an excuse to do that tomahawk stuff. That's that's racist. And I, look, these are teenagers that are being first taunted by that group of, of black Israelites. And then this weird thing with the Native Americans beating their faces. It's you know, They're kids. They're not going to handle everything perfectly. But they didn't do anything that terrible. If the kids responded with violence, I'd say, okay, you know, that, that they shouldn't have done that. That's that's wrong. This, they they didn't know what to do. They were uncomfortable, and rightfully so. So you think when this all came out, and this came out through a, a much longer version of the video, which which surfaced. So it's not these aren't just guesses. This is this was all verified. You would think at that point that those who had originally distributed this video would have said, "Oops, I'm sorry about that. Looks like it wasn't what we thought." Well, okay, I guess this wasn't uh, white privilege or or Trump supporter racism. This was just kids reacting to being harassed by adults. And look, looks like we found the real villains here. That's the black Hebrew Israelites. Looks like we found some real racism and homophobia going on here. That was from the black Hebrew Israelites. They don't say that. Why? Because the black Hebrew Israelites are black. And the left is incapable of criticizing anyone who's black unless they're black and on the right. They, they can't. They, they, they can't. They, they don't even want to go there. Even though these black Hebrew Israelites do not represent most black people. They're a weird fringe group that is very different than 99.999% of black people in this country. But still, because they're black, now the left, they don't want to say anything about them. Nor do they want to really openly question what the Native Americans were doing. Now, when asked about this later, when he was originally asked, the guy tried to lie about the whole thing and claim that they were harassing him for no reason and screaming, build the wall for some reason. This was all really not happening. It was verified on the video. The guy just lied about it, this Native American guy. But then when he was asked later, he said that what he was trying to do was get in between the black Israelites and the kids to defuse the situation. How does getting in the kids' faces and beating a drum defuse anything? Also, why were they looking to help these kids and they make America Great Again hats when this guy who they interviewed, the main one on the video, he, it turned out he's a known left-wing activist. So you're telling me he saw some 
kids in Trump hats being harassed and he wanted to run over and save them. And the way he saved them is by chanting in their faces and beating drums in their faces while saying nothing to the group harassing them. I don't think that's very likely. To me, what this looks like is that they probably felt, that the Native American group probably felt that these Trump kids deserved it, but that they weren't going to do it the way the black Israelites were doing. They're not going to hurl epithets at them. They're just going to walk over and chant in their faces and beat the drums, kind of like a, a way without directly saying it, you're not welcome here. Get out of here. We don't want you here. You and your Trump hats, get out. We don't appreciate your presence. But, but, but if questioned, we can just say, hey, we're chanting. What, what other reason could it be that they get up in these kids' faces and do this? Makes no sense, right? So with this new context, that changed everything. But amazingly, those that distributed the video, those that went on Facebook and thought how terrible this is and how we have to be so outraged, nobody's taking it back. You have people on the right who are gleefully pointing out that this was not what it appeared to be. But you don't have anyone who distributed under the under the explanation of, look how terrible this is, look at these awful kids, look what this says about Trump supporters. You don't have any of them t- taking it back, saying, sorry, I jumped to the wrong conclusion. It was misleading. I screwed up. This isn't what it appeared. Apologies for distributing it. Nobody says that. Why not? So it is so easy to jump on the outrage train. When you see something like this, the immediate reaction is what you want to put out there. By the way, who was responsible for distributing this video? Well, the initial upload came from just some regular person, but the one who really distributed and made it viral was a well-followed Twitter account that supposedly was for a teacher. It was supposedly a teacher's Twitter account in California named a 2020 Fight. Turned out it was a fake account. Turned out it was an account that tweeted 130 times a day on average, usually about politics and not a lose, often with contradictory messages. It was some kind of Twitter troll that was meant to get people angry. Most of its tweets were supportive of left-wing causes, but occasionally not. Sometimes it was on the complete other side. It was some kind of Twitter troll, could have even been foreign, using a completely fake picture and fake identity, and Twitter deleted the account. So the whole thing was made viral, initially made viral, by a phony account that was attempting to make Americans fight with each other. Think about that. And they were successful, right? You played right into their hands. If you're one of the people distributing that video, you played right into the hands of that Twitter troll. That's exactly what they wanted you to do. Now, I have also seen videos distributed by right-wing sources which attempt to provoke outrage. Not as many. I'll be honest that the left does this more. Because the left, the left loves a victim. The left loves to find victims and then uh, show examples of the victims being persecuted. But the right has done it too. I have seen on right-wing sites, look at this video showing such and such. And then I find out the story and it's not what they purported it was. I don't like that either. So whenever any kind of video is on social media, 
no matter which political side seems to be putting out, or even, even if it's no political side, even if it's, if it's something apolitical, ask yourself, what made this happen? What I'm seeing here, what made this happen? Do I know? Do I see the whole story here? Or am I coming into the middle of the story and having to make assumptions? Like in this Native American and smirking kid in the hat story. You didn't know the beginning. You just saw it start there. So you have to ask yourself, do I know the full story? Do I know exactly why this is all occurring? Some videos it's quite clear. Some videos it's mostly clear. Some videos it's not clear at all. The ones that's not clear at all, you shouldn't trust. Here's another one. This one occurred, uh, I think, four years ago or something. There was, and this is actually between, uh, I think it was between two white people. But it it wasn't as political, but uh, this was also a very misleading video. There was a... There was an ESPN reporter, a female ESPN reporter, who was very pretty. I forget her name. She's a, pr- a pretty blonde white white girl. And uh, a video was released of her attempting to get her car back after it was towed. She had indeed illegally parked somewhere. Her car was towed. And the video showed her being kind of abusive toward the employee at the towing company and even at one point made some kind of slam against the woman's appearance because the woman wasn't very pretty. I think she was missing teeth. She was kind of overweight. And then, you know, so, so boy, America ate this up here. You have this very pretty, uh, successful TV personality parks illegally, gets her car towed and then comes over and, gets abusive and insulting and degrading to a woman who's just simply working at the place that towed her, even insults the way she looks. How could anyone possibly have any sympathy for that TV personality there? How could you possibly excuse this? So everyone jumped all over her for that. But the second I saw that, I had a memory come back to me. The year was 2000. And I was in Las Vegas. Didn't live there. I was visiting Las Vegas. And I wanted to go to McDonald's on the Strip. And as you know, it's not easy to park on the Strip. And I saw right next to McDonald's was a closed Strip mall. And I said, well, rather than hassle with uh, some casino parking and walking you know, 10 minutes each way, why don't I just park in the Strip mall, go into McDonald's, pick up the food to go, get back in my car, drive to our hotel, we eat it there. Seemed simple enough. That's what we did. We parked. We walked to McDonald's. We got in there. Huge line, wasn't worth it. Turned back around. Walked there. Less than five minutes had passed. And my car was up on a tow truck being driven out of the lot. How the hell did that happen? How, how did they find that I had parked in that closed mini mall? got my car up on the tow truck and towed it out already so quickly in less than five minutes. How how could all of that have happened in such a short time? Well, it turned out that at the time, there was a very, very prolific towing scam going on in Vegas where they would 
towing companies would contact property owners, not residential property, but businesses like many malls that would close and that would have a problem with people causing vandalism after hours, people smashing beer bottles in the, uh, in the parking lot or breaking things. So they said, hey, how would you like a free overnight security service? And the owner would say, oh, great, sure. What's the catch? No catch. All, all you've got to do is authorize us to tow any vehicles that are parked there illegally. And the way you can do this is put up a sign that this is for customers only, no parking unless you're a customer. And what we'll do is we'll, uh, if anybody parks here who shouldn't be here, then we will tow them. And in exchange for that, we will give you free security services all night, and we're going to watch your lot all night. We'll be right actually on the lot, kind of hiding in a, in a booth. And if anyone causes trouble, we're going to chase them out. And it's all free. Okay, sign me up, said the business owners. What they didn't realize, they were signing up for a scam. They weren't getting scammed, but they were allowing their property to be used for a scam, where basically people were enticed to park in what seemed to be a closed mini-mall, figuring, hey, what's the harm? I'll be there for a few minutes, while the towing company hides and hides the truck somewhere and gets the cars up on the towing truck and out of there within a few minutes. So even those who are parking for a few minutes are going to get their car towed too. And there's extra money to retrieve your car because it's on the weekend. And most of this occurs on the weekend because that's when Las Vegas is a lot more busy. This was one of many towing scams that took place in Las Vegas in the 90s and 2000s. It's not as common now. It still goes on today, but not as much as it did in the 90s and 2000s. Some say, oh, no, that's not a scam. It's fine. You know, if there's a sign you can't park here, then you can't park here. That, that's against the whole spirit of towing company laws, of towing – not company, towing laws. That's against the whole spirit of the law. The, the spirit of a towing law is that you tow someone when they're either creating a hazard or when they are parked somewhere and there's no way – that they shouldn't be and there's no way to find the owner to ask them to move. For example, if uh, let's say someone parked uh, blocking my driveway and I called the police and said, hey, can you come over and tow this car blocking my driveway, which I'd have a right to do, obviously. If they'd probably say, well, do you know whose car it is? If I said, no, I don't know whose car it is, but I saw them walk into the house next door, the police would say, okay, well, then have you gone to the house next door and asked them to move the car? If I said, no, I want you to tow them, the police would laugh at me and hang up. Why? Because towing is not meant to punish people. Towing is meant as a last resort when that's the only way to get rid of the car from where it's not supposed to be. So hiding trucks that can get the car up on the truck and get the car out of here within minutes is against the whole spirit of towing laws. And... Many states have now passed laws against this type of practice, including California. In California, what I just described would be illegal. California has a law that uh, you are not allowed to tow any car that is in a otherwise legal spot, meaning legal for anyone. They don't mean like something blocking it. Like a, if, if a car is blocking my driver where I couldn't drive out of my own house, that's a different story. I'm talking about a spot that's a normal spot that anyone could park in, just that particular car is not allowed there. It's a reserved spot or it's only for business uh, customers, whatever, that that type of spot in a publicly open lot, even if it's 
restricted to certain people there. That car has to be there for a minimum of one hour before it can be towed. And that is on the books in California and many other places. Some other places make even make like four hours. Uh, that's on the books specifically to prevent these predatory towing scams. Those are on the books to prevent people from getting towed who are there for a few minutes. Well, that's exactly what happened to this reporter. Forgot what state. It was somewhere in the East Coast. Massachusetts or something. But that's exactly what happened to her is that she had parked somewhere for a short time to go run into a neighboring business. And there was exactly one of these companies that's known for hiding and doing this and towed her within minutes. And if you look up this company, you see all kinds of complaints all over about this practice from them. And that they did outrageous things sometimes, including one time they wanted to tow a car and a guy left his kids in there while he ran across the street. So the towing guy, the guy at the company says, crap, well, what do I do here? I, I want to tow the car, but the, the kids are in here. I can't just leave the kids on the street. I know what, I'll, I'm going to put the car up on my truck and I'll, I'll tow with the kids. So the guy actually comes back from, this is a guy from that same company. He comes back and he sees his kids being towed away in the car. Can you imagine finding that? This is from a public lot that just had a sign, oh, you know, no parking unless you're a customer. And then when he yelled at the guy for doing it, the guy called him, quote, a faggot. He said, you shouldn't park in this lot if you're not going to go to this business, faggot, and, and took the car off the tow truck and drove off. That was one of many things that were reported about this company. This is an awful, awful predatory company that shouldn't be in business. That's who towed this woman's car from ESPN. And people reported all over the internet, I'm talking about hundreds of reports, to where it couldn't have been made up, that when they go down to get the car, they're hit with all kinds of additional charges and that the employees are incredibly nasty to them if they question it. Not just refuse to work with you, but are just really, really nasty and insulting knowing that they're holding your car hostage. So then people went, upon, upon noticing this, people went and rewatched the video and go, wait a minute, you know what's missing here? This video is edited. They showed clips they showed 30 seconds here, 20 seconds here, but it's, it's cut all over the place. They don't just show an unedited video of start to finish of her coming in and her leaving. We get to only see the clips of her speaking to this woman or this woman speaking to her when she seems okay. But for some reason, there's, there's parts that are very clearly cut. And people say, why are, why are we not being shown everything? Why, why can't you show us the whole five-minute video or whatever? Why, why cut it down to a minute 20 or whatever it was? What are you hiding? Well, it turned out that what was being hidden is that this woman who was the victim, the, you know, the woman who was overweight and unattractive that was shamed for her appearance, made nasty and derogatory insults to this woman from ESPN first. In addition, if you work for a shady company that does shady things and people get angry and treat you badly, then you can't complain. Basically, if you work for a company doing, if you work for a bad company doing bad things, then expect to be treated badly. So upon learning all this, I said, 100%, 100% this woman is in the right. She was a little stupid being a, a, a public figure, making comments like that, knowing this could come back to bite her, given who she is. But 
She didn't do anything wrong. She hurt her own image, but she didn't do anything morally wrong. But that was an example of where we didn't get the whole story. We just see clips of her berating the employee, but we, we don't know what. Why is it clips? Why, why are we not seeing the whole thing? You've got to ask yourself this. Why are we not seeing the whole thing from start to finish? Why are we not getting context? Why are we being asked to just assume that the parts we're not seeing, why are, we, why are we left to fill in the blanks? Is it because they don't want us to know the rest? Is it because once we know the rest, it will be different? So no matter who puts out the video, no matter what the content is, whether it's political or not, before you get outraged, ask yourself, do I know why this happened? Do I know what happened before? Is there a clear beginning and clear end? Sometimes there's a clear beginning, but not a clear end. It just cuts off at some point where you may wonder, well, what happened after? Well, maybe the, the, the quote, victim did something terrible after that and we don't get to see it. Maybe the supposed villain says something that would give away the fact that the, quote, victim did something to cause what happened and they want to cut that out. So does it have a clear beginning and clear end? Is it possible that uh, this is being misleading in some way? Can you think of any ways this could be misleading? And who is putting out the video and what might their motivations be? Now, it's not always the case that somebody with a bias will put out an inaccurate video. For example, someone on the right who sees someone on the left legitimately doing something wrong and and, uh, taking a video of it. Uh, That doesn't make the video inaccurate. Same with vice versa. But you do have to also examine it from that point of view, too. You need to say, wait a minute. Is this coming from a biased source? And that needs to make me even more suspicious that this isn't exactly what it appears to be. You need to do all of that before you jump on the social media outrage train, which so many people like to do. It feels good, doesn't it, to get out there and go, those kids are so disgusting treating Native Americans like that. Wow, I want to punch that kid. Yeah, it feels good to say that. It makes you look like you're so righteous, huh? But does it really? All I want is for things that happen that make the news to be judged upon the true and correct facts of the situation. We may all have different opinions of a situation, but at least we need to start with true and correct facts about the situation, and then from there we can make our judgments, which will differ. But when we're starting from something that is misleading or cut or misframed, then that leads people to incorrect conclusions. And that is what we need to avoid. One other thing a little bit related before I end the show here. This kind of goes along with that tip story I just talked about with Bellagio. I'm sure you've seen the tip shaming that has gone on. In fact, it happened in poker. It it actually happened in poker. In fact, we're going to get a bonus topic here. I'm going to jump to a bonus topic just, 
just because it, it reminded me. This is a topic I meant to talk about and then forgot to put on the agenda, but I want to put it on the agenda because it's it's a very relevant topic, and it's something that really bothers me when it happens. That's tip shaming. Tip shaming is where someone leaves a tip which is judged by someone, either the receiver of the tip or someone on the outside, even worse, as inappropriate. And instead of just quietly being angry about it, it is presented on social media to shame the person who did it and make everyone hate them because of their low tip or no tip that they left. And there's a lot of people who are on board with tip shaming because American tip culture has gotten so out of control that if you leave a zero tip or a low tip, you're automatically a horrible person. And there's no possible reason you can ever do that, right? And I hate that because, again, you don't know the beginning of the story or the end of the story. You don't know why no tip was left. You don't know if the customer was badly mistreated. You don't know if there was already an auto tip in place. You don't know if someone tipped in cash and maybe they just put zero on the credit card. I've done that before. In fact, just to make sure that doesn't happen, when I've tipped in cash but then not tipped on my credit card, I'll sometimes write, you know, where it says tip, I'll put on table just to prevent that from ever happening to me. Or confusion. Like, I don't want them to see zero and think they're getting no tip or so, or have some shady busboy see the zero and then grab the, the cash tip. So I put on table there to prevent all of that. If I tip on ca- cash when I paid with my card. So there's a lot of reasons why either you could leave a zero or low tip or actually leave a normal tip but appear to be leaving a zero or low tip. Well... Something like that just happened in poker. The winner of the 25K event at the Poker Stars Caribbean Adventure, that one that the Platinum Pass got people a seat to, uh, there was a, a nice Cinderella story to it where the winner of that event... got in through a free roll. So he won his platinum pass through the free roll. And then he went and won the tournament. So this was a great story. This wasn't a pro winning. This was a guy from Spain who went from a free roll into a $5.1 million payday. Wow. His name is uh, Ramon Colilas. Very good for him. Okay, now I don't know much about him. What I can tell you is that Ramon Colilas apparently left no additional tip because there was an auto tip in place of 2%. So everybody in the field already tipped 2% from their 25k buy-in. Whether they paid the buy-in or not, 2% of 25,000, which is $500, was automatically tipped to the dealers. So when Ramon went to go collect his $5.1 million, they said, do you want to leave anything additional for the dealers? He said no. Somehow that got out, which it shouldn't have. They, that's also a violation of his privacy. But somehow it got out that he tipped zero, and he was shamed for it. So poker player Sam Grafton 
shared a meme that was made to make fun of Ramon Colilas, which says at the top, it, it's done in the who wants to make a million, who wants to be a millionaire format. It says a uh, $5.1 million at the top of the screen. Then it says, you have just won a $5.1 million. You've just won $5.1 million in a poker tournament. You won for, you won a free $30,000 package for how much do you tip? A $50,000, B 10,000, C zero D 100,000. And then it shows like he selected zero. As his answer And people were distributing it Saying it's so funny You're really trying to make the guy feel bad For stiffing the dealers supposedly For leaving a zero tip On a 5.1 million dollar score That he got through a free roll But wait he did tip He did tip This is the largest field ever Of a 25k event There were uh how many people were in that field? A lot of people. The field is 1,039 people. 1,039 people in this field. Each of them tipped 500 without doing anything because that was taken out of the pool right away. 500 times 1,039 is more than 500,000. So more than $500,000 went to the dealers as tips from that tournament of 1,039 people. Sounds good to me. Sounds good. I bet if you split up that 500,000 among all the dealers there, they made quite good money. But because Ramon Kalilas did not leave an additional tip above that, he was shamed for it. Why should he be? He left a tip. He left 2% just like everybody else did. He was forced to. And my opinion about this, everybody can do what they want, but I feel that if there is an auto tip in place, then you should not tip above and beyond because you can't take away from that auto tip if you get bad service. So therefore, if you get good service, you shouldn't leave more because it averages out. Sometimes you'll get crappy service and you're stuck tipping anyway. Sometimes you'll get better than average service. And and you've already tipped, and uh, you know, so we're normally you may have tipped more if it wasn't auto. I think I think the auto basically averages that. It takes out the incentive for performance, but it it guarantees them an income. So if they want to guarantee an income, even if they do a crappy job, then fine. But then that's all they're going to get. If they want to be paid for by performance, then I'll tip based on performance. And usually, what I just do is I, I knowing that some dealers are good, some are bad. I'll just and they split it. I, I just usually will tip. Uh, Whatever's customary at the time, usually it's three percent. It provided everything's okay. If, if if the dealing's terrible or the, the, a lot of the dealers are rude, then I then I won't leave as much or anything. Usually I don't have this choice because it's an auto tip. Like the World Series is an auto tip. I don't play that many tournaments. But there is an auto tip here. The guy did not add to the auto tip. That's very standard to not add to the auto tip. But they shamed him all over poker. For not leaving something above the auto tip. But you know what? Even if there wasn't an auto tip, this shouldn't be shamed because you don't know the story. Is it possible that he got rude or bad dealers? Or had something else happen where he felt a tip was not deserved? This is each individual's choice whether they want to tip or not. And sometimes when someone doesn't tip, it's not because they're cheap. It's because they had a bad experience. 
and it's each individual's personal choice whether they want to or not, and they should not be shamed for not doing it because sometimes it's justified. And this is a personal decision that should be private between them and the business. And nobody should be shamed for it. But I see all kinds of tip-shaming photos out there. And you should see all the people who just go off on them. And if the people are named in the photos, then they get threats. They get some of the worst things sent to them. Why? Why is it your business what people choose to tip? You don't know what came into their decision. So how can you judge them? Let's say I saw a video of one guy punching another one. That's it. There's like a a five-second video of someone punching somebody else. How would I judge that person? Would I say they're a horrible person who commits assault? No, I'd say, well, why'd that happen? Why did that guy punch the other guy? What happened beforehand? What made this occur? If there's no information, then I couldn't judge the person. Maybe the guy who just got punched uh, did something inappropriate to this dude's uh, wife or kid. Maybe he punched the first guy, he punched the supposed aggressor first, but all we have on video is the return punch. You don't know. You only see five seconds of the video. So if, if you can't judge that, if you can't judge a five-second video of someone getting punched without knowing what happened before or after, then how can you judge someone for not tipping? Unless you're one of these dummies who thinks everybody deserves a tip no matter how rude they are or how badly they do the job. And yes, I said dummies. Because it is dumb. You have a right to do it. Tipping is a very personal thing. Everybody has their own standard for tipping and everybody has their own reasons for tipping and not tipping. And if you're the recipient of the tip, you can be privately angry about it and even complain to other employees, but you should not shame them on social media and you should not judge other people who are shamed on social media for this because you don't know. You don't know why. I'm just so sick of this rush to judgment about everything. And a lot of this is because people on social media often want to feel like they are good people, good moral people who are so respectful of all those that uh, may have a harder life than they do. And therefore, they're looking to shame those who make life harder for those people, even if they don't have the full story even if they vilify people who don't deserve it. Now, if someone really does deserve it and really did something worthy of scorn, then yeah, vilify them. Shame them. Bash them. Make sure you know the truth.
Otherwise, you are making someone into a victim. All righty. That's it. We are done. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I'm going to try to make it on Wednesday this upcoming week. I'll be on Wednesday the 30th. Wednesday, January 30th. Check PokerFraudAlert.com or check Twitter.com slash PokerFraudAlert for information on our next show. Thank you to our free roll donors, especially Eric Benzamokin this week. We should be doing this show weekly for the most part. Always check the Twitter account and verify that, though. As I said last week, I'm still not better, but I'm close enough to where I can at least do the show. And I can play the World Series of Poker. And I want to do everything I can to live as normally as I can. Even though I have some better days, some worse days, there's sometimes where I feel almost normal. Then there's sometimes where I feel very far from that. Alrighty. In case you're wondering, I'm not going to bet on the Super Bowl. I may bet on some props, but uh, I'm not going to bet on the Super Bowl itself. I expected to end up being more of a Rams fan than I actually am. I don't really care that much the Rams are in it. Like, I kind of mildly cared. I, I actually was out. I listened to the game, and it was an exciting end where they ended up winning and coming back like that, but it just doesn't feel the same as like when the Dodgers made the World Series or even the Lakers making the finals. It just it doesn't feel the same to me as for the Rams. I've never been a big NFL guy, and, and the other reason is that they, they were just gone from L.A. for so long. It just doesn't feel like they're an L.A. team yet. Anyway, I'll talk to you guys later. Shalom.